and very warm welcome to a new broadcast of our Corona Committee meeting. This is our 87th meeting and it's called All of Us Are David. We Are All David. And um, well, we uploaded it and before the meeting it was uh, deleted on YouTube. So apparently this is uh, rather unbearable for some people out there. Anyway, um, I dressed up rather spring-like this morning and hopefully this way we will be able to make sure that things go the way they are supposed to go. Uh, so some people were complaining that we are too bullish, they're too optimistic and that we think that the, all of this is going to be over in the near future. Of course, the near future is something relative and time is relative and once it's over maybe we'll see how relative time is and maybe there's some universal ties which are so complicated that we don't really understand how much we can to and fro in time. But anyway, the situation is becoming ever more desperate and I found it rather remarkable. I think 100 people had uh, their blood samples taken. I think it was an Augsburg, this is where the police officers went there and took blood sample, blood work, and um, if the, the information is right, and then um, they confiscated uh, vaccination certificates and, uh, you know, really created a big splash whether they were correct or not, but actually they shot themselves in the foot. I wonder how what they prove in the blood, what do they prove in order to prove the vaccination is the, imp is it the vaccination spikes or is it something else is it dna or what about if somebody has been vaccinated with a saline solution or with uh, innocuous batches i think actually this can backfire big time for then this big campaign uh, regardless of the fact that it's utterly unconstitutional anyway it remains exciting and i do think that um, evidence is becoming ever more corroborated and also the counterparty seems to be becoming more ever more uh, despondent desperate and um they know they've got this uh, big wind uh, this big albatross around them well anyway over to you Rainer. well we keep getting more and more new uh, reports where we get the uh, impression that everything is over now oh, you know and martin schwab um, pointed out to me a letter by the um, public prosecutions uh, public prosecutor's office of uh, brandenburg who want to go chasing um, uh, people going for walks um, so they seem to uh, be getting winded here we will um, follow up on this on my telegram channel um, and i don't know if these forced um, uh, taking of blood samples uh, is um, uh, genuine because that would be a violation of physical integrity and um, uh, we will of course follow up on that with jan myself and um, professor desmond um, whom we'll uh, speak with uh, soon enough now, um, are convinced that uh, this is over. Um, the opposing side is really uh, getting terribly winded. The taxi drivers are at the forefront uh, as usual. When I came here, I had a taxi driver uh, who was uh, twice vaccinated and was considering getting a booster and uh, he was absolutely willing to discuss this and he said how come we're suddenly unvaccinated because we have been vaccinated already and why do we need a, a third 
uh, vaccination if we're immunized already? And I told him that, well, even the manufacturers uh, claim that it's uh, not immunization at all, that it, um, if anything, uh, prevents severe cases, which isn't the case either, as we will, uh, as we've seen. So what's happening here, I think, uh, is irreversible now. By the way, if uh, people like the public prosecutor in Brandenburg believe um, that they can um, bring us back in line, then they're really out of line. Uh, we cooperate with um, people in the authorities as well. We got uh, interesting hints as to how to uh, put Spanish in the works of uh, the opposing side. Uh, we got this from a, um, a contact in the um, um, Secret Service. Um, maybe we can show this uh, so you can see um, the address at the top. That should be your own address. And then you can write it to the uh, federal uh, criminal uh, um, police. And it's always the same text. And um, I hereby request uh, information on the uh, personal uh, data your office holds uh, on me. So all the different contacts uh, can be flooded with this. These are legitimate requirement, uh, requests. We can only recommend this because this is a recommendation by the um, uh, Secret Service. Um, so nobody, somebody knows how to uh, put Spanish in the works of this. If you have 30,000 requests and four or five people have to handle this, then this overwhelms them. And then uh, four or five weeks later, you can uh, threaten and uh, uh, to sue them. Um, because if they don't uh, reply in good time, then uh, you can keep them busy that way again. So those are some ideas of how to put Spanish in the works of the authorities. And uh, then there's uh, something I would like to uh, show, that's uh, Sophie Scholl. Um, and by the way, what we just showed, you can uh, find it on our website. Then uh, here's an image of Sophie Scholl with a quote. Don't forget the small crooks of this system, such as the uh, public prosecutor in Brandenburg. Remember the names so that nobody uh, will get away. They uh, shall not be able of uh, changing sides last minute at the end of uh, these atrocities and uh, pretend like nothing ever happened. This will not happen, not this time. We are well versed uh, internationally. Over the next 10 to 14 days, we will uh, start uh, with our uh, international grand jury proceedings. We will tell the story that needs to be told here. Um, in a judiciary um, uh, system, um, hopefully arriving at indictments for the people um, being sued there. But uh, at least we want to expose the facts uh, to people, to the public, and our evaluation of the legal situation, because we have judges on board as well. Uh, so we don't only have a, a right, but also an obligation to expose this. And then we have this lady, what does she say? 
And uh, I would like to repeat this again. Well, I think it's wonderful what's written here, um, but what's even better is taking to the streets and, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, going for a walk, for a stroll in a friendly uh, company, in friendly company. I did this myself and, uh, you know, it was wonderful. And she says, well, just don't play ball. I mean, don't go to work. I'm not going to do this. I'm going to leave my mask off and I'm, I don't feel like it. And if really many people were to do this, then this is going to be over in no time. So it's really fun to watch it. And then we have two more videos at the very, very end. Uh, first of all, an American called Larkin Rose, who beautifully explains to us what uh, we should be aware of, that this form of leadership, um, as it were, is that we have is unacceptable. We don't need any leadership, certainly not the kind that we have now, but we don't really have any leadership because we all can see and distinguish between good and evil so that at the end of the day we will be able to uh, make do without all these convoluted uh, laws and that is what Larkin Rose speaks about. We have a German uh, version, it's not an exact translation of what he says but it's very uh, similar one which is very very powerful um, by a librarian from um, Bremerhaven. Uh, I forgot the name but I think it'll be shown at the time uh, in the video. So these are uh, two extremely strong, forceful videos that we shouldn't miss. And we can get started now. Okay, uh, so we don't cooperate, of course, with the... Um, uh, and, and, uh, no, we have whistleblowers uh, from uh, the military, the police, and uh, from um, the um, German Secret Service called the... Um, Constitution Protection uh, Service. Um, we don't cooperate with them, but we can say who our uh, whistleblowers are because we don't want them to be blown out of the water um, and prematurely. I'm really interested in Sophie Scholl's stories. Uh, well, you know, when you come across things, why why don't you just jot them down and we're going to have a website on onto which you can upload this? I've got the impression that some people, you know, kind of think they can create street credibility by uh, sucking up to certain people and uh, then jumping the bandwagon of resistance. But I think the rats which are trying to leave the ship, which is sinking, these big fat rats should not be able to get away this time. I mean, the big fat corrupt um, rats which uh, try to get away now. So we should not give them a leg up when they try to get off the ship. Anyway, now over to Professor Desmond. So it's great to have you with us again. And we had the privilege twice in this committee to talk to him. Oh, once. Oh, yes, once and once as part of Basis Camp. And um, we will be speaking English. It's great to have you back. You're making headlines everywhere. Good morning, Wolfgang, by the way. Um, you're making headlines everywhere because you've probably seen that um, uh, Dr. Robert Malone, the inventor of the mRNA technique, uh, vaccine technique, um, is uh, has quoted you repeatedly because finally, he says, and this is true for many others as well, finally, it is becoming very clear that the psychological backdrop is the only explanation for what is happening. Without this 
psychological terror, I, that's what I would call it, uh, this whole thing would not have been possible. Have you gotten many calls from other people who want to interview you and want you to uh, explain this? Yes. Yes. I receive uh, every day, I, I, I don't know exactly how many, but I receive many uh, requests for podcasts and interviews, yes. And it's it's very nice to be here again. I want Thank to say you. that to begin with. <laughs> yes. Yes. Indeed, I, I, uh, Robert Malone um, referred to me uh, at the Joe Rogan podcast, mm -hmm. and he he um, he summarized my theory in a in a, in a concise way, mm -hmm. uh, using the term mass formation psychosis. Yeah. And uh, actually, I never use that term myself. Okay. I always I always use the term mass formation. Yeah. Uh, because because uh, in one way or another, I prefer that term both from an ethical and a pragmatic and an intellectual perspective, to me, it seems to be a little bit problematic to use the term psychosis. Um, but, um, uh, well, I, I, I know many people now, uh, the, 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 the term is, is trending now, mass formation psychosis, but still I will, I will continue to talk about mass formation. So I was wondering, <clears throat> because you said, you know, like in this in this sort of hypnotic state that a lot of people are in right now. What what is your feeling? What um, at what point are we now? Also with regard to the totalitarian system, you know, with like that it's starting to eat its own children, basically. Like what? Where are we at at the moment? Well, it's maybe hard to say at what stage we are exactly, but it's clear that. Uh, the process of, <clears throat> of mass formation and totalitarian thinking is going further and further, I think, in this respect, for instance, that uh, we've seen the introduction of the, of the Corona safe ticket or of the QR code as a condition to enter certain parts of, <clears throat> of public space. Um, and uh, it, it's, it's becoming clear already that even, uh, Vivian, uh, of Dr. Fisher, you referred to uh, the monster that divorced its own children, but indeed, it's clear at the moment that even the people who buy into the narrative or to, who, who want to, to identify with the system, to, who go along with the system, um, will fall prey to the system. And because also they have to be tested. Also, uh, for them, uh, they are not free again after two jabs. Um, so um, the, 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 the restrictions and the limitations uh, continue uh, to have a, a devastating impact, I think, on, on, on the lives of everyone. Uh, not only the people who who refuse to, uh, um, to to go along with the system. So, and that's exactly, exactly one of the illusions that people have when mass formation or in particular totalitarian thinking emerges in a society. The illusion is that if as long as you go along with the system, as long as you identify with the system, uh, you will be safe or you won't end up in troubles. But that's not true at all. That's exactly the difference between a totalitarian state and and uh, and the classical dictatorship in a classical dictatorship this might be true but it's not true at all in a totalitarian state in a totalitarian state as soon as you understand the dynamics that are going on you realize that there is only that there is only one safe or that is not that is that there's only one real option and it is to defy the mass formation and to do this in a specific way, to begin with, you have to speak out, 
as long as it, as it is possible to a certain extent. And also you have to demonstrate in public space. You have to demonstrate uh, according to the principles of non-violent resistance. That's something that is extremely important because in a classical dictatorship, for instance, to compare it again with a classical dictatorship, non-violent resistance doesn't make sense. A classical dictator at a psychological level has his impact and he has his grip on society because people are scared of him because of his aggressive potential. And he will use his aggressive potential as a reaction to nonviolent resistance. But as soon as you enter a state mechanism, which is much more imperialistic or even more totalitarian in nature, then the psychological process is completely different. And in that case, nonviolent resistance is what is most effective. And also from what has to be preferred from an ethical point of view, of course. And you can understand that very perfect, uh, perfectly well. I won't uh, explain the mechanism of, uh, or at least unless you want to, but I won't explain the entire mechanism of mass formation again. But if you remember well, the fourth condition, which is extremely important of mass formation, is this enormous potential of free-floating frustration and aggression. And as soon as the opposition uses violence, then the mass will consider this a justification to direct all this frustration and aggression at the dissonant voice. Because that's typically what, at the psychological level, unconsciously, the masses need. They have this frustration and aggression, and they always seek for an object to direct this frustration and aggression at, and to, to, uh, to uh, manifest something that is extremely typical for the crowd or the mass, and it is, uh, their inclination to commit atrocities as if it is a holy duty to commit them, as if they uh, need to do so uh, for the sake of the collective, for the sake of the masses themselves. So um, from this perspective, as soon as you're dealing with mass formation or totalitarian thinking, you need to be firm and you need to organize well-organized non-violent resistance in which speaking out is the first and most important act. Can we just, um, so that the, those viewers who have heard about you but don't exactly know what these four elements are that uh, on, on, on which uh, this mass formation feeds, can you just quickly go through them again? The most important one you just mentioned it, yes. Yes, 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 I can, I can. Mm -hmm. So indeed, mass formation is as, as, exists as long as, as humankind exists. I mean, it's a specific type of group formation in which people uh, actually lose all capacity for critical thinking and in which they, very important, start to think all exactly the same. That's something extremely strange. They start to have, uh, to use the same words even. They start to function the same uh, and they use, they lose their, a capacity for critical thinking and also their intelligence. And that applies equally well to highly intelligent as to less intelligent people. So phenomenon of mass formation uh, in a nutshell. And then, but large scale mass formation occurs or emerges only when the population is in a very specific state. 
and uh, a state which can be characterized by four conditions. And the first, the first condition is that many people, that's the most crucial one, many people have to feel socially isolated or have to be in a state of social atomization, as Hannah Arendt said. So, and, and, and we saw now just before the corona crisis that this most crucial condition was definitely fulfilled. For instance, a Gallup World Poll, um, uh, the, the, the US Surgeon General in America, um, uh, uh, observed a loneliness epidemic in the States um, in 2017, I believe. More than 50% of the people mentioned that they had no meaningful contact at all. And yes, that they, that they felt only, that they only connected to other people through the internet. Mm. And then in, in, the, in the United States, in the United States, a minister of loneliness was appointed by Theresa May because she also, she, yeah, she also acknowledged the, 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 the proportions of the problem. And um, it's, it's clear that this, 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 this social isolation, isolation is correlated highly with the level of industrialization and the use of technology in a country. Mm -hmm. And that's, that, that, that's exactly why the, the process of mass formation, because this most crucial condition increased, the number of people who felt socially isolated increases constantly since three centuries, since since the uh, the, the, yeah, the the scientific mechanist materialist view on man and the world became dominant, since the world got industrialized, and since the technology first radio and television, uh, and then uh, the internet um, were used more and more, more and more people felt socially isolated, and more and more people became vulnerable for mass formation. And that's why in the 20th century, in the beginning of the 20th century, <clears throat> this, this radically new uh, type of state, the totalitarian state emerged for the first time. We should not forget that. Totalitarianism is a relatively new phenomenon. It did not exist before the 20th century. It started to exist at the moment. The masses became so powerful that they were the, 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 uh, the most powerful group in society at that moment uh, uh, totalitarian states emerged and totalitarian regimes emerged. And um, so well, to come back to these four conditions for mass formation, well, the first and most important is social isolation. Many people have to be socially isolated, have to experience a lack of social bond. The second one is <clears throat> that many people have to feel a lack of meaning making and sense making in life. The third one is that there has to be high levels of free-floating anxiety, which means anxiety that cannot be connected to a mental representation. So people have to feel anxious without knowing why they feel anxious or what they feel anxious of. And then uh, the fourth condition is that, that there have to be high levels of so-called free-floating uh, frustration and aggression. And all these four conditions are nicely connected to each other. So as soon as people experience a lack of social bond, being social beings, they will also experience a lack of meaning making. And if someone experiences lack of social bond and lack of meaning making, they will experience usually this typical type of anxiety, which is free-floating anxiety, and they will get frustrated and aggressive. And if then, under these conditions, a narrative is distributed through the mass media, and very important, it has to be pronounced with the mouth, it has to be articulated, um, uh, then um, uh, a, a narrative that indicates an object of anxiety and at the same time delivers, provides a strategy to deal with the object of anxiety, 
then something typical might happen. All this free-floating anxiety in society might connect to this representation of the object of anxiety in the narrative. And because people want mental control over their anxiety, they might be willing to participate in very far-going, extreme strategies to deal with the object of anxiety. Okay, mm -hmm. For instance, the lockdowns to control a virus. And, um, and then, once this happens, something even more important happens. Uh, a new kind of social bond emerges, and that's crucial. So, because many people participate in the strategy to deal with the object of anxiety, they fight a heroic collective battle and a new kind of solidarity emerges. And that's the most important thing, this new kind of solidarity. If you don't want to get vaccinated or if you don't wear a mask, people will reproach you typically that you've shown no solidarity, no citizenship. So that's the most important thing to realize. And this new kind of social bond, this new kind of social bond is a very specific kind of social bond. It is not a social bond between individuals it is a social bond between an individual and the collective. And the more the process of mass formation continues, the further it progresses, the more all the ties, all the bonds between the individuals are destroyed or disrupted. That's crucial. And that's typically what happens in a totalitarian state. In the end, there is a completely paranoid atmosphere in which every social bond between individuals is disrupted, destroyed, while the bond between the individual and the system is getting stronger and stronger and stronger. And sometimes, sometimes this happens. This can be provoked, or this can be pursued in an intentional way, this destruction of the social bond between the individuals. For instance, in the Soviet Union, this happened in an intentional way. In Germany, Nazi Germany, it happens in a spontaneous way. And that's mm -hmm. always, always the big question. To what extent does the process of mass formation and totalitarian thinking happen in a spontaneous way? Or to what extent is it intentionally provoked? Usually, and that's not my level of expertise, that's much more your level of expertise, usually, it is a mixture between the two. The, the, the process of mass formation has always existed, and it sometimes emerged in a completely spontaneous way. But I believe that as soon as it leads to really a totalitarian state, there has to be at least, and it's, I'm sure of that, there is a certain institutions and certain individuals who see the opportunities that are provided by the mass formation or by the sensitivity for mass formation, and they start to use it to a certain extent, to promote their own uh, ideology and to 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 uh, increase their grip on society, to uh, reshape society according to uh, their own ideology. For instance, the technocratic uh, or, or the or the <clears throat> or the transhumanist ideology. So it means that, in their opinion, very often they believe that they do the only thing that can really solve the problems of the world, like. Uh, climate change and other stuff, and that at this moment, or it were other problems in the beginning of the 21st century. But uh, um, uh, of course, they are so fanatically convinced that their ideology is the only solution. And of course, they like to believe it because they see themselves as the people who will be in charge in this new society. But anyway, so there's, it's usually the emergence of this 
mass formation is usually a, a very highly complex and dynamical uh, phenomenon. So, but once it emerges, it creates this new social bond, this, and then it leads to a certain, that makes, that it leads to a certain mental intoxication. It makes people switch from a highly negative mental state in which they felt socially isolated, the lack of meaning making, a lot of free-floating anxiety and a lot of free-floating frustration and aggression to exactly the opposite, to a state in which they are maximally connected in a crowd in which they experience a new kind of meaning making, all very symptomatic, of course, but anyway, they experience a new kind of meaning making. All their anxiety is connected to an object and all the frustration and aggression can be directed, aimed at a scapegoat, namely the people who, for one way or, for one way or another, defy the masses or refuse to go along with the masses or cannot go along with the masses for, for certain reasons. So this and it is the switch from a highly negative to a positive mental stage, state which makes people, which makes that the attention, which leads to a certain mental intoxication and which leads to a narrowing of the field of attention and which, which makes that people only see what is indicated by the narrative and makes them completely insensitive for all the arguments that are uh, situated outside this field of attention. And well, in this way, we end up in this uh, problematic state uh, that no matter how absurd the measures become, uh, it won't make a difference. Even to the contrary, uh, for a certain part of the population who is really into this process of mass formation, usually about 30%, the more absurd the measures come, the more they will be applauded. Because for these people, that's only a minority, or at least it's not the, the major part of society, for these people, the, rich, the measures function as a ritual, a ritual which is a symbolic behavior that always have specific characteristics. Rituals or a kind of behavior that has no pragmatic meaning, that is absurd from a pragmatic point of view, and that demands a sacrifice of the individual through which the, indivi the individual shows that the collective is more important than its individual interests. Okay? So, and that's why the, the, the measures, no matter how absurd they become, for a certain part of the population, uh, there will absolutely be no reason to uh, to uh, question the narrative or to or to go against it. Um, well, I mean that's I that's really interesting. I think I understood even better now, like yeah. some things you know that you said like before. You know, like when I think like in my family, there's uh, one person that uh, has always lived very withdrawn. You know, and, but I, I think, I mean, this person suffered also a little bit, you know, or like, I guess, quite a bit from being so um, uh, secluded, is that the word? You know, like living just by um, him or herself in and in isolation, sort of, you know. But now this being in isolation is actually like has become the absolute right thing to do. It's the healthy thing is the good thing. So it's basically, you know, this isolation that was a pain has now been become sort of a sacrifice, something good that you give like it's the you know that's very interesting so i can understand that maybe this this mental state of the person the emotional state has created a completely new um you know attitude toward this really problematic uh, socially problematic situation that was there before mm. that's um yeah and another thing um mm, 
like I mean this absurdity you know that's that's one thing that I find also really interesting so you say the more flamboyant basically these rituals become you know the the more more exaggerated like if they wanted to ask us to wear like a red head or come in like um in red clothing like every day to show that you have the right kind of attitude or like and then cut off maybe your finger or something I mean to show that you have that you have the right mentality that would even make sense for them because it's like this bond it's this social bond that you are part of the good good crowd of course. basically of course and the problem is not that people need rituals or that they want rituals because people are symbolic beings and people are in need of certain rituals I believe but the problem is that People are no longer, because of their materialist, uh, mechanist view on men and the world, they are no longer aware that they perform rituals. They believe that their rituals have a pragmatic necessity. And they, that, that's the problem. As, as long as a human being realizes that his behavior is ritualistic in nature, I believe he will have the common sense to more or less limit Uh, the impact of the rituals on his on his uh, daily life or on his on his welfare on his health and so on but if people believe that the ritual he is performing or he or she is performing is a practical has a practical necessity then there is no limit uh, to the to the uh, to the sacrifice uh, he wants to he wants to bring for the collective and that's that's one of the tragedies i believe of the totalitarian system that's one of one of the reasons you can explain it in much more ways but one of the reasons why Mass formation and totalitarianism are always intrinsically self-destructive. They are always intrinsically self-destructive because they perform rituals that are not recognized as such. It's, it's, that's funny. Um, I have always despised any kind of rituals. I once made a huge mistake <clears throat> and joined the army. I enlisted for 12 years. After about a year, I understood everything they're doing are empty rituals they make no sense that's why i never really um uh, i was a member i i was a member of the church um here in germany of the in, in northern germany of the uh evangelists um but i i left them because One reason is taxes and the other is, again, empty rituals, because to me, all of these rituals had absolutely no meaning. It's just it. All of these rituals, the ones that I experienced, all of them seem to only be designed to make people follow orders. And I hate that. But it does seem from your um, explanations, it does seem that some people need this because they don't seem to be able to make their own choices and their own decisions they need someone to tell them what to do and it seems like rituals are one vehicle for making people do the things that they otherwise wouldn't do right i'm not entirely sure about that sometimes rituals are used for that as an instrument of power mm -hmm. I also believe that sometimes they give expression to the identity of someone. Uh, and it depends, of course, the ritual. There are many sorts of rituals. Um, but indeed, very often, they will probably be used as a way to make a subject show, voluntary or involuntary, that it belongs to a group. And, you know, I believe that 
in itself, the problem is not that there are groups and that people belong to groups and that people sacrifice a little bit of their freedom for the group, because I believe that a society that can, or if people want to live a life worthy of a human being, I believe there has to be a balance between individual freedom and uh, 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 the collective. Uh, I, I believe that the individual has to realize that um, it has to sacrifice a little bit of his freedom for the collective, and the collective has to realize that the fun its function is exactly to give individuals the opportunity uh, to live a free life. So and as long as there is a balance between the two, I believe, in my opinion, my humble opinion, I believe that um, uh, there is a possibility uh, that the society can uh, be really uh, humane and that 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 people can 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 live a, a life worthy of a human being. That's what I believe. There has to be a balance. But the the the, the drama of totalitarianism, the problem of totalitarianism, is that it starts first from a, a state of extreme individualism in which uh, in which an individual has the feeling to be completely socially isolated and to belong to no group at all which is a terrible feeling for, for most human beings. And then suddenly it switches to the extreme opposite in which the collective is radically more important and also possesses the individual at the mental level completely, uh, which is the, the condition, the, 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 the state of mass formation and in which the individual, strangely enough, is not really connected to the other individuals. It does not give rise, the mass formation does not give, does not make that uh, there are new connections between the individuals. Mass formation makes that the individual is absolutely connected uh, uh, in with the collective, with the, with, with the masses itself. And that's why the totalitarian state does not allow any other real relationship unless the relationship between the individual and the state. And that's why, for instance, George Orwell said, the first victim of the totalitarian state is always love. <laughs> Huh, the love, love between people. Yes. So it's basically yes. some sort of hive mind or like like a Borg kind of uh, constellation, you know, that people are in at the moment. So basically, a very good preparation for a transhumanist agenda, if that's if if you wanted to look at it that way. Well, yes. Then 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 we yes. Um, I I I believe that. Uh, well, I also believe that the basic ideology uh, that is uh, seizing power now in society is the technocratic and, uh, and the transhumanist uh, ideology, which is, in my humble opinion, dehumanizing in nature, as all totalitarianism is. And I mean this in a technical sense, dehumanizing, because the essence of humanity and of the human being is, in my opinion, a certain space in which an individual can make individual choices and has a certain freedom. And uh, that's only logical because uh, as no theory is complete, every subject should be allowed the freedom to invent its own theory from which it wants to organize its life and its existence. And that's exactly what a totalitarian system uh, uh, refuses to an individual. A totalitarian system believes that its theory, the theory of the state, is total, that it has no lack, and that as a consequence, that it should impose its way of thinking and its theory to all the individuals without leaving them any space 
to make their own choices. And that, the essence of humanity is exactly the we, we exist as a human being, as a subject, at every moment when we make choices that are really our own choices, that cannot be reduced to the other or to the state or to no matter whom. So that's the moment where humanity as a phenomenon emerges. And if a state denies this space to its individuals, then it is really dehumanizing in a technical, psychological sense, is it dehumanizing? And that's what happens, happens, I believe, in a technocratic state where people believe that the technocratic mechanist, mechanist materialist knowledge of an expert uh, is superior to uh, all other types of knowledge. That's exactly, then it is by definition dehumanizing in nature. And that's, I believe, the, the, the big risk, the really the, the, the major risk that is associated to um, transhumanism and all technocratic uh, thinking. Uh, uh, yeah, well. Wolfgang, Wolfgang, you wanted to say something? Yes, thank you. Hello. I'm, Hi, Wolfgang. I'm very fond of what you said. And I think that I, there is a problem because uh, we there are so many possibilities to make choices every day, each day, that we have to build our own rituals. We know we have a breakfast, we know we walk, we have a walk in the afternoon or such. People have their own rituals and they are individually choices. Those rituals they choose individually. And so there are those both uh, longings. There's a longing for freedom and the longing for simplicity, that life doesn't yeah. get too complicated. Mm -hmm. And I think they just use it. And if, if you make such things as they did with us now with the so-called pandemic, they just destroyed our normal riches. They forbid our normal riches. They, they separated us from all we have chosen before, to how we wanted to live. And then they had this, this vacuum. They made us, they made us insane. They made us incertain. They made us uh, anxious. And they mm. just use this to implant new rituals. And so we are longing for new rituals because our old rituals are not, are not allowed anymore. I think this is a very, very effective trick they use. Yeah, yes, I agree. I, 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 don't, I don't know if they, I, I always feel a little bit hesitant to see it in a too intentional way. Uh, in this sense that I believe that we were anxious because as a consequence, we, and, Humanity, uh, human beings have always been anxious, and sometimes it is exploited and abused by 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 people who want to use that anxiety to uh, to impose their own ideology or to 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 get a firm grip on us. So it can be a little bit of the two, I believe. But I definitely agree that we all constantly participate in rituals. We construct rituals every yes. day, every <laughs> day, I think. But that's that's and what what you what you bring up is, I think, extremely important to make the difference between. Uh, ritual that is constitute, constitutive for humanity and a ritual that destroys humanity. Yes. I mean, if, if you allow individuals to, to choose their own rituals, at least to a certain extent, because a ritual is always something that is shared with others as well, I think, mm -hmm. but it needs to be, you have to, the other has to allow you to be creative at the level of your rituals. And that's where you start to exist as an individual. And if the state yes. constantly tries to uh, destroy that, the, 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 the own creative uh, input, 
at the level of the construction of the rituals, then the state becomes an enemy of humanity. Uh, uh, yeah. If you regard the, all those Sunday rituals people have in sports or with their cars, with their hobbies, where they meet, and they, there are groups of people, they have the same rituals, and they are happy to, to do this ritual with the others mm -hmm. together. And um, so I think it's it's you're right when when you say we 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 have the we have the choice whether we go fishing each Sunday or whether we go running each Sunday or so it's our ritual and we establish it and it makes life easier because we get accustomed to it we don't have to have think every Sunday what do I do now so we it's make life easier and we need this uh, simplifying our life because uh, it, it would be too much those decisions we could have. And um, but I think this is something our the constitutional thing of our of our political of the political life too. It's the human dignity. It's the question, and the human dignity is just that that we are allowed to have choices. Oh. And, um, and so and this is and we are all equal in the right to have choices, but we are all different at the same time with our choices. Mm. And to have this balance between those two things, I think it's very important. This is what we, st what we should strive for. And um, I, I think this, uh, there is one thing which is very interesting. It is when you have different societies. So you have, you have neighbors. For instance, we have, uh, we have the neighbors in Denmark or we have the Czech Republic or so, or in Poland. And they have different uh, rituals, and, but the borders are opening and we go traveling. We make holidays in different uh, societies. So now experience that different societies react differently with this problem we are facing. Some people are more anxious, others are not, and uh, they, they change their life and others, they don't change it so much. Some, some uh, societies believe that politicians, they do what the politicians say, like in Sweden, they are used to, to, to trust them. And in other, in other societies, people are not used to trust the, 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 the politicians or the police or so because they are corrupt. They used to be corrupt. And so now suddenly we observe that in those societies which are corrupt, which used to be corrupt, there's more freedom than in those societies where the people are used to, to obey. I think it's a funny phenomenon for me. And uh, I, we could, we could uh, perhaps learn something from this, but I don't know what. So perhaps you could help us. <laughs> oh, yes. Well. Hmm. You know, the first thing that totalitarian states tend to do is limiting the, cap the capacity for people to travel. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> yes, to replace themselves. Yeah. Yes, I but always it's think it is difficult for globalists to do this. <laughs> it is. It is. <laughs> yes. Can I can I ask you something? Um, I remember. Or do you want to say something more? To no, no. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. Um, you know, I remember that you said that um, you know to break through this hypnosis. 
that's that that this is a very hard thing to do because basically only the one who who started the hypnosis like for instance the politicians the media or something would be i mean the, the sort of the authorities to basically end the whole thing just like the magician you know says boom now it's over wake up everyone so um but what we can see like you know we get also a lot of information from like the hospitals and um so i just got word that in um, a larger hospital, um, a lot of the doctors have started to vaccinate, you know, vaccinate their relatives themselves or like their colleagues, meaning they're not doing it because they have now come to doubt the whole thing. So they're not doing it anymore. Maybe some got vaccinated, but now they for the children or like for the second or third dose, they don't want to do it. So they've, you know, they venture out into like not do not doing this ritual. So, but they're still hiding or like they're not showing their faces, you know, they're not speaking out, even if they see so many like side effects, you know, that's why they are now going into that direction to avoid the vaccination for, for their closest relatives and maybe their friends and whatever. But um, they're, they're still afraid to speak out. So what is, what is something, you know, kind of the final push, where could we help? in order to sort of push them over the, uh, you know, the, the edge, the edge, like so that they really come out with their faces, because, you know, that's the thing. If there was like a from if there was like a thousand doctors, say, I think the the Charité has like 17,000 employees or something like that. So if like 10, a thousand people, 500 people would speak out at the same time. Yeah. And I mean, maybe that's the same is true for uh, Munich or whatever, large hospitals, you know, then what could they do? So, but they're still, I mean, they're thinking of their careers and they, to some extent, they still don't want to, uh, you know, accept that this is, has been like a whole, like dark narrative that, that's been fed to them. Yes, I know, you know, I believe that the choice to speak out or not, is one of these fundamental choices of a human being on which you cannot have too much impact. Um, I always know, notice that in my clinical practice as well, as well. You can lead a horse to the water, but you cannot make it drink. <laughs> it is sometimes said, and you can help a patient to, you can reassure him and encourage him to speak out, even be it only about himself in the therapeutic space, but whether he really does it or not, you cannot decide for him. And that's maybe also the nice thing, because that choice to speak out or not is what most of all defines us. That's the most defining choice a human being can make to speak out, to say in public space what he believes is true, not because he is sure that what he will say is the absolute truth or something, but just because at that moment he has the feeling that this is what is true and that this is what he should say. That's the most fundamental act that a human being can do in that. And in that way, it's the most defining act. It's the core of our being. As when we stop to do that, we lose our soul. That's uh, written in the Talmud, I believe. And it's good that nobody else can make this choice for us and that we do not have too much impact on this choice in another human being because it's everybody's choice. It's own choice, really its own, own choice to do it or not. So I believe 
We can try to lead the horses to the water, yes. Try to continue to speak out ourselves in an as sincere and honest way as possible. Uh, but it's a, it's, uh, I, I, I'm afraid that uh, we only can uh, hope that more people will speak out, but that we have to accept if they don't do so. Um, and um, uh, at least that is what I, what I try to do, because I have the feeling that if you try to force someone to speak out, you always have the opposite effect. Yeah. <laughs> you always have the effect that they close down more. And if they speak out, it's not really the truth that they say. Yeah. They, they tell what you, well, so in, in that respect, I believe we have at the same time to do our utmost best to create a space in which people uh, find the courage to speak out. And at the same time to perfectly accept uh, if they don't do it. Um, so either you have it in you or you don't. You can't push anyone. As you said, you can lead the horse to the water, but you cannot make it drink. Some mm. of us will speak out. Some of us won't. Uh, there's mm. one. There's two more questions that I have. One uh, deals with the self-destructive element, the intrinsic self-destructive element of totalitarianism. And, and the other one deals with what I, as a lawyer, am trying to do, find those who are responsible. But the first question is, can you define why um, this is intrinsically bound to be self-destructive, totalitarianism? Is it is it as simple as the revolution devours its own children? Because as soon as you've done what you're supposed to do, you don't you're not needed anymore. Or if you don't do what you're supposed to do, you're also not needed anymore. It, is it as simple as that? I think. Just saying that the revolution divorced its own children is a description of the of the intrinsic self-destructiveness mm -hmm. of of totalitarianism or of mass formation, but it's not an explanation. And I think you can explain it uh, from diff many different perspectives. I think, but none of them is very easy. But I will do. An, I will try to 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 to, uh, to present one of these perspectives. Yeah. You know. So. The emergence of a mass happens on the basis of these four conditions we've been uh, discussing. Uh, and it's clear that um, a, a mass wants to continue to exist because it provides this new social bond, the bond between the individual and the collective. And But it knows that it can only exist if there is an object of anxiety. One, it always has to have an object of anxiety. And two, the object of anxiety always has to be destroyed, stigmatized, marginalized, and so on. Because there is this fourth condition, which says that there is a huge potential of frustration and aggression in the, in the, in the, in the masses. And it constantly has to satisfy this aggression, to direct it at an external object. So this makes, this leads to this very specific phenomenological characteristic of mass formation and totalitarianism that one it always seeks an object of anxiety read orwell read the history of the soviet union and you will see it it always needs a new object of anxiety which once it, then it needs to destroy which is then needs to destroy and that and in, in the beginning and in, in the beginning in the beginning uh, this the choice of the object of anxiety is more or less logical when you consider it from the perspective of the ideology. For instance, it was more or less logical from a materialist, hist historical materialism, that it was the aristocracy that had to be destroyed in uh, the Soviet Union. But 
After the aristocracy came the large farmers. That was also more or less logical. Then the small farmers. That was already less logical. Then the goldsmiths. And then the one group after the other. Until Stalin, in a completely nonsensical way, until Stalin eliminated 50% of his own loyal party members. So that's the process of mass formation in action. It defines an object of anxiety. It tries to eliminate it, silence it, sometimes destroy it. And then it continues with always new object of anxiety until everything is destroyed or until the uh, equilibrium of the system balances uh, tips in another way. So, and this, this process, if you want to keep the destruction within certain limits, you have to continue to speak out. That's the point. Mm -hmm. the, atro the, the atrocities become more extreme as there, is there are less dissonant voices. And that's perfectly logical as well, because the phenomenon of mass formation is a phenomenon of hypnosis. And hypnosis is always provoked by the articulated voice of someone, a, a narrative that is articulated. And so that explains both at the same time the intrinsic uh, self-destructiveness of the process of mass formation and totalitarianism and uh, what the solution is if you want, do not want to go along with the masses, if you want to uh, defy the masses, if you want to stay outside of the masses, then it is an illusion that you better go underground. No, you have to remain in public space as much as possible and to speak out. And, but can I ask you, like, um, if the, so, I mean, they could now become much more aggressive in the sense that they just, like, do random aggressive stuff. Like, I mean, of course, it's a very aggressive thing to force people with the masks and, like, you know, do this forced vaccination or, like, you know, what's what's coming on, vaccination mandates, you know, but do you think they're also like, since it's, I think it's kind of a fragile system also, I mean, this social engineered mass, I mean, as I see it, you know, and at the same time, what's how they react, it's like a, it's a, you know, like it's a, a balance kind of, of, so you cannot push too far. So if we stay all um, peaceful, do you think in order to fulfill the need for more aggression, do you think they would, um, really is it very likely that they kind of soon uh, switch to more aggressive behavior from their own side you know like come up with more false flags and i mean we see that with these uh, these walks these demonstrations that more um, agents um, emerged you know that are trying to provoke a little bit but so far it has not been successful i mean do you think they're looking for some stuff where they can hop on with their you know aggressive police force or something like that or do you think they would um, um, would like really go for other aggressive activities like themselves? Some of the leaders might try to uh, use more aggression, even if the, the opposition uh, sticks to the principles of nonviolent behavior. But uh, I doubt whether they find whether they will find social support for it. That's the that's the that's one of the problems. Like if you look at um, um, Macron in uh, in French. Who used this terrible phrase that he wanted to to uh, well, how do you say it in in English? He wanted to uh, to make the life of the unvaccinated people completely impossible and so on. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He he didn't find he he didn't find much social support and it worked rather contrary to him. And that's because the masses always want to be in the conviction that they live for a certain holy duty for the collective. They are usually 
usually, I don't think, I don't think it will work very well now. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, things has also changed. The zeitgeist has changed mm-hmm. compared to the first half of the, of the, of the 21st century, which is very much to our to our advantage, I believe. Mm-hmm. That's something that Hannah Arendt, Hannah Arendt already remarked. Uh, uh, the, the new totalitarianism will not be led by gang members, uh, but it will be led by uh, dull bu- bureaucrats and technocrats, she said. And that was because she was perfectly aware that the zeitgeist was changing and that over aggression uh, was no longer something that was part of the, the, uh, the idealized uh, uh, fiction of, of, uh, of the population. So in my opinion, from several angles, from several angles, I believe that um, uh, even if the readers would choose to do so or would try to do so, uh, uh, overt aggression against uh, people who stick to the principles of nonviolent resistance will not be very successful, I believe. Mm-hmm. But what will be successful, what will be successful, is the stigmatization and the marginalization of those who do not want to comply. That mm-hmm. will be effective. Mm-hmm. I think we, you know, Niels Bohr said, prediction is always difficult, in particular if it is about the future. And it's, of course, that's true. Nobody, nobody knows exactly how, uh, how, how things will evolve. But I, my two cent word opinion would be uh, that uh, they might succeed in uh, marginalizing and stigmatizing the people who do not want to go along with the system even more than, than, than happens now. That might be successful. But I don't, I don't think that large scale attempts at physical destruction of the opposition uh, will happen or will be will be uh, will find enough social support to uh, to really uh, be realized that's what i think i think this is a very i think this is a very good uh, thing to, to to have in mind because there are some there are some persons like uh, famous people and from sports or famous people from 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 the movies and so and where people are used to to think they are they are they are heroes and when they uh, are are also marginalized. I think there will be some resistance because it's difficult to change the switch here. The, suddenly a hero is marginalized. What's that? And people, I think this is so. They are very important. Those those former heroes. It would be very important that they show up and that they stay. Uh, yeah, that they stay powerful and that they are courageous. Indeed. I think this would be good. But I want to say something. <clears throat> I think they have a problem here, because the thing is, since they're limiting, you know, the uh, the the dead, uh, the expiration date for the vaccinated, you know, all the time. So everyone. Can you can you can you come again? Uh, do you know, like I mean, the vaccination, the status as being vaccinated has an expiration yes, okay. date, yes. Yes. and yes, I yes, think yes. that is a major problem. If you have, if you know, if if it was like this one-time vaccination thing, so everyone who hasn't done it is like, you know, is the one that's up for grabs for for being like marginalized and stigmatized. But basically, even if you comply, you know, that's I mean, they need this constant pressure to be kept. Uh, alive, you know, to to, mm. to be, uh, and then, but you, next thing you see, like six months later, three months later, your status has expired, and now you're yourself in the in the problematic situation that you are out of the system, and I think that's you know that's also making a lot of people angry, and starting to question the thing. So I think they have a sort of a dilemma going on. 
you know, mm. this is this of is course. another perfect example of how this is self-destructive because sooner or later everyone will catch on, except maybe for the 30% that you mentioned. One mm. final question before we let you go. Um, <clears throat> as a lawyer, um, we always look for culpability. We always try to find those who are really responsible. In my view, those who are behind the psychological terror are, of course, responsible because they're the ones who invented all this. But you said um, halfway through our interview that it is uh, a mix of what, what we're seeing here. This totalitarianism <clears throat> is a mix of what we witnessed in the Soviet Union. It was intentionally done and what developed more or less um, on its own in Germany. And I think it's probably true that we, once again, we're witnessing a mix of both. But there's some people in this who are pushing it and others who are playing along, either because they have personal advantages, either because they get paid for it or they have other um, advantages, um, a political career or a, a career in, in the media, whatever. Um, how can you tell? Um, how can you tell who is who is culpable in the legal sense. I mean, criminal law is very simple, in my view, at least. Uh, the civil law um, actions, which will definitely follow for damages, uh, that's much more complicated. But criminal law, all you need is an act. Somebody dies because of that. Of this act. Somebody shoots at, at, at a person. This person is dead. Then you, the second level on which you discuss criminal law is, is there a defense? Is there Self-defense, for example, justification is what this is called. Well, there's no self-defense issue here. There's no justification. And the third level then is, is there an issue with, with well, actual culpability, insanity, for example. Um, this is where most of the criminal cases that are discussed in the, in the general public, this is where they really play out. Because it's usually easy to see somebody killed somebody and it's easy to see if you kill a child this cannot really be self-defense so this all plays out on the exculpation on the insanity defense in many cases how can we ultimately see who is going to be responsible because they wanted this to happen and they were capable of um, controlling themselves because insanity means you either don't know what you're doing or you can't control what you're doing how can we tell this I mean quite obviously this is to me the most important question quite obviously those people who are behind this who wrote the panic paper for example of course in my view but I'm 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 just a lawyer in my view these are psychopaths but that doesn't mean that they're not culpable how do you see this um um well you know in my naive uh opinion i would start to say with i would start to with a quote of freud if i want to answer your question mm -hmm. freud said freud said uh you're responsible for your own unconscious he said <laughs> by which by which he meant that it's not because you do something unconsciously that you're not responsible for it. In a psychological and in a, in a, a judicial way, I believe. Um, so, in, in my opinion, the first question is, who transgressed ethical rules mm -hmm. in this situation? Who transgressed the eternal rules of humanity? Mm -hmm. 
And for, for me, that's always the most important question. I believe everybody can justify why he transgressed certain ethical rules. And we can take that into account if we determine how he should be punished or not. But uh, it's no excuse. It's not, for, for instance, for instance, it's not because someone, when, you, when someone is hypnotized, he usually will stick to the same ethical rules mm. as, the ones he, as the ones he sticks to when he is awake. Mm. So that means, I believe, that being in a mass or being under hypnosis or being in the hypnosis of being a leader of the mass uh, will sometimes be an excuse mm -hmm. to manifest your unethical tendencies, but it will not mean, but, 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 but you will, but it will never push you over ethical boundaries that you want to stick to when you are awake or when you are in a normal state. And I believe that very often the same holds for insane people, although there is a limit there. Mm -hmm. But in, in that case, in that case, if someone is really in a state that we usually refer to as a psychosis, in which he becomes the purely the passive object of his own drives and of his own instincts, sometimes that happens. Mm -hmm. uh, but in that case, it's very clear that the, 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 the person is in an extremely specific and unique state, which becomes clear of all the rest of his behavior as well. So I don't believe that most people, if there are people here who uh, try to uh, do unethical things uh, uh, in this crisis, I don't believe that they will be in such a state, or at least then it should have become clear to everybody who was around them, and they should be able to describe yeah. the wider psychological function of that person in a very detailed way. But uh, usually, if someone is in such a psychotic state, he does not function at all anymore, and he shows very specific uh, deficits in his functioning, which are clear to everybody. Yeah, this is that makes perfect sense to me. Um, the insanity excuse only works for people who either don't know what they're doing or who cannot control their impulses. There are several rules, both here in Germany and in the United States. We have the McNaughton rule. We have the irresistible impulse test. We have the Durham test or New Hampshire test. But this is not what we're dealing with here. Um, this is really what you're saying brings us right back to the Nuremberg trials, because that is how they were resolved, how these trials were resolved. It most of the people who were ultimately sentenced uh, pulled out the defense of, I just followed orders. And that is precisely how they were then defeated or how, how this defense was defeated. Because ultimately, this is what you just said. You talked about the eternal rules. What this really is, is an innate feeling or an innate Mm, capacity to tell right from wrong, to tell good from evil. So if you as a soldier get the order, kill these children, you know you cannot and must not follow this order. So this is what this harkens back to. You know precisely what you're doing, you can control what you're doing, and, and that's what you're saying, you have this innate um, capacity to tell right from wrong. That's why this is not excused, and that's, that's why this is not uh, in any way justified. Thank you very much, Matthias. This was extremely Thank you for inviting me again. It was, it, was not, it was nice to be here again. Yeah, and same here. Yeah, uh, 
we'll be back. <laughs> Thank you, Matthias, and have a great weekend. Bye. Okay. Now we switch. I, I know we kept you waiting for about 15 minutes, Ricardo, but um, I think this was probably interesting for not just our viewers, but for you as well. But now we're going to switch to Ricardo uh, Bozzi. Um, he is the leader of Australia One, the party Australia One. Uh, he's a former Australian Army Special Forces Lieutenant Colonel, and he's going to tell us about the situation in Australia, how China is a threat to Australia and the rest of the world, and he's also going to give us a, a view at the light at the end of the tunnel. Um, so here we are. I know it's very late. I know it's uh, past uh, 10 o'clock p.m. in Australia. <clears throat> So again, I apologize for keeping you waiting, but I hope it was uh, interesting to listen to Matthias. Oh no, good evening. Um, good evening. Uh, it, it was fantastic, actually. It was a lovely uh, insight into their edition uh, of those who are struggling to deal with this. It's, it is very encouraging. And, uh, and it's interesting you finished on, on the morality because I'm writing a piece exactly on that now about the requirement for a moral people being key to Australia One's uh, future success in dealing with not just the physical damage being done to the Australian population, but the psychological damage being done not only individually, but collectively to the entire nation's soul when the, the full depravity of what has been visited upon us is, is revealed. And it's a, it's a, a fascinating insight. Um, in fact, do you mind if I just kick on that point just there? Of because course. it's actually, it, in, it informs it informs the question about how's it going and, and the light at the end of the tunnel, because um, the uh, part of the end state of what Australia One wants to achieve for Australia is a moral, uh, sovereign, self-reliant Christian Western democracy, which is uh, economically powerful, militarily intimidating, politically free, socially cohesive and, and culturally vibrant. And that's not a marketing statement. That's actually a, a to-do list. And it kicks off with a moral people. And in order to execute that or achieve that set of objectives, uh, you know, something like a moral people must be clearly defined. And, and the and, and but in a practical, short sense, the the philosophy must be understood. Natural law, uh, a divine creator, the source of the source of um, the values that underpin it. What is the highest good? But the way I've defined it, and this actually answers the question in a very roundabout way about how's it going in Australia in the light of the end of the tunnel. For me, for the purposes of achieving this for the country, a moral people is defined as a community who through conscious acts of free will achieve the highest good. And I'll say that again because it's I like my definitions to be short but pregnant with meaning. And it, 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 it demands questioning after that. A community who through a conscious acts of free will will be based on agreed values achieving the highest good. But, you know, the accusation could be made that that's a useless definition. It's wholly inadequate because that question could legitimately be asked, doesn't this describe the basis of any group, whether it's a criminal enterprise or a totalitarian regime, as you're discussing? And, of course, it does, because what is the highest good? What are the source of the agreed values? What is the source of free will? And what I like about it is it requires the reader to then start to define for themselves what is the source of free will, what is the source of the agreed values and the highest good. And this, as I was explaining tonight, because I've just come back from a, a three and a half hour um, question and answer session with 1,200 supporters in the city of Newcastle, just north of Sydney. So I've been on my hind legs for the last three and a half hours. And so I'm, I'm, I guess I'm already revving at about 11,000 RPM, good to go. 
but it's fascinating, immoral people. And, and uh, just as an adolescent, and I actually said this tonight, just as an adolescent grows and develops and discards uh, inadequate understandings as they grow older, we as a nation, we are very young in, in a political sense. Uh, we've never had to fight on our own soil for our own country. Uh, and now we find ourselves in a period in history without precedent. It really is by every metric. And getting getting the message through, you were talking about leading horses to water. It's an interesting process uh, watching the people slowly understand that all that they have trusted all of their lives is now up for questioning everything, every aspect of it. There isn't one thing that you can now take for granted. Now, that's that's a shock to most people, but it's terribly um, liberating for the for the soul to start to realise I must take responsibility. And so it, it, start, it forces them to ask the question, what is the highest good? And we get these agreed values and, and, and the source of it all. So that, that explains the Australian experience. I suppose I'm going to ask you first, your second question first. What's the light at the end of the tunnel? I tell you what, the globalists misread the Australian character quite profoundly. They thought we were uh, somnambulant sheep just watching sport and, and hoping everything would go away. And what they don't realise is that we're very slow to anger, very slow to anger. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's a wonderful quality to have, but sometimes you get a bit frustrated and you say, come on, let's go. But the beauty of it is, and we're actually a creation in part of the, the globalists, they've taught us in trying to make us as soft as possible. We've really adopted that egalitarian mindset, what is fair, what is right, what is good, what is the highest good. And they've created their own monster because we already had, the Australian people already had this fair go concept. It's an Australian expression, give them a fair go, leave something for somebody else, you know, don't take the lot. And so the globe was built upon that by shoving down our throats like they did the rest of the world, what is right and what is wrong. And it fit in nicely with us. So, and so when the globalists started behaving in a less than fair manner, it really struck a chord in a, in a very negative way with many Australians, and they started to stand up. But we take the hit, we take the hit, we take the hit. It's in our national character. Um, Rommel pounded Tobruk mercilessly, and the Australians and the New Zealanders just dug in, and they took the hit. They'd sneak out of a night time, and uh, much respected as he was, he had tremendous respect for the Australians and New Zealanders after that because he just admired their tenacity to hang on under a terrible bombardment. And, um, and that's exactly what we do. We take hits. We don't start wars, but by Christ, we can finish them. And that's where we are now. We're getting a lot of Australians waking up slowly, but they are waking up. And it's, um, it's a very encouraging uh, place we find ourselves in. Now, I'm sure you've been getting a lot of negative uh, press about what's happening. And that's true. But we understand, many of us do, a good percentage, in fact, understand that this is all they have left. The, the globalists have lost... They, if they were in charge of the narrative, they were controlling the story, um, they would still be in charge. But here's what you're probably not hearing. The Premier of one of our states of New South Wales, Gladys Berestchiklian, was removed. The Chief of Police, the, the Commissioner of New South Wales Police, the same state, uh, was removed. Um, MPs, members of parliament are resigning by the handful. The threats by the state premiers are so ludicrous now as to be laughable. Um, you know, $20,000 fine for turning up to work without being vaxxed, 5000 from one state, $5,000 a day for turning up in another state for turning up to work unvaxxed. Um, it, it, it is just silly. 
And we know that all they have left is generating fear. Now they're still pursuing their agenda, but they have lost, we have won. This, this, the good news is in the short term, and I'll stop talking so you can press me for some questions and some clarification if you wish. But this could be over in, in certainly in months and perhaps even weeks, potentially, because now the uh, the injection of children, and we've had reports, although I can't verify them exactly, but we've had reports of maybe five or six children have died. And uh, the Australians are, are waking up and they are very quick to protect their young. And uh, they're going to have a very hard time pushing back because once the Australians get ahead of steam up, they're very difficult to control. As I said, we don't start them, but we can finish fights quite nicely. So, yes, bad things are happening here, but the people are motivated. The people are waking up. Even those that have had one or two injections are now saying, that's enough. This is ridiculous. Hang on a minute. This is this is just stupid. And uh, and so I'm optimistic. I really am. Uh, there's damage to be dealt with, but I think, I think we're on the right side of this war now. Is it... Um because Matthias just explained to us uh, when Viviane asked, well, what if the other side pushes harder and harder uh, in order to provoke us into, um, into a violent reaction? Um, and um, Matthias said he doesn't believe that's going to happen. And uh, as an example, he talked about Macron who was literally calling for war against the unvaccinated. And he says, this did not, this wasn't taken well by most people because even the vaccinated don't want to go to war and they don't want to go after those who are not vaccinated. Is that uh, true for Australia as well? Because you're saying they're taking the hit, taking the hit, um, but there is a point at which they're, they've, they're, everyone is going to decide I have to fight back. Is is that has it come to that in Australia with the introduction of um, mandatory vaccinations for children? Was that a red line that pushed even those who were in line with the government uh, towards us, towards the resistance? Yes. yes, without a doubt, the vaccination of children is 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 that line in the sand mm -hmm. and they have attempted many many times uh to provoke us into violent response because that's what they were after mm -hmm. they wanted us to respond to give them the excuse to come down even harder with their draconian measures but once again they misread us we were people were horrified i mean there's countless videos of, of men women children being thrown to the ground as if you, you know the way you would treat a, an armed and dangerous and violent criminal And what it did do, it shocked and horrified us. But the Australians, once again, we are very, we are very measured, believe it or not. And um, we were horrified, but it didn't provoke that violent response. And they were egging it on. In fact, they even passed legislation which allows our um, Department of Homeland Security to, to interfere with other people's websites, fabricate posts, remove posts, edit posts to create that sort of environment in order to, to paint a group like us. And we were very middle of the road nationalist party, national in the sense of looking after ourselves. We're not internationalist in our view. We obviously engage with others, but, and they're trying to paint us as some right-wing extremists, which is just insane. There's nothing right-wing about us. So they have attempted to put, to uh, provoke us and every attempt has failed, no matter how grotesque it was. We've had two people uh, self-immolate in the city of Melbourne, which is probably the most lockdown city in the country they um within a couple of weeks of each other they burnt themselves to death in their cars 
Um, again, people were horrified. But once again, we, they, we have not responded as they would have wished. They would have liked some lunatic to grab a weapon and fire a shot. Nobody did that. Um, they know. And I, I've explained to my people, I'm probably the only political leader in the country who can actually mm-hmm. run a, 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 an efficient coup d'etat, given my military background. Mm-hmm. And not that we ever want to, because that is a wound we don't want to open, because that wound in a, in a nation's history never fully heals. But even if I wanted to, I, you look at the, 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 uh, the geographic disposition of the populations, you look at all the factors involved, you couldn't run a coup d'etat in Australia. It just wouldn't work, any, even if you wanted to. All you would do, and I've said this over and over again, if anybody did decide to grab a weapon and do something silly, it would just send the entire movement back. But there's never been a real concern. I'm sure there are people who think it, it might occur, but no, they have never managed to provoke us into violence, which has frustrated them immensely. Mm-hmm. Um, they they have misread us. And I think it puts the lie to the story that the globalists have been selling about humanity generally. We are this cancer on the planet. We're racist, misogynist, violent, uh, and, and we need to be removed. Well, actually, they're just projecting their own qualities onto us. The average human is a decent uh, person. They have very modest goals to work, get married, buy a house, have children, educate the children, go on holidays a couple of times a year, perhaps, and leave a nest egg for the kids when they pass. I mean, it's not like we are raping the planet. They are the rapists, and we are just, we are just good, decent folk. Uh, and they have been telling us this lie that we are this, this awful breed that's destroying the planet they need a great reset and we know it's a lie because they have piled upon us you know egregious acts of violence and and deception and betrayal and yet we patiently say we will we will do this in a in a non-violent non-cooperative way because we know what is right and wrong and what they are doing is wrong and we will win and sure it's it's frustrating and it's tiring and, and uh and some people i guess will never wake but as I tell our supporters, we don't need everybody. We just need enough because we will win this in the end. We will outlast them. But, you know, I think it's also a problem they have with the psychological structure of, of like, the two groups, basically. Because, like, you know, Professor Ballach, he, he's, uh, they did some research on, he's like... A professor of psychology. Yeah. So he did some research on the, the structure of the people who get vaccinated you know, the psychological structure. And it's it's actually a lot of people who want to be socially accepted, you know, who want to be like softly swim with the crowd and they don't want to have any stress. They don't want to have any, you know, be aggressive to others. It's actually like a rather, um, you know, um, complying soft. I mean, you know, like in that sense, I mean, looking, okay, they've been mass formatted, so it's maybe a little bit different. But in general, you know, it's these people who are, the less um, renitent and the less, you know, um, aggressive folks to some extent, you know, they don't want to have any trouble. And when you look at us, you know, we are the ones who, I mean, I'm sure that's the same thing for the Australians. We believe in the dignity of the human, the human being, you know, of our basic law, of our, you know, this, this, the, the protection of our individual freedoms. So we are in general not the ones who would go there and like, you know, just chase you off your land because you respect you as a human being. And I wouldn't go out there and just like hit your, chop your head off because I think that I have the right to do now because you're a dignified, uh, you know, um, human being. And that's the last thing I would do. So in general, with the resistance, there's also not really 
um, do we want to, we just don't want to play along and we think this is wrong and we point our fingers to it, but we don't want to be aggressive ourselves. So that it's very hard to get these two groups to start violently, um, you know, working against one another. So I think that's also one of another dilemma they have of, by, when they're trying to in, in, ignite um, like a civil war or something like that. They're working yeah, you're exactly. They're working yeah. hard at this. You've probably you've seen it on television how they're trying to start a war in the Ukraine or in Southeast Asia, but thus far the people are not playing along. Their understanding of, of human psychology is almost first year psych student level. I mean, it's I'm serious. Yeah. I mean, it's not my it's not my long suit. But all they did was raise a few children to, to adulthood, and, and you and you watch the process in action. And you know what you're saying about those who are likely to, to to be motivated or be accepted by the crowd. You know they have an uh, an external locus of control, and the rest of us may have an internal locus of control, and we are less less moved to 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 pursue um, acceptance by others. But aggression isn't necessarily a byproduct or or, or a cohesive inhabitant of that psychological mindset. Um, it's sometimes it's just like a limpet on a rock. It's it's just not going to move. Mm -hmm. It's not going to fight back, but it's not going to move. And that's where the globalists have really failed miserably. I mean, their plan is exquisitely designed and patiently implemented, but it's it's flawed in its understanding of the human, the human mind and the psychology. And the and the the one part that they um, they really misread <clears throat> is that uh, the Christian ethic and and uh, Australia is a Christian country. Over 50% of the country identifies as Christian. And so, it, and, and it's our culture is Christian. At the center of every culture, as you can imagine, it has many parts that at the heart of every culture, which determines its, its real future is its spiritual beliefs. And the Christian ethic is what permeates every, every aspect of Australia. And I was interviewing uh, an old communist union boss who became a Christian. And he remembers that when he was a young bloke, and uh, fully imbued with the, the communist uh, theories. He was he wanted to take on the Christians. One of the old communists said to him, oh, don't wake up the Christians, because once you wake them, they are fearless. Because when we, and we go back to that, what is a moral people? And we talk about what is the source of their free will? What is the source of their values? What is what is the highest good? A Christian will grow, go straight back to their God, which is for them pure love and for which they will do they will sacrifice, not kill, but sacrifice all. And so the old the old communists said, never wake up the Christians. And once again, we know that the globalists have specifically attacked the Christian religions for decades uh, for exactly this reason, But it, and, and they, they penetrated the churches uh, they, in a depraved way. Uh, they undermined revealed religion with social religion, and this was part of their process. We understand that. But at its heart, they failed to understand the Christian mindset and how deeply rooted it sits in, in, a, in a human being, and they will sacrifice. They won't kill, they will sacrifice. And again, without realising it, this, this, this reluctance to fight, I can certainly say on the part of the Australians, I don't know other nations, but certainly on the part of the Australians, is this, without even realising it, this uh, grace, this turn the other cheek, this what we call a fair go in a very uh, Australian vernacular kind of a way. But that's why, and they misread it badly, and uh, and that's why I think we're going to win. It's it, We rely on that when it comes down to the heart of it, you know, am I my brother's keeper? Well, yes, we are. We know that and we do that. We take care of each other. And as I think you said, Rainer, it's, it is instinctive 
You know, children are not tabula rasa, blank slates. We know that. Again, anybody that's raised a child knows that they are born with predispositions and attitudes <laughs> and, and objectives in life. And so, again, their understanding is quite weak. And because of that, we we are going to, we're, we're in a very strong position to achieve what we want to achieve, which is, as I said, very modest goals. We are sovereign beings. We have the right to determine our future. We have the right to determine how we are governed and by whom. And and there are limits beyond which we will not go and they should not uh, progress. So, I'm look, there's a lot of pain to come. The cleanup uh, of this horrendous situation, as I said, will take years. But the in terms of the outcome, certainly in Australia, and I, and I think it's been said, we're almost like the test case. They wanted to get us down first and then, um, like a franchise, take it to the other countries to see how they could work it. Well, if we were their first model, they're going to be highly disappointed because they're not going to win. They have already lost. We are winning. A1, our, our organisation, we're just a, a small group of, let's face it, a group of nobodies from nowhere. And in two years, we've gone from that to having tens of thousands, you know, hundred thousand supporters internationally known and respected. And the fact that you wanted to interview us, A1, Rhino, was a huge compliment to us because we've been desperate to, you know, we'd love to interview you because you, anytime, <laughs> what you are, what you are doing, you know, we watch, we watch you quite closely and you're a heroic character here in Australia. I'm not being overly complimentary. It's just true. And the fact that you wanted to speak to us was just wonderful. And it's a sign that of how much success we as Australians, forget Australia one and the party, but we are having and getting the word out that uh, we can win this and we will win this and there's a way to do it. And it's 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 a moral a moral solution. It's a patient and measured solution. And uh, and we will not compromise our decency and our humanity to win. And it's easy enough to do that. It's it's the difference between killing for your cause and dying for your cause. And it comes back to that Christian ethic where Christ, you know, he gave it all on the cross. And that's that's the model the Christians follow, whether they know it or not. I think you pointed to an extremely important difference between them and us. It is not us who are polluting this world, who are taking advantage of other people, who are robbing and stealing. It's them. Um, this corona thing is just a diversionary tactic. Uh, we're going to show this in our international criminal trial. It's just a diversionary tactic because they want to get us, they want to distract our attention from what's really going on. How this criminal, highly criminal, um, financial, they call themselves a financial industry, which is a misnomer because they're, they're just robber barons. Um, how this financial mafia has looted and plundering, uh, plundered our public coffers. The first time they tried to do that was 11 years ago when the housing and financial crisis erupted with Lehman collapsing. That is when we should have stepped in. Well, we didn't because we thought that our leaders, our governments would do the job for us, not understanding that our governments are not our governments anymore, but they've been taken over by these uh, globalists, by Mr. Global. Uh, and even then, They tried to distract our attention by making the swine flu, which was ultimately, as Wolfgang explained to the world's public, a mild flu, by making this 
by changing the definition of a pandemic and making this into a pandemic. Same thing happened again uh, at the end of uh, 2019. Again, they needed something to distract our attention because as we have just learned, a brother of mine is a banker. I used to, ba uh, used to be a banker myself. He's an American banker, used to work for Deutsche Bank just like myself. And he says, you know what happened uh, when they had this um, uh, global bankers meeting at, what is it, Jackson Hole in Wyoming? There is a, and we have this, we're gonna publish this. There's a summary of the, the world's financial situation by BlackRock, and they explicitly said, "My, I'm using my own words here, oh my God, this is going to implode. We're going to have to come up with some drastic measures. Drastic measures meaning we have to distract the people's attention from this. So when this whole picture uh, will come out, and with all the people, in, even in Australia now, um, realizing that they have to have they have to exercise their own free will have to ask questions they're going to understand what's going on and that is when they're going to know it's not us who are uh, destroying this earth it's the other ones they're projecting their own evil deeds on us once this is clear and i think we're very close to this we're going to do the right thing where all of us are going to rise up it's going to be in a peaceful manner because as you said anything else would probably be self-destructive that's what they want us to do but um i'm surprised to see how you're so calmly explaining because you're a former uh special uh services um special forces rather uh soldier um i was a soldier and i tend not to turn the other cheek um i don't do that uh but i do know that it would be completely counter-effective, uh, contr uh, it, it would be completely disastrous if we now turned um, and, and decided to fight back in a violent way. Well, what we have to do is expose everything. As you said, most people are beginning to understand. We have to ask, we have to, ask, we have to question everything. All of the things that they taught us are probably lies, but we're, we're on to them. The big thing is how much power do they have over the police forces and the military? How is that in in Australia? Uh, in terms of the uh, the police force, almost exclusive. The what, what I refer to, and I do this intentionally. I'm quite quite rude. The the Masonic filth that has penetrated the the police forces and that the state police and the federal police is almost complete. Wow. Certainly, there are many there are many junior uh, junior police officers who are not quite there yet. But in order to progress beyond a certain rank, say sergeant and above, you've really got to be part of the crowd. Now, as, as we know, many of the, the junior level Masons think it's just a, a gentleman's club for pro progressing your career. But we also know that um, depending on how depraved you are, you can work your way up from ped through pedophilia through to satanic ritual abuse. And the people at the top are quite, quite sick. And so my estimation is that just about every state police force is is thoroughly penetrated. That includes the uh, and the federal police as well. <coughs> and as I explained tonight, that the uh, the good police and there are many good police in there as well. They are going to have to rehabilitate the reputation of the police in the minds of the people. Because I can tell you, the uh, many of us used to look at the police and and we had a very good relationship. They were genuinely. Uh, there to protect the people. But now you see a cop car in the back of your, your rearview mirror, 
and they aren't pleasant thoughts going through the head. And yes, I, I turn the other cheek in one respect, but I can tell you, Rainer, <laughs> when the time comes, Nuremberg 2.0 in Australia is going to be, there'll be more than a pound of flesh be taken out because the people will demand it. We'll make sure that we deliver it. They will pay. But the, the police force, the police forces are thoroughly um, penetrated. The military, um, the way I understand it, uh, that you the three services. Army is fully is is uh, to get above a certain rank. You've got to be a mason. Navy has its own depraved little club. Air Force is slightly different, but again, they're controlled. They follow orders. The best and brightest don't get to the top because you don't want a strong-willed, uh, thoughtful, intelligent individual as chief of army. You want somebody who will do what he's told. You need a uh, not too bright, presents well, looks good, and can follow orders. And the orders don't come from government and the comes from somewhere else so we're in it we're in a, a bit of a problem there but that that can be resolved that that in and of itself is just another issue to deal with down the track when when the collapse does come um see for our, from our perspective anybody that's been a mason is guilty of treason or sedition depending on how bad it is because they've taken an oath contrary to that to which they should have uh, taken and served the nation and been loyal to the nation and so we'll be uh, we've already anticipated how we're going to approach this and we predicate all our plans on having to do it on our own. But if if we get assistance from overseas, from groups like yourself, for example, uh, that'd be more than welcome to make sure we advance in a measured and lawful and legal way. Because again, we have to deal with this properly. But that doesn't mean we're going to be the least bit squeamish when it comes to meeting out the correct punishment. And one of our first policies is the reintroduction of the death penalty for, for treason and life imprisonment without the possibility of parole for high levels of sedition. And those both of those definitions have been watered down by progressive governments because <laughs> they know they're for the high job if they ever get caught. So, yeah, that, we, 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 we suspect that both are fully penetrated and that's why they have failed to respond to what are patently unlawful commands. And the Australian military, like just about every, certainly the, the Western militaries on the planet, they are required by military law to disobey unlawful commands. It's not a choice. They must disobey. And every soldier knows that. And as you said, if you're told to go shoot kids, <laughs> I'm sorry, but that's just, that, that's not a grey area at all. That is not a grey area. Uh, injecting them just blindly. You know, oh, I was doing my duty. It's a common battle cry here. I was doing my duty. It wasn't a defence at Nuremberg 1.0 and it won't be a defence in Nuremberg 2.0. Wow. And um, I have a question. How do you know about this like Mason connection? I was going to same question because we've heard all these rumours from not just Australia, but other parts of the world as well, including Germany. Do you have concrete evidence for that? Does it, is it, do, do you know that in order to climb up the ranks, you have to be part of this? Yeah, I can't reveal exactly how I know what I know. Of course not. Yeah. But I have, yeah, but I have sufficient personal experience and knowledge of the system to make that statement quite um, quite confidently, as well as my own experiences. Um, intelligence, absolutely um, <laughs> trusted A1 intelligence, not A1 as in our organisation, but reliable and uh, and good. We know exactly how it works. Um, I'm not sure if you remember, but I made a, a statement back in October saying you've got till the 1st of November to come clean, join on the good side. If you don't, you've signed your own death warrant. Mm. <laughs> and people said, oh, well, nobody, nobody that didn't have any effect. Yes, it did. And, and we received sufficient sound intelligence to know exactly 
how that has been working and it has worked for years. And by years, I mean decades and decades and decades, and they cover for each other. Uh, and they always have covered for each other. That is um, that is actually quite disturbing uh, because these, of course, we have known that there are these secret societies, in, including the Freemasons. And we have seen in our own party here in Germany, um, we're the... We're the um, um, leaders of Vivian, Vivian and myself are now the leaders of this party as a membership of um, I think some 32 or 34,000 people which is pretty good for German standards uh, and we've seen concrete evidence for some Freemasons having infiltrated this party however we've exposed them which wasn't so hard to do but you know, I used to think that this is a minor problem but it doesn't seem to be a minor problem it seems to be pervasive um, mm. Not just here, but if you, um, I mean, what you're saying is that both the police and the military is thoroughly infiltrated by these secret societies, in particular the Freemasons. Yeah, at the highest level, absolutely. Mm -hmm. When you talk about commissioners and assistant commissioners in the police, and when you talk about generals, admirals and air marshals, yes, the secret societies are well and truly in there. Mm -hmm. Well. <coughs> but again... My perspective, it's just another problem to solve. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> and and uh, we just look at it logically, dispassionately. How do we how do we get here? How do we fix it? How do we stop it happening again? And we go through those that three-step process with every policy that we have to design for the nation. Mm -hmm. uh, and and, uh, and we just come up with the solutions and we will just progressively make sure, for example, uh, no Mason will ever serve in any government position ever again under penalty of either imprisonment for sedition or death penalty for treason mm -hmm. it's really straightforward because you can't you cannot be a slave to two masters yeah. as as an old book says and uh, they either serve the country or they don't and it, it's it's this the the game that they've been playing for for decades now the political parties are the same it's just a game uh, well that's about to stop the people are sovereign and this is a, a concept that many australians don't quite get because australians aren't generally politically active and therefore aware their general understanding of a, of a good proportion of Australians, many do, but many don't understand the, the fundamentals of sovereignty and the role of a representative government and where the sovereignty is derived. And uh, and so part of what I do when I'm speaking to the crowds is I remind them that they are sovereign, yeah. that the government only, only governs with their consent. And this is genuinely shocking to some people. I remember doing a – I was speaking to a group not far from where I am now a couple of years back, and I was talking about sovereignty. A young barmaid, and I love telling this story because it's it's quite instructive. A young barmaid was pouring drinks but had one ear leaning over listening to what was being said in the, the conference room. And she came up to me later and said, but I'm just a barmaid. And I said, yes, and you are sovereign. The government's power is derived from you. And the look on her face was, was a revelation. Her eyes were like dinner plates as, as it dawned on her that she was actually the source of the government's power. Because many people actually believe that the prime minister can do what they want. They're not constrained by constitutions or conventional or, or any moderating factor. Uh, and so it's it's a very much an educative process. And we all started ignorance. So it's not like, you know, we are better than anybody else. Everyone at some point believed what we were told. And at some point, at different times in our lives, we woke up and realized, hang on a minute, it's, there's something not right here. And so this educative process is, is foundational to our success, in fact, because I spent a lot of time, and so do the, the state coordinators, coordinators of the organization, spent a lot of time explaining to um, an otherwise unknowing public exactly what's going on and why. 
and what the solutions will be. And once they get it, it's it's quite straightforward because our party, and, and we want to roll this out to the entire nation, we make sure that the power rests with the people. It's not a top-down organisation. Certainly, you know, we, we have the structure, we drive the policies, and we want to make sure that we have a view for the nation, which is sound. And if they agree with it, then join us, but the power rests with them. They elect their representatives. They can sack their representatives if they let them down. Um, and so on. And so that's something we're going, to, we're going to roll out to the nation when we become the party of government, and I'm confident we will, because the other parties are, they're fetid carcasses. They stink, and, and their members are leaving them in droves. Yeah. And because, because we are not trying to grab their members, what we're saying is, this is your party. Please take control of your country. Take your country back at a local level, at an electorate level, at a town, city, state, and nation. And they love the message because it's, they're the ones that'll be doing the work. I think that's what um, it's so all about, Ricardo. That's really the main point. It's our sovereignty. It's not theirs. Theirs is derived from us. And if we pull the plug, that's the end of them. Um, that is exactly what we're trying to do in this country, what I know our American friends are doing, and also our Canadian friends are doing. Explain to the people something that should be self-understood, that it's us who have the power. We don't need anyone to give us any right. We have liberty. Uh, we have a free will. It is nothing that the government can give us. And if they try to take it away from us, they have to give us a very good reason for that. They can't take it away. In some, in some cases, maybe it makes sense to infringe these rights to a certain degree. But um, what is happening right now is they're trying to get rid of democracy in favor of totalitarianism, and that must not happen. So that is, in my view, the most important point to make, that it's us, it's the people. It's um, That's how the American Constitution uh, starts, we the people. That is what the East Germans chanted and brought the wall down. We are the people. That's what it's all about. It's not them. They're the ones who are trying to, who have been looting and plundering our public coffers for decades. And this mm. is this has got to stop. Um, I think it was Margaret Thatcher who, <clears throat> when she was in office, in complete disgust of the EU, and as we now know, she was correct. She she said, "I want my money back. Uh, we should we should get our sovereignty back because these bastards have no right to take it from us." Um, there's one other thing that I wanted to ask you about. What what do you what do you think is the role of the Chinese in this? The Chinese, um, they are the, the test bed for the control system to be rolled out across the planet. Mm -hmm. Bit of history that most people won't know about China, <clears throat> and it is, it's important. World War II, Chiang Kai-shek was fighting, the, the democratic Chinese leader was fighting alongside Mao Zedong, who was no, but it was just a criminal thug that was placed in charge, a murdering criminal thug. Now, General Wiedemeyer was the American general um, overseeing the Chinese theater of operations. And as the war was drawing to an end, General George C. Marshall, the then chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff of the United States Army, told Wiedemeyer to make sure that Mao Zedong's communists formed 50% of the post-war Chinese government. And Wiedemeyer said, you're insane. Mao Zedong's just a murdering criminal. You know, we've got Chiang Kai-shek. This is the guy we should be backing. Well, deep state as it was back then was still already in operation. And uh, George C. Marshall successfully stripped Chiang Kai-shek 
of their armaments and their capacity to fight, and they raced off to Thailand, uh, to Taiwan, as we know, mm-hmm. and uh, they effectively handed 600 million Chinese uh, over to Mao Zedong. Now, over the the course of the post-war period, they refined the Chinese system uh, in order to to create this. First of all, their primary objective was to create an enemy for them to fight against, so they could create this this fictitious bipolar world where they could create wars and threats in order to do what they do. As you know, wars are big business and you need somebody to be frightened of and scared of legitimately or otherwise. And so China was was developed that way. And then China was continually developed. And so it was used for many, many reasons. But towards the end, China was developed. And as we know, the Chinese Communist Party is not a sovereign government. It's a criminal cartel. But the, the social credit system has been developed to a very sophisticated degree and tested in China. And so that's the test bed for the control system. You know, we know that communism is not a system designed to, to, to free the, the the worker from servitude anymore, that unchecked capitalism is, is the only way to, to, to free the masses from poverty. Mm. But that's what they wanted to sell us. And so China, is it a threat? Yes, of course it is, because it is still a powerful adversary, whether you like it or not. But its main role was to be the test bit for social credit and then the enforcer and builder of the, the, the systems around which the globalists were going to physically control the globe. But as in terms of are they a national threat to, to our sovereignty, that's not their role in life. Their role is to do the bidding of the globalists. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Their, their systems, their army is large and, and they don't have to be good. Korea was a measure of that. They would just send human wave attacks. They didn't care how many they killed. They have complete disregard for human life. The Navy is growing uh, quite rapidly, although uh, sophistication isn't their long suit. It looks impressive, but like many armies and navies and air forces around the world, just don't press them too hard because they won't function terribly well. So are they are they dangerous? Yes. Are they a threat? Yes. Are they in a conventional set, sense, a threat to the sovereignty of the nations? No, they are the test bed for the globalists. Uh, and if you, if they are attacked and destroyed in the right way, and I don't mean a, a war against China, a conventional military war, if the control systems are removed, Chinese Communist Party, the leadership of the PLA, uh, the, the People's Liberation Army, then it ceases to be a threat because a threat comprises two parts, capability and will. Capability can be attacked, uh, will can be attacked, but if we take away the leadership of China, then the, uh, there is no threat. The capability remains, but the threat doesn't uh, doesn't exist because there is no will to use it against us, if that makes sense. They're trying to convince us it's a conventional bogeyman that we must now rearm and get ready for a, a kinetic war. Complete nonsense, complete lies. They're selling us another nothing burger, to use an American expression. Mm-hmm. So... In other words, we have to be um, we have to be aware of their military power, um, but um, even though it's probably not very sophisticated, but very large. Um, but if you take if we manage to take away their control system, their social credit system, etc., then this whole house of cards, even in China, will probably collapse. Right? Correct. You cut the head off the snake, and the snake won't want to do. Mm-hmm. It just won't know that it's 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 designed that way, top-down direction. They need direction, and you can already see you already you can already see that to some extent, because the globalists who have been directing activities in Australia, it's almost 
like that line is being cut because the politicians, our politicians, I mean, to use an Australian expression, they couldn't organise a, uh, they couldn't find a keg of beer in a brewery. <laughs> They're grossly incompetent. And so without clear directions from their masters, they don't know what to do. And that, that partially explains the lunatic instructions and inconsistent and incoherent directions that we're getting almost on a daily basis. Yeah. It's laughable trying to understand what they expect us to do next. And so if we cut the head off the snake, the snake is still there, but it's lost its its danger. So um, the trap is to believe that there's a conventional war threat from China. Uh, the smart move is certainly to understand, as you say, it is a threat, but it should be dealt with in a completely different way. And certainly don't believe the lies. If, if they say we have to go to war with China, any anybody saying that, you know they're, they're a paid-up member of the globalist Mm-hmm. organization or at least taking orders from them it's complete nonsense that makes perfect sense i uh, it makes perfect sense if i if i put this in perspective with everything i've read uh of course i don't have any first-hand experience the last time i was in china is probably three or four years ago when i uh, went to hong kong and then into mainland china in order to interview a witness uh, for one of my cases a, co a corruption case um and um I got the feeling, for the, the first thing that I was extremely surprised about, because I had no idea what was going on in China, is if you go into their larger cities, they're no different from any of our Western larger cities. The other thing is, if you go into the countryside, you sometimes feel as though you're moving back a century or two in time. And the third thing is that they're trying to control the entire people in their country by all kinds of different means of electronic sur surveillance. And that seems to be their weak spot because people don't like that. That Some of them seem to have adjusted to it, but I spoke with some of the people there. Um, some of the people who, um, who uh, have production facilities in mainland China, but really live in Taiwan. And uh, they can, they, they've been doing this for centuries, uh, not centuries, but for decades now. And uh, they have a much clearer view of what's going on. They're saying, yeah, people seem to have adjusted to it, but under the, under the surface, there's lots of people who are in full disagreement with these surveillance um, uh, uh, techniques. Uh, which they which they if they had a chance would immediately fight so maybe we're going to just help them sounds good to me <laughs> okay well ricardo i don't want to keep you any longer but it was a real pleasure of very important insights we're getting from you uh let's just keep our connection and then we'll topple them both in australia and here it's all of us oh, connecting absolutely. that'll do the trick Yeah, no, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. And yes, I will give you a call and we'll, uh, we'll in do an interview with you and let us uh, give us a few tips on Nuremberg 2.0. That'd be much, much appreciated by the Australian people. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you very, thank you so very much. much and have a great weekend. Thank you. I will. Thank you to both of you. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, willst du die nächste Introduction machen? Yeah, now we have a, uh, our next guest is uh, Dina McLeod. Um, McLeod. Um, she's a medical peer review publication expert 
and she's the principal and founder of Kaleidoscope Strategic, an independent media uh, medical research firm that supports Canadian clinic, uh, clinicians mm -hmm. in preparing world-class evidence-based reviews that um, advance patient care nationally and internationally. And she's also the chair of the Strategic Advisory Committee at Canadian COVID Care Alliance. Um, yeah, it's great that you're here with us today. And you've done Thank some. Thank you for having me. Sure. You've it's done some important work, I think, on like reviewing what's going on with the vaccination, um, well, the injection stuff, basically. And you've taken a yeah. closer look at the Pfizer trials, right? Yes, we've, we've definitely taken a deep dive into the Pfizer data. One of the things uh, that uh, our organization has been doing in the area of cancer research for over 20 years, we've written a bit, we've written about 40 peer-reviewed uh, guidelines and uh, treatment reviews in cancer. Mm -hmm. uh, and so uh, what our group specializes in, we've got uh, a, a group of um, PhDs and MDs in, uh, you know, molecular oncology, you know, pathophysiology, clinical oncology. Um, and uh, what we love to do is take a look at data, analyze studies and try and figure out, you know, what you can and can say and what is and isn't supported in terms of proof mm -hmm. uh, for a given guideline or treatment. And so, um, of course, we felt that it was very important, um, you know, when this pandemic occurred and when vaccines were being presented as the main way to get through a pandemic, uh, to take a look, a careful look at the data and, and to scrutinize it to see if it is exa saying exactly what uh, the messaging that we've been told has been saying, like whether the data actually supports the messaging. And, and so that's when our group took a deep dive. We've been working in collaboration with the Canadian COVID Care Alliance, which is a fantastic group, a very diverse group of experts with, uh, you know, expertise in immunology, um, uh, uh, testing, um, virology, uh, vaccinology. Um, so it's been a real privilege to be working really closely with them. And, uh, and that's when our organization worked with the CCCA to develop the six month video, which I believe you guys have seen, uh, and which I'd love to walk uh, through with you today and, and answer any of the questions that you have. Yes. Yeah. So um, would you like me to present the data and how long would you like to spend uh, going over that versus just chatting about the findings? And would you like to talk about it interactively or would you like to kind of run through it and then chat at the end? Um, how long is your presentation if you just do it? It's about 30 minutes. Yeah, it's, that's perfect. Um, I think that's good. Because let's, just, let's just uh, play it by ear. Walk us through the presentation yeah. and maybe we can ask questions if, if they come up. Yeah, if you have questions when they come up, maybe we'll just kind of pause and I'll, I'll expand upon it because if you're not used to clinical data, you might have questions or your viewers might have questions. And so, you know, that might be a good way to do it. So we have our clinical Yay. expert Wolfgang with us. So oh, he's going to be able to Welcome, ask our questions. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, between the two of us, um, we'll take a look at it. So let me just queue up my presentation. Do I have screen sharing capabilities you should, here? Yeah. Okay. Desktop. There we go. Just yeah. let me know when you can see my slide presentation mm -hmm. and I'll queue it up. 
And by the All way, right. like while we were speaking to um, Professor Desmet, another of our streams got shut uh, shut down. Yeah. So it's re really interesting. I mean, talking of pa paranoia. Yeah. You know, this like is what we're dealing with. Professor Desmet mm -hmm. is the perfect expert on paranoia, and we're seeing it oh. on the other side. They're panicking. That's why I still think that we're on the right track, and that's why I still think, and even more so, uh, that there's all the more reason to be very optimistic about what's what's uh, developing right now. But please go ahead. Yeah, so this is uh, our presentation, and it's called More Harm Than Good. Um, and what we're... I, I've already mentioned that um, I'm Deanna, you've done a wonderful introduction, and so we're part of the Canadian COVID Care Alliance, which has 500 independent Canadian doctors, scientists, and health practitioners, and we work collaboratively in Canada to look through the evidence um, and to see whether some of the guidance that we're receiving in Canada uh, is sufficiently supported by data, and also to do our very best to get good data out to Canadians so that they can make informed choices. And uh, some of the things that our organization is passionate about are the doctor-patient relationship and personalized care. And I'm just going to pause for a moment and talk about personalized care mm -hmm. coming from my area of expertise, which is clinical oncology. Um, we've been working in the area of cancer, and what we pride ourselves in is understanding a patient's clinical history, um, you know, clinical biomarkers, uh, even, uh, you know, what's driving their cancers and taking a numerous um, treatments and tailoring them to the personal situation that they have. So basically personalized care means customizing a treatment based on your particular profile. And it's very fascinating that at a time when there's levels of sophistication in medicine that have never had that have never been achieved in previous times that we've turned around and decided that there's just one treatment that should be applied to every single person in the globe. Um, and that that is the only way forward out of a pandemic or a complex medical problem. And just basic knowledge of human physiology and diversity, we all know that it is very unlikely that one treatment can be beneficial or safe for everybody. And so that's one of the things that we find very fascinating, just from a, a principal position uh, on the approach taken. And that makes us pause and look more carefully at the data to see uh, if it is possible that one thing could actually solve a problem, the medical problem of an entire globe. So we're really passionate about informed consent and informed consent by definition means that you're given all the information about a treatment, the risks and the benefits, and that you're given treatment alternatives if they're available, including no treatment. Uh, and again, that seems to be something that we've decided to put aside uh, during this pandemic. And our messaging is very clear. And at least in Canada here, uh, we are having people, uh, you know, there's mandates for vaccines and we're not even being offered in many times people aren't even giving medical exemptions even if the the study that was used to uh, support and approve this agent wasn't even they weren't even included so for instance a good example of that is pregnant women uh, so we believe in a free and uh, science free and open scientific discourse so we're here presenting our data if you have any questions if you have any challenges to us we'd love to be able to discuss those with you we think that scientific discourse is the key to discovery and it always has been debate uh, and the exchange of ideas and refining ideas together. And of course, we believe in safe and effective therapies, and specifically that includes vaccines. 
So um, when we look at data, we want to be relying on the highest level of evidence. Um, many of the policies that have been taken place often rely, or at least the guidance um, for lockdowns, for instance, relies on real world data where we're tracking cases uh, in a population. And if they're going up and going down, then we make decisions about that, whether our hospitals are filling up or whether our hospitals aren't filling up, then we make decisions. But um, those uncontrolled studies or observational studies are low level evidence and they can be easily confounded. And so when we want to understand what's happening with a vaccine, what we want to be looking at is an uncontrolled environment. We want to be looking at a randomized clinical trial um, where you have a, a proper control group, ideally placebo controlled, um, and that you monitor things carefully over the course of the trial so that any observed differences can be attributed to the investigational agent rather than other confounding variables. And so what we decided to do is take a deep dive into the Pfizer data, the Pfizer phase three trial. And the reason why um, we chose the Pfizer data, of course, there's other vaccines that are approved in Canada is because this is the one that's being approved um, uh, for multiple, for adults, for adolescents and for children in Canada. Uh, and it's the one that's used most broadly, at least here in Canada. And so we wanted to make sure that <clears throat> whatever health policies and recommendations were being made by this particular vaccine, that we could uh, ensure that they were rigorously done. And we were assured as Canadians uh, that rigorous scrutiny and, and that they uh, these vaccines had undergone the utmost of uh, scientific review before being approved. And so we just wanted to go take a look at the data that is available <clears throat> and see what might possibly have been guiding these therapies. So um, in earlier in 2021, these agents were, uh, the, the New England Journal of Medicine publication was uh, released uh, and they described this phase three trial as uh, it enrolled about 43,000 people. They declared that it had a 95% efficacy, which sounded fantastic. Um, and uh, at two months of data, they were able to to report this. And now I just want to say that two months of data is a very short amount of time uh, for any type of clinical trial. It doesn't tell you a lot. It's a preliminary look at the data. However, they declared that this was quite effective um, after seven days after the second dose. But one of the things that we didn't actually learn was that the relative risk, they, they talked about relative risk in, uh, reductions but they didn't actually talk about the absolute risk reduction. So a relative risk reduction is, the, is a, a metric that compares the performance of two arms, but it doesn't tell you uh, the magnitude of benefit and the magnitude of benefit is better conveyed with an absolute risk reduction. And that was really only 0.84%, so less than 1%. So although we treated um, you know, upwards of 40,000 people, you know, less than 1% of those people actually benefited from a reduction in um, in COVID cases. So I think that that's something that most people who were being uh, conveyed this data initially weren't really aware that there was very few people who actually were benefiting from this treatment. Um, so I'm just going to move forward to the six-month data, and this is what we're looking at. So again, we talked about the fact that at the two-month mark, that's very early times, and we're not going to get a really good safety signal. Uh, and so we want to wait a little bit more time to get a better safety signal, to take a look at the data, to see if the efficacy is holding up, um, to see if the safety is holding up. And when they published this particular report in the New England Journal of Medicine, Again, the efficacy was reported as 91.3%, and that's a relative risk reduction of 91.3%. So again, a reduction in symptomatic cases sounds great, 
Uh, they reported a 96.7% relative risk reduction in severe disease. So again, that sounded great. Um, however, a couple of the things that were missing were um, overall illness and specifically death. Now, if we're in a pandemic and our concern is global deaths, you would think that the uh, paper or the research trial that is actually looking at reducing deaths would be looking particularly at severe disease and then particularly at death. Uh, but death, in fact, was not one of the main metrics in this particular study. The primary endpoint was just symptomatic cases. And considering that the, a large majority of people can have COVID-like symptoms and never really get severely sick, um, probably means that that wasn't the best metric. What I would have loved to see is severe disease, hospitalization, ICU admittance, and death as the primary endpoints. Uh, however, this study was not powered to look at those endpoints. So then um, if we look at the actual outcomes for this trial, um, again, we talk about the fact that there is, I'm just going to move my thing over there. So we talk about the fact that it had a 91% efficacy and a 96% reduction uh, in severe disease. But one of the things that they don't talk about is the, um, the adverse events. And so one of the, the things that is really important to understand when we're looking at this particular trial is the primary endpoint is clinical symptoms and a positive PCR test. And the adverse events are COVID-like symptoms without a PCR test. Absolutely. So I'm just going to let that drop for you. So the primary endpoint is adverse events, symptoms, plus a positive PCR test. And the safety data, the, tox the adverse events are, for the most part, at least in the reactogenicity component, COVID-like symptoms without a PCR test. So we're not actually, when we're giving the vaccine, we actually could very well be inducing COVID-like symptoms, which is why we're actually conducting the trial to eliminate COVID-like symptoms. So let's just take a look at the magnitude of, of adverse events. We're going to call both adverse events among the two groups. So although here we see that there's a, a reduction for between 77 and 850 of a, about net 7 plus, 700 or so reduction in people who have COVID-like symptoms plus a positive PCR test, right, which is a 91% relative risk reduction, benefiting the absolute risk reduction is very low, only 4%. Mm -hmm. For severe cases, there's only a difference in 22 out of 40,000 people, right, who have a reduction in their disease. For a 90 efficacy of 96%, but if you look at the absolute risk change, it's only 0.1%, right? So here we are vaccinating mass amounts of people, and we're really only able, if we give it to 40,000 people, to reduce 22 cases of severe uh, symptomatic PCR positive COVID. Now, that's the benefit. Let's take a look at the adverse events. So these are treatment-related adverse effects. So that means that the investigator of the trial attributed these adverse effects to the treatment, okay? So here, in this group here, when we give the vaccine, we were able to reduce by a net 700. But if you actually look here, 5,241 people had adverse effects from this vaccine. This is based on their own data. Now, you're not going to see this in the, um, the main uh, publication. What we needed to go is look at the supplements to see the safety data. And the safety data table is on the left here. And um, so here on the placebo side, it says 1,311 people had treatment-related adverse effects for the placebo, which is to be ex it's expected to be lower. 
But that's 4,000-ish or 3,500 people being given adverse effects, which could very well be COVID-like symptoms. I'm not going to call them COVID symptoms because they don't have COVID based on a PCR test. But that's an increase in adverse effects of 300%, a relative risk increase of 300%. So if we're actually using the metrics evenly, if we're measuring things comparably, um, because both of them are indeed, for the most part, adverse events and COVID-like symptoms, one with a PCR test, one without a PCR test, you can see that the adverse events caused by the vaccine are, are higher, the people are sicker in that arm than they are. And that impacts an absolute, that's an absolute risk change of 18%. So that's incredibly high compared to the 4% reduction that we've seen with symptomatic cases. Now, of course, I've heard many people say, well, I got COVID again, even though I was vaccinated, but at least I had less severe outcomes. If we actually look at severe adverse effects, which I've defined at the bottom of the slide as, as events that interfere with daily activity, require medical care and ER visit or hospitalization, you can see that there's 262 people who had an adverse event in the vaccine arm versus 150 in the placebo arm, a severe adverse effect. So even though we're reducing severe symptomatic cases of COVID by 22, we're increasing severe adverse effects by more than a hundred. Can I can I ask you something? Like mm -hmm. these, do you know the placebo? Like before we started this investigation, I always thought that placebo is really nothing. Basically, you know, it's just the what's the the word the Corsatslösung? Saline. Saline. So that it's just saline and nothing else. But now I understood that like with the vaccine, sometimes or with like these trials with vaccines, they have some of the elements, for instance, these um, due to al aluminium or something like that is also in the placebo. So do we know what was in the placebo that they used in this trial? Yeah, I, I'm not privy to that particular information. Unfortunately, um, as a, an independent scientist, we're limited to what they're able to publish in these trials. And so we haven't, I haven't taken a very close look at this. But I do, I do think, thank you for highlighting the fact that there is a placebo arm. And when we're looking at the adverse effects, it's important to understand that the adverse effects, for instance, here in the severe adverse effects front and the serious adverse effect, these are, are adverse effects that could be due to the disease. So, for instance, they could be severe COVID-like symptoms because there's both there's groups of people on both sides who actually got COVID. And the adverse effects that they could be reporting could be due to the drug or it could just be due to experiences. So when we're looking at this data, we have to understand that in this group here, Although they received a saline solution, many of them actually got COVID, clinical COVID. And so this group here, only 150 of them who actually got COVID, the majority who got COVID, actually had fewer severe adverse effects experiences than the group that actually got the vaccine. Does that, does that make sense? It doesn't, but, so, uh, but it does, yeah. The outcomes, the outcomes in the vaccine group were worse in terms of severe adverse effects than the group that actually the group that actually got lots of COVID. You see this group has higher mm. levels of COVID. Mm. So I have a question too. Uh, do you know whether you get all the data later on or whether it's or you get only the publication from from the from the sponsor? Do you get the single files, the sing can you check the single cases they counted? Is it possible oh. are, are they open? Do they have to be opened or are they closed? Are they 
owned by the company. Oh, I'm sure that they're proprietary, given all of the um, given all of the difficulties that you know the F, the people in the United States are having accessing all of the documentation. I'm sure that they're not wanting to give this out freely. And I personally have not had access to the individual records of the patient, but I do think that as an international community that we should move to have all of that data released and, and given to independent scientists for careful scrutiny. Um, so uh, again, our firm was really only able to work with what was available and we do have lots of questions and we would have liked to see more access to more of the data. You know, at times we were able to access FDA files and look for more detail or look at the protocols for more detail. But again, uh, you know, even though we're being subjected to mandatory vaccination in Canada, we actually don't have access to all the data that would actually show us that this was actually a sound decision on the part of our regulators. Um, so I'm just going to move on to serious adverse effects. Um, so serious adverse effects in the protocol and the paper were defined as inpatient hospitalization, requires inpatient hospitalization, is life-threatening, results in death, or persistent disability. And so, of course, we know that COVID-19 can be a serious uh, disease and that it can have serious adverse outcomes. And you can see here that there is 116 people in the placebo arm, which is the one that had the most COVID, that had serious adverse effects. However, I would want you to note that there was 127 of them in the vaccine arm, the ones that did had less COVID that actually also had serious adverse effects. So for instance, in our firm, if we were looking for an agent that was able to reduce severe adverse effects of which many of them are COVID-like symptoms or something along those lines, then we would like to see lower numbers in the vaccine arm for severe adverse effects and serious adverse effects than we would in the actual arm that had COVID-19, which we're trying to, um, that had more COVID-19 that we're trying to eliminate. And again, I would I would like to to know whether they whether it's possible to exclude influenza cases with a positive PCR test to COVID. This is a good question, and I I've often asked myself the same question. You know, one of the things that we always like to look for if we're looking for a test. Uh, is that it's been clinically validated, right? So we want a clinically validated test if we're going to be using as a diagnostic tool in a study that's of this great significance. And unfortunately, I haven't seen any data that, that shows that it's been clinically validated that is actually identifying what it says that it's identifying to the exclusion of anything else, that that's different ability to differentiate between diseases um, is clear. And so I haven't received the data that would make me confident in that. Uh, and when I see this type of thing, I often think, okay, if we have more adverse effects, many of which are COVID-like symptoms in the vaccine arm relative to the placebo arm, then I would begin to question whether the, the test itself is, is clinically valid or sensitive enough to be doing the job that we're asking it to do. I think the, the administration should, should insist on a multiplex test in such cases. Mm -hmm. And I would have liked to see a much more sensitive and clinically validated tool um, or maybe not a tool at all. Let's just look at adverse events. Let's look at symptomology and see which side has more symptoms, which is what we're really kind of starting to look at when we look yes. at unsolicited adverse events in these two categories. It's really eliminating the effects of the PCR test and just looking at clinical disease burden and saying which group is sicker. And I would say based right. on the numerical uh, observations here, we don't even need to introduce 
sophisticated, but if one arm is higher than the other one, then we can all conclude you don't need to have you know, sophisticated backgrounds and scientists or analysis to know that this isn't heading in the right direction. Yeah. Uh, and so right. then, you know, there was, and I think the other thing too, that was very curious about the way that we approach this was um, usually if you're looking at preliminary data, which is two months in, um, you would be very careful with what statements you were to say about safety. You could say, um, in the absence of scrutiny or in the absence of further follow-up, this vaccine may be safe, um, but we don't have, we can't make conclusive statements about safety because we were only looking at preliminary data, which was two months. Now here in this study, we're looking at six months of data and clearly the indicators are that it's not as safe as we expected. And so again, as an international community and as our regulators, I would have wanted to see much more scrutiny, much more caution. Uh, we should be exercising the precautionary principle, um, not when it comes to locking down our societies because we might be afraid that, a, that the virus might be spreading, causing distress to all levels of society, but we should be exercising the precautionary principle when we're actually um, suggesting that we vaccinate um, everybody based on very early safety data uh, that was very preliminary. This is, um, this is an, uh, uh, the market allowance was just a provisional market allowance. And so when you do such things, you should, uh, the, the observation of studies which should follow or the, the studies that uh, should follow until the, you have the real market allowance should be well defined and should be well formulated. So do you know that the, 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 uh, the F, FDA or the, the, in, in the German EMA or the, the, the European EMA, did they, do you know the, what they asked the, the the firms to 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 observe. Do you know the parameters which which they defined to have this observe observational studies safe have safe results? Um, un yeah, unfortunately, in Canada, um, we're not privy to the reasons and the rationale and the reasoning and the the, the provisions and the criteria that were set out. Um, I do know just from my observations in Canada that this data, the six month data, the only thing that we were told was that there are no new safety signals. That's the, that's the cap. You know, that was the one line summary <laughs> that we were given. But it is obviously we were given. not, yeah. Yeah, and, in, and interestingly enough, I've seen these types of statements um, and what they could mean, it's sometimes something that a pharmaceutical company uses to say that there's no new safety signals in the sense that the types of safety uh, adverse events that they were reporting are probably pretty similar. They were COVID-like symptoms in the first study, and then now there's still COVID-like symptoms. But it's a little bit disingenuous whenever we see that the magnitude of adverse effects are what they are in the study, that they would use that. Um, I think that that would probably be a misrepresentation of the safety data. But again, whenever they presented the results, it's really important to know that when they're talking about COVID-like symptoms plus a positive PCR test, they call it an endpoint, and they used relative risk reduction, which amplifies the benefit. As you can see, the relative absolute, they use relative risk reduction, but the absolute was minus 4% and 0.1%. Uh, however, when they're talking about adverse events, they simply look at them as percentages in one column or the other, and they that that manner makes it seem like it's oh it's not too bad look at that, 
um, you know, 23.9% of people are getting an adverse event versus 6%. Well, that's not too surprising. Uh, but whenever you apply the same statistical treatment to both the sides, which you should, because the only difference is a positive PCR test, that's when actually you see the differences and you're able to compare the benefits and risks appropriately. And that's what our group wanted to do and to show people that if you apply that relative risk reduction, you actually get relative risk increases that are greater magnitude um, with the vaccine than you are reductions in actual um, COVID-19 disease. So just moving on to deaths, this is another shocking piece uh, that our, our group uncovered. Um, deaths uh, were reported in the unblinded phase or the blinded phase. Uh, so that's before they did crossover. I'm going to talk about what crossover means. But in the blinded phase, in that first two months of observation, there were, uh, now I just want to pause for a moment and say that this, this, the groups of participants in this study were healthy adults with very few comorbidities. And within two months of this trial, we had 15 deaths on the vaccine arm and 14 deaths on the placebo arm in a healthy group of, of people. Now, if a large number of those people are getting COVID-19 and COVID-19 is deadly, then we should expect to see some deaths on the placebo arm. But if this vaccine is preventing COVID-like illness and the severe disease, then we should see fewer deaths, I would expect, even if it's not statistically significant, but at least a numerical drop in deaths on the vaccine arm. However, what we saw in the first two months is 15 and 14. So that's a little bit more in the vaccine arm. Now, it's not statistically significant. We don't know whether it's due to the agent or not. However, uh, after unblinding, what happened was the large majority of people on the placebo arm crossed over and were vaccinated. At that point, additional five vaccine recipients died. Now, the numbers of vaccine recipients, of course, increased at that point because a large majority crossed over. But again, if this vaccine is doing the job that we're asking it to do, which is to lower morbidity and mortality, then it is odd that we would see an, an additional five deaths after a vaccine received in that group. So meaning that's a total of 20 deaths on the vaccine arm and 14 deaths on the placebo arm. Now, it was really interesting when we're looking at the table on the left, you can see that you have 15 deaths, that's the yellow band, and 14 on the placebo arm. But the five additional deaths in the vaccine uh, group were actually buried in the text, so they weren't easily identified. And you can see that we've actually pulled the text out. So three participants in the BNT, that's the vaccine group, and two in the original placebo group who received the vaccine after unblinding died. So again, this is a way of, of um, making it difficult for the average reader, for instance, a clinician or somebody who's a health policy regulator to actually really register that these were additional vaccine related, potentially, I'm not saying they are vaccine, but they were vaccine recipient deaths. Uh, so the other thing too, that's really interesting is when you actually look at the types of deaths that are occurring in the two groups, we see that there was really only three COVID deaths that were even registered in the, tri in the trial at two months. Um, so our, at the six month report, one on the vaccine arm and two on the placebo arm. But if we actually look at cardiovascular deaths, and we all know now that pericarditis and myocarditis are 
concerns, safety concerns relative to the vaccine, if we actually had looked at the data, what we would have seen is that there's nine cardiovascular deaths in the vaccine arm before blind and during the blinding phase versus five in the placebo arm. So that's a that's a, a significant difference, especially when we're thinking about the population of healthy adults. And can I ask you, is this like normal that you unblind so quickly? I mean, wouldn't it have better to to really just stick with this like two groups, the control group, and then like do this for a year or two? Um, I'm just going to zip to that particular slide. Actually, here we go. This is the the blinding. So I think this is the question that you're yeah. you're asking. Um, so your the answer is yes, especially if we need to, and we're very serious about long term safety, right? So there's no way that we can understand the long term safety implications of these vaccines after two months. So of course we want to continue our controlled phase, our placebo controlled phase for a number of years in order to be able to observe the long-term safety data. However, one of the things that is often done uh, is if a study is, or if a, an agent is declared to be effective, uh, it becomes a standard of care. And then they might say something like, it's no longer ethical not to vaccinate. I think that, um, you know, I'm not really sure what the regulators decided to permit the crossover, but that could have been something I've seen that in other studies. And therefore everybody crosses over and then you no longer ever do placebo controlled trials because it's no longer ethical not to treat somebody. But I don't feel that two months of data um, with, a you know, using a genetic therapy that is being um, used in the capacity of a vaccine and being administered to healthy populations around the globe that we really had sufficient data to make that claim that it was the new standard of care. Um, and yes, you're absolutely right. By, by crossing over the way that they did, um, they did uh, erase any potential that we have for long-term safety where we can attribute it to it. Now I'm not gonna ascribe any intentions, but I know that I was part of the pharmaceutical industry for about 10 years. Uh, and if you are wanting to minimize your safety outcomes, then crossing over, having your placebo group cross over is a great way of minimizing any potential risks that might be associated with your drug. Uh, and so a, minim a risk minimization strategy would be to encourage crossover at an early point. I'm not saying that that's what they did, but I did, am saying that that would be one of the outcomes that might occur. You mean like track of the risk that's associated with the drug. Yes. Yeah. You know, you erase the possibility of identifying any long-term risks by crossing over. Uh, it is no longer, we're no longer able to ascribe causality. Of course. Then and they can, they, they can they, say that, sorry, go ahead. No, yeah. no. Is, it is it possible now, do you think it, it could be possible to have a control group of non-vaccinated uh, and to have it uh, so in, in the retrospe retrospective such a, that you that you could find out and have pairs of similar uh, people and, and and then control it uh, to, to have this, this group of the non-vaccinated compared with those who take the full vaccinations. Do you know such, uh, such trials going on? Um, again, you know, I'm a, I'm a purist 
And I would have liked to see that question answered in the placebo-controlled trial, and that's where it should have been answered. And I, I suppose yeah. there's designs, lesser designs, that we could employ to try and answer that question. But I think that we should hold our regulators accountable for their decision to allow crossover. Uh, and I think that we should make the position that uh, the precautionary principle should be applied. So unless they are able to prove long-term safety, within the context of a placebo-controlled trial, then they should have no position to mandate vaccination for anybody. Yeah. You know, if they decided to erase yeah, sure. potential for long-term, then the burden is on them to redesign a study, to cease vaccination, redesign a study that proves long-term safety and then show it to us. And then and then we'll allow them to continue with their, their vaccination campaigns. So I think that the the standard is the precautionary principle. Unless safety is proven, mm -hmm. we shouldn't proceed. I think yes. If they don't, if they just don't do because they don't want to know such results, mm -hmm. uh, and you are and you you are a critical scientist, and you would you would try to find out what really happens, then you should uh, you should design some some possibility how to find out how how big is the damage of those. Being vaccinated and those who are not vaccinated, I think, from a critical perspective, from an alternative perspective, we should uh, try to find out uh, how we could measure the effect, the, the damage done by by vaccine vaccinating the people. Mm -hmm. I just want to I just want to emphasize that there is a a line that's used very commonly in vaccines. Uh, you know, whenever it comes to vaccines and vaccines injuries and it's association does not infer causation that's so right what that means that means is in an observational study just because there's an association for instance i'm vaccinated you know two days later you know my heart yeah, yeah. i have a heart attack they're like okay that doesn't mean you know you might have had a heart attack otherwise so the moment we step out of a randomized clinical trial a placebo-controlled trial the answer to every single vaccine injury will be association does not mean causation. Now, when we're wanting to identify risk groups for vaccine, you know, calling them high risk groups, association does mean causation. You are at risk. You know, it's not, you may be at risk, you are at risk, right? Um, uh, but in the, in the case of safety, you know, or even when we're looking at our observational studies and we're like, oh, we vaccinated the, the country and, oh, there was a drop in hospitalizations. That's an association. Of course, we're very okay. comfortable ascribing. Yeah, there are a lot of confounders possible. Yes. Yeah, that's right. Um, so just to just to move on to a couple other things, I'm just going to go back a couple slides because I really do want to talk about um, the groups that were included in Canada. Um, our regulators are recommending use in people who have natural immunity. Um, and I just want to emphasize that in this particular study, uh, there were no people who had were COVID recovered that were allowed in this study. So we actually have no level one evidence of, of benefit or risk in that group of people. Uh, and I think that that's something, at least in the EU, that I understand is being recognized as natural immunity. Uh, but in Canada, they don't recognize natural immunity. And I find that actually quite interesting because If you look at the phase one uh, Pfizer trial, it was a randomized clinical trial with uh, trial with neutralizing antibodies as um, the, yeah. is the indicator. And, and the control that they used to see if there was sufficient 
immunity being generated by the vaccine was <laughs> convalescent plaza, plasma, which was people's COVID recovered uh, antibodies. So interestingly enough, even though they acknowledged it and they used it as the basis for their research and development of their vaccine to ensure that it had sufficient immunogenicity, uh, here in the studies, they weren't included. Uh, and we have no ability to, to compare the vaccine to people who have natural immunity. So making any associations like the, the naturally immune needed or the vaccine is better or worse are not supported by level one evidence. So um, just another quick thing about endpoints. Um, again, if we understood the way that we look at safety is we look at it from a mode of action point of view. And so we would look at the fact that the spike protein when attached with the virus, when working in conjunction with the virus does cause a lot of the pathogenicity that we see related to COVID-19. Uh, and we can predict that type of pathogenicity. And that's usually whenever the virus starts to circulate systemically that we see the severe outcomes with COVID-19. And we could have probably predicted some of them. They could have been clotting, inflammation, cardiac damage, et cetera. And so if we were very serious about the safety of the trial participants and really wanted to understand safety of these vaccines, then what we should have been doing is measuring clinical outcomes, which are those adverse effects and you know both positive PCR tests and not, as well as subclinical effects of the re vaccine recipients. However, this was not done. And I think that for me, what that says is that they weren't very serious or at least the data that's been provided around safety is not sufficiently robust for us to be ensured that no untoward effects are happening in people who are receiving this vaccine. So that's just a quick aside. And one last thing about the safety, although we talked about those safety data, it's really important to remember that they only measured reactogenicity, which is basically the COVID-like symptoms that were induced either through COVID itself or the vaccine for seven days um, after the vaccine was received. So if anything occurred after that, they wouldn't have been captured in the data that I just showed you. Additionally, for severe outcomes, they only looked at those for one month. So in Canada, if I had heart problems that were associated with the vaccine and I took the time to go see my doctor and then he referred me to a specialist, it might be one month to two months to three months out and they would no longer be recording that severe outcome. So one of the things that I suspect is that the outcomes, the adverse outcomes that we're actually seeing in this trial are probably underreported because although for the um, efficacy endpoint, they monitored uh, COVID-like symptoms throughout for the adverse events, they're just doing partial monitoring for seven weeks, one month, and for serious ones for six months. So all of that to say is that uh, some of the, the pieces in the puzzle related to safety were probably not up to normal standards or not up to the standards that we would wanted to see uh, for a mass rollout of the vaccine globally. And one other thing that just to point out is this study did not and cannot make any claims around transmission. So in Canada, we often hear you know, get your vaccine to protect yourself and the ones you love. And what's assuming there is that it is going to be able to stop transmission. However, transmission was not an endpoint in the study. And the, the authors of the study even say, you know, we cannot say anything, the limitations, we cannot say anything about whether 
how this vaccine works in asymptomatic people and whether it can actually stop transmission to unvaccinated persons. So the whole premise of our vaccine campaign has been, you know, to administer it to the healthy in order to prevent transmission to the weakest members of our society, which is what mass vaccination does. And yet this study was never even designed to do that. So we've covered a lot of data. There's a lot more to talk about, but I'm just going to make one last point when it comes to the efficacy of the vaccine. In the six-month report, as you recall, they, were, they said that it was 91% effective. Uh, however, um, one of the things that they did was they actually combined uh, the adolescent data in with the adult data when they reported those outcomes. Uh, and in the actual discussion, what they talk about is the vaccine efficacy wanes in adults over time. And of course, uh, it could be, you know, as early as four months that that vaccine efficacy begins to wane. Uh, however, um, in order, you know, interestingly enough, by combining it with the adolescent cohort, that would have boosted up the efficacy of the vaccine. So when they did that combined reporting, they would have gotten that 90% efficacy and have been able to continue to claim that. So again, to a very careful reader, and when our group would see something like this, we would be very concerned that this is falsely boosting outcomes uh, in order to present them as better by combining these two cohorts. And so we've covered off. Oh, so go ahead. Uh, so this, uh, the... Um... The adolescence uh, group, was that un unblinded at the same time? Yeah, so that's a really great question. Um, interestingly enough, the, the, the study on adolescence was uh, an extension of the primary study where they only enrolled, so you recall that they studied 40,000 adults in this trial for adults. So the study for children was little more than about 2,000 children, right? So now, of course, um, we're looking at a group that has very low risk of severe outcomes with COVID-19. So what we'd want to see is much more careful scrutiny in this group. We'd want to see a study I would expect that would be twice the size, potentially, of the adult study and, and conducted for a very long time to make sure that we are covering off the safety However, this study only had 2,000 children enrolled, uh, but the primary endpoint for this study, interestingly enough, the primary focus, what this study was designed to assess, it was an immunobridging trial, and it was its primary endpoint was immunogenicity, meaning the ability of the, vac of the recipient to develop neutralizing antibody titers. So it was a subclinical endpoint to this study, and all that they did was want to make sure that the uh, antibodies that are being produced in the 12 to 15 year old cohort were comparable you know, to the antibodies that were produced in a vaccinated group of older people that were 16 to 25 years. So they didn't even have a proper efficacy, clinical efficacy outcome for this trial. Wow, that's really, uh, that's absolutely shocking. Um, I mean, especially Although, if you think that these are uh, adolescents and I mean, shouldn't you at least wait until, you know, the end of puberty or like if they're trying to, when they're trying to have children of their own or something like that, I mean, how, how do they develop? I mean, this is and basically just like, so that's, that's a month or like a few weeks after the, or three months after the shot that they would check for these uh, antibodies. Is that right? And again, 
Yeah. And again, because, you know, it's, it's basically, you know, the assessment of neutralizing antibody titers occurs, I believe they take the, their series of vaccines and they wait seven days and then they look to see, uh, you know, whether they're developing neutralizing antibody titers. But again, because we crossed over the adult trial, we have no long-term safety data, right? Yeah. And this, this study um, did have a placebo uh, arm and a, and a vaccine arm. And again, they enrolled 2,000. I'm just going to show the data here. They enrolled 2,000-ish people, 1,000 in the vaccine arm, in the placebo arm. Um, and But this section of the trial, a lot of people don't know, is descriptive <laughs> statistics. So it wasn't decided, it wasn't designed to take, make any conclusions around the clinical efficacy of the vaccine or the clinical safety of the vaccine. Descriptive just means that we, it's observational. We can't make any conclusions about it. Uh, but if we did look at just the observed data, you can see here um, that there was only a difference of 16 cases, right? So in, in the two, you had to vaccinate 2,000 people to prevent 16 cases, none of which were severe. So that's like trying to prevent cold-like, flu-like symptoms in 16 people. We give a vaccine to 2,000 kids. And that's like, a, again, the absolute risk change is 2%. And it has no impact on severe outcomes because there are no severe outcomes. However, I'm just going to show you the same treatment of adverse effects data that we did with the adults. Let's just take a look at this. Treatment-related adverse effects, 33 versus 21. That's an increase of 57%. Any severe adverse effects, 7 versus 2. And let's go back to what severe adverse effects are because we have no severe cases. Severe adverse effects that interferes with daily activity, requires medical care, an ER visit, or hospitalization. This is the data that we're using. 7 versus 2. Relative wow. risk increase of 249%, absolute risk increase of 0.4%. Any serious adverse effects, four versus one, increased 299%, affecting 0.3%. Now, these are people who have no, very, very little risk of severe uh, adverse effects or serious adverse, uh, adverse outcomes from COVID-19. And yet, you don't need to be a, a sophisticated scientist to see this is heading in the wrong direction at two months. Why are we vaccinating without waiting for more long-term data? Why are we allowing these children to be exposed like this? You know, at the time that this vaccine was approved, um, I, I have a slide for this, but I'll just speak to it generally. Um, they, they usually you do animal testing to ensure safety in humans before or you use it in humans and before you move on to clinical trials in humans. Yes. So what they did for this to expedite development is they actually did the animal studies at the same time as the human studies. So what they did was they skipped that very important um, step where you prove the safety in animal models before exposing it to human in order. So what they did is they put humans at risk through expediting this. And I'm just gonna talk about the types of, of studies that I would have liked to see. So there's toxicology studies. There were two of those in place before we approved the vaccinations for mass distribution, but the reprotoxicity studies were not complete. And those outcomes, the final outcomes for those studies were not available before we approved this globally. Tetragenicity, 
was not complete, meaning uh, causing birth defects was not complete before mass vaccination rollout. Um, to my knowledge, no oncotoxicity, meaning does it cause cancer or genotoxicity, does it interfere with the human genome, was available at the time that they were approved. I haven't had a chance to scrutinize all of the, the animal studies to date, but I am 100% confident that the normal standards of, of um, safety review have been compromised at so many levels. I'm concerned that now we're exposing, and, and nobody would know what the long-term outcomes are in humans. The indicators to me do not look positive. So again, I would say, you know, why are we moving forward with this? Um, these are our, this is our future. Um, I don't feel that the safety data, that they've satisfied the precautionary principle and proven safety before use. And Normally you have, in the phase two, you have dose, dose finding studies where you find out which dose to give. Do you know about such studies here? Um, they did do, you know, I again, there's so much data that we haven't had a chance to look at it all very carefully. I do know that they reduced the dose for the five to 11 year olds um, and that they added some medications in order to uh, purportedly reduce cardiac effects. Uh, I don't have any data, you know, it wasn't in the actual study. And so this is something that they might have added to the formulation afterwards, which would mean it's untested. Um, but, uh, you know, one of the things that I do understand having read through a lot of this study is that the, the normal dosing strategies and the, the top, you know, the pharmacokinetic studies that we would do, it's difficult to apply here because what we're doing is we're administering, um, you know, mRNA to people. And so there's yes. so many factors. So the mRNA, it's very difficult to know exactly how that translates into production of spike protein in the body. Uh, you know, it's susceptible to different people's biological mechanisms. Some people can produce a lot of, um, uh, you know, spike protein from very little mRNA. Some people's mRNA might not degrade as quickly as others so that they can continue to produce it. You know, it's it's very difficult to regulate the actual amount of spike protein that's actually being produced uh, and where it's being distributed and and all of that. I do know that looking at the safety data, that it seems to me that that a spike protein is being distributed system systemically because it is causing similar symptoms to the virus that whenever it's tra traveling through systemically. Um, and so we know that the spike protein is the pathogenic component of the virus. So if we're seeing similar effects with the vaccine, then one could probably safely assume that it's also having a systemic impact. I'm just going to touch really quickly on myocarditis. Um, this is a known adverse event in young people. Um, there's statistics, I can get into them, but I think we're running out of time. However, under no circumstances should we ever be assuming that myocarditis is mild or short-lived. I know that there's a, a minimization of risk talk, you know, in Canada, they're saying, oh, you know, it's fleeting or people recover. Once your heart muscle is damaged, what's replaced is not uh, soft contractile muscle. There's, there's implicate, these have long-term implications and from classic myocarditis, the mortality rate is up to 20% at 6.5 years. So what we're doing is we're exposing our young people to some an agent which has an increased risk of heart damage when they're not even at risk of severe outcomes. 
And so we really need to be thinking, is that a, a sound risk benefit exchange, especially knowing that these studies, these vaccines are not able to stop transmission. The studies were not designed to show a stopping transmission. So they can't even help stop the spread of the disease because this vaccine isn't designed to do that and it wasn't even studied to do that. So why are we exposing our young children um, to this type of a thing? And again, you know, in Ontario, uh, there, the, we should have informed consent uh, and yet our health officials are going around doing promotional campaigns uh, to promote, to directly, to do direct to consumer advertising of the vaccine among children. And even uh, some children, it, you know, it's, it's said that they don't even need their parents after 12 years of age, they don't even need their parents' permission so that they're, you know, sub subject to these promotional campaigns without ever understanding the true risks and benefits and long-term implications. You know, as adults, we don't even know what the true long-term implications are, but we do know that some of the short-term outcomes that we're seeing, there is serious disease, adverse events, there is uh, severe adverse events, and myocarditis is confirmed as, an ad as associated to that, and it is a serious outcome. So again, why are we exposing young people who have no risk of severe outcomes uh, to these agents? So... Um, I'm just going to check in with you to see how much more time we have and if there's any questions you have or is there anything that you'd want me to cover specifically. Uh, I think we spend a lot of time on just the details of the studies. Um, no, you can just go ahead. We, uh, I think our next guest is not yet here. So I think we're, we're not under time pressure and it's really very important, I think. Yeah. I mean, from what I just understood. So if, if you say it's like a 20% um, I was going to ask about that. Do you know, what does like, it mean exactly? 20% at 6.5 years. So 6.5 later, um, they might die from, from a myocarditis. So meaning someone... They're 20, yeah. So at 6.5 years, they're 20% more likely to die than somebody who doesn't have myocarditis. So it basically is shortening their lifespan. The ones who get myocarditis, they will die. 20 yeah. percent there's an there's an increased risk yes. of them dying yes after 6.5 years yes increased risk to uh in comparison to what to the amount of people who usually die from myocarditis so well there's probably no yeah so relative to somebody who doesn't have myocarditis mm -hmm. yeah so that that risk factor having myocarditis increases your chance of dying it has nothing, whether you have a vaccination or not. When you have a myocarditis, this is the risk. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It means if you get vaccinated, you have a 20% higher risk of dying after 6.5 years. No, no, than those no, who no, don't no. get vaccinated. No. Yeah, this isn't to do with vaccination, this slide here. Mm -hmm. This slide here is designed to convey the point that myocarditis is a serious outcome. Yeah. Okay, so, so in case you have it from whatever reason, like uh, you might have a 20% higher chance of dying 6.5 yeah. years later, basically. And yes, that's yeah, right. The reason, the reason why I wanted to emphasize that is that there are some groups in Ontario where I live that are dismissing myocarditis as a not in, you know, as a, as not a serious outcome of the vaccine. Right. Mm -hmm. So the, the rates of myocarditis are indeed higher uh, for vaccine recipients, especially when it comes to younger people. Um, and myocarditis is a serious outcome. Mm -hmm. It's a serious injury. 
And we need to take it seriously because the data shows us that it is serious in the sense that it, it, it could shorten the lifespan of somebody who actually gets myocarditis. So again, what we want to do is exercise the precautionary principle. If there is a risk of myocarditis, an increased risk of myocarditis with vaccination, then we shouldn't vaccinate, of course not. especially if there's no benefit. I mean, this is so this is so obvious, um, Deanna. I don't I don't understand why anybody would still be debating whether it makes sense or not to get the shots. It doesn't. It is so obvious. It's right in your face. They're manipulating mm -hmm. the data in an obviously fraudulent manner. And if I take this, if I take into consideration what the group of scientists um, behind and working with uh, Dr. Mike Eden has come up with that they're definitely uh, trying to find lethal doses. I mean, if you take all of this into consideration immediately, we should all stop this immediately. We can't wait for the politicians who are not our politicians. And the situation seems to be especially bad in Ontario, in Canada. So why don't, well, I, I guess this is a rhetorical question. People don't react to this because they are not informed. They don't get the information. I know that um, if, if there's anybody qualified to talk about mRNA vaccines and techniques, it's Dr. Robert Malone. And he published your presentation on Twitter. And as a result of that, he got a lifelong ban. Now, this- I felt very bad about that, by the way. <laughs> yeah, but it's not your fault. Um, and, and we're gonna publish this at, uh, we're gonna publish it at as well on our website, and they're not gonna be able to uh, take us down because these bastards don't can't get any, everyone. But the thing is, if you take all of this into, into consideration, it is so obvious. I mean, it's really right in your face. It's as though they're trying to slap us and trying to tell us, wake up, uh, fight. And that's what we have to do. I mean, what wow. more do we want to wait for? More people to die? What? What? There's no news. There's nothing that can surprise us anymore. Um, they're yeah. trying to kill us. That's the bottom line. Well, it it uh, I, I it very it's very uh, I I often you know wonder if there's a high degree of malfeasance happening. Huh. It's either malfeasance or mal incompetence. Hmm. Um, you know, either one of them when it comes to health professionals is a little bit concerning. Yes. I mean, it, you, there's another thing that we have to take into consideration. I always like to talk about the totality of the evidence. You have to see the whole picture, not just parts of it. And another piece of the picture is that the same group of people that owns the pharmaceutical and tech industry through their financial vehicles like BlackRock and Vanguard, the same group of people owns Twitter. Now, any questions? I don't think um, so. Yes, yeah. I think there is another. There is another thing we we I always have to remind. It's that it's that group. We know that the pharmaceutical industry was named organized crime many years before by Peter Gutsche and others. Mm. And he, he wrote a book about all those examples and they were punished and they had to pay a lot billions of, of dollars because they did they committed crimes. We know that they commit crimes. And uh, this is one thing. And the doctors knew it too. And the doctors, many doctors were skeptical and they did not use the, the pharmaceutics that were, that were advertised. Many of them were critical. But where are those critical doctors now? Where are they? Well, where yeah, is the discussion? 
One of the things that I'm finding a little bit concerning, and I think that you spoke to this uh, just just now, is um, you know we we talked about the importance of the doctor patient relationship. And one of the beautiful things about that doctor-patient relationship is the doctor, who is very knowledgeable, is committed to the care and to the the, the well-being of their patient. It's like a yes. covenantal relationship. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not a, a financial interaction, hopefully, right? We don't want that to be the case. Um, but because the way that this pandemic has been rolled out, that power to make good choices for the person has now been moved to the public health officials who have no understanding, no commitment, no relationship to actual the individual patient. Uh, however, the you know in Canada at least, I don't want to speak for other. So you know what you'll do is you'll have these very articulate doctors get on. And they make a, a pleaful thing like get vaccinated to protect you and your in your parents. So it's all your you know your parents or your your loved ones or, you know, uh, get vaccinated so that our hospital systems you know that I don't have to work as hard in my hospital or, you know. So what we're what we're kind of getting is that these these almost like these personalities these you, you know, medical personalities now are making pleas uh, based on apparently privileged knowledge. Uh, of you know capacities, etc., uh, and and then people who are watching that, who both have learned to trust their news networks uh, because they used to do investigative reporting and they used to make sure that they had balanced information. So they're assuming that that's still in place, and then they're assuming that these these doctors that are on television or in the advertisements or being put up before them are the same people that have that commitment to their well-being. Um, and so it's very difficult because of the means by which uh, whatever um, group is is promoting this, because they're coming through these trusted sources, people, for the most part, uh, Canadians are goodwilled. And, you know, I am so excited and I'm so privileged to be part of the Canadian group. All these people who came together, who wanted to do the right thing, who did their part, who trusted their political leaders who trusted their healthcare professionals or public health authorities and did what it was required. And yet um, that trust has been violated. And um, I'd love to just show you a couple things to say that, you know, they were at least in Canada telling us that they had our backs and that although they didn't do the proper scrutiny uh, in, in the trials in the sense of ensuring long-term safety before they administered it to the Canadian public. Although they did say it was safe, they didn't do the proper due diligence in terms of safety. Um, they also told us that they were surveying our safety. So of course we are all familiar with these passive surveillance systems that um, monitor safety uh, so that you know everybody reports adverse events, and then those adverse events are recorded, and we have theirs, and we have the UK yellow system, and of course Canada has its public access uh, system. However, I just want to show you how sensitive those systems are at detecting safety signals, and how inappropriate it is to be relying on those in order to ensure the safety of of people who are receiving this vaccine. So this is a trial that we just looked at, and there's a reactogenicity component, which is the COVID-like symptoms that occur after you get the vaccine. And those COVID-like symptoms occur in 78% of recipients that get the vaccine. And 5% of those recipients will have severe COVID-like symptoms as a result of that vaccine. Um, 
whenever you look at unsolicited, when somebody just tells you, okay, something happened, I have heart palpitations, my menstruation's off, something weird is happening, 30% of people will report some sort of adverse event, 2% of which is severe. So we know when you're carefully monitoring safety that it's some that the true safety issues are between 78% and 30%. This is when you're actively asking people, this is when you don't actively ask them. In the passive surveillance system, which replies on people not getting paid and getting prompted to have to report an adverse event that they don't maybe even know that they should report or they have a, a knowledge of how to report it, when we don't pay our healthcare practitioners to report it and when they're screened on the other side, at least here on Canada, to see if they are reasonably vaccine related, so also screens, we're recording for the number of people that have been vaccinated at this time in the analysis, uh, adverse event rate of 0.07%. So our regulators look and say, oh, look, there's very few safety issues associated with these vaccines that we're giving everybody. This is fantastic. But this isn't a true measure of safety. This is an in, a, a, a insensitive system that is being relied on to report safety. And it would have been very easy to figure out how sensitive the system is by comparing it to the clinical trials that we've just looked at. We knew what the safety problems were. We knew what the rates were. And yet when we were telling Canadians that this vaccine was safe, we didn't tell them that 78% of people who got it would have adverse effects, that those adverse effects would be like getting COVID. They were COVID-like. Or that 5% of them would be so severe. These were healthy individuals that we prescribed this to who might very well not have even been exposed to COVID or if may even have had asymptomatic outcomes, asymptomatic disease. So, you know, again, it comes back to this idea of either incompetence or malfeasance. Um, here is, is uh, myocarditis and pericarditis. You know, we talked about that. So the Moderna shot um, has been documented as a one in 5,000 risk of getting um, myocarditis. And, uh, and, you know, in Canada, at least, we stopped giving the AstraZeneca shot to adults based on a one in 60,000 chance of getting a blood clot. And now we're turning around and we're giving these shots to children at a one in 5,000 risk. And we know that the risk increases as you get younger and we're giving them to five to 11 year olds. Again, I think that if parents actually knew if they were given um, true um, information about that, the risks and benefits of these vaccines, and they might have a different choice for their children who are at zero risk of severe outcomes from COVID. So I see that your other guest has come on, but let's just, uh, this is one thing um, that I want to uh, share with your viewers. And again, we're just looking at real world. So we looked at real world safety, where we know that the safety signals are not being captured uh, by the surveillance systems, at least here in Canada. Uh, so this is a, a report that we just finished about vaccine efficacy. It should have been effectiveness, actually, not efficacy here because we're looking at observational data. Um, but the Omicron has swept through Ontario. And of course, we know that all of these vaccines were designed based on the Wuhan strain and the Omicron has 32 mutations in the spike protein. 
Um, and we know that the vaccine is able to evade um, the, the uh, Omicron virus. So that's, that's established. The neutralizing activity is very low. It's 41-fold low, lower based on some of the studies that have been conducting in terms of immunogenicity. But, um, you know, in this particular plot that we have here, this is the unvaccinated per 100,000. It's a seven-day average, fully vaccinated, partially vaccinated. And you can see here um, that this is the unvaccinated that have come along here. And then whenever Omicron came, there was a lift. You can see that the partially vaccinated were a little bit lower, and then there was a lift. Um, but what's interesting is here with the fully vaccinated, all of a sudden now you have an increased rate of infection in people who've been fully vaccinated. So this is negative effectiveness. Um, and there's concerns as to why you would be even less able to fight Omicron compared to somebody who was unvaccinated, right? So before we were looking at studies where we did have efficacy and then we saw that they, the adverse events were higher than the efficacy. Well, now with these new strains, that efficacy has been eliminated. It is no longer likely effective. We haven't studied it in a phase three clinical trial, but its effectiveness now is much lower. And in fact, we're seeing negative effectiveness. So that is concerning. And I just want to bring your readers to a couple things. This is the Moderna phase one trial, and this is the discussion that was in there. And in the Moderna phase one trial, it was actually indicated based on animal testing. I'm gonna read this to you. It says, based on previous experience with veterinary coronavirus vaccines in animal models of SARS-CoV and MERS-CoV, infection was raised safety concerns about the potential for vaccine associated enhanced respiratory disease meaning it makes it worse. The vaccine makes it worse. So we knew this um, and that the antibody dependent enhancement and replication of the vaccine antigens induced antibodies with poor neutralizing activity, meaning that if the, the vaccine is not able to neutralize the virus, which is the case with Omicron, that this could potentially lead based on the researchers' conclusions in the vaccine trials that were conducted by industry it actually says that there could be a chance of vaccine-associated enhanced disease. In addition, on the right-hand side, we have the Pfizer cumulative adverse event report that was acquired through FOIA by a group, and, it's, and it shows the pharmacovigilance data that the vaccine companies are required to collect. And in their report, they said, we have safety concerns. One important potential concern is vaccine-associated enhanced disease, including vaccine-associated enhanced respiratory disease. So again, these are things that were documented and known and could have been predicted. And now at least in Canada, we're seeing indicators that we could be seeing this. Now there's, you know, different, you know, we haven't as a group figured out exactly what's causing this. It could be antigenic center imprinting. It could be immune exhaustion. There could be a level of tolerance, uh, whatever it is. Um, again, this is another reason for concern. And if we're, our answer to um, what is happening is more vaccine that doesn't work, that has no neutralizing capabilities, and we know that if you have no, low neutralizing capabilities that you could potentially be causing vaccine-associated enhanced disease, then we have to, again, say stop and question how reasonable it is you know, it, it may not have been even reasonable to proceed in the first place, but again, even less so now that 
we're going to be meeting all of these variants and that our original vaccines have less neutralizing capability. And even if we were to create a new vaccine for Omicron, it would come and go and its next you know, cousin would come and go before we've been able to mass vaccinate everybody. So we're not in a winning game and we could very well be causing vaccine injury at a serious and severe level. And we could also be compromising the immune systems of the people that we're vaccinating. That's what so, the evidence points to. Uh, points to. Uh, at least that's what some of the experts who we told, uh, who we talked with, uh, said. It is very well possible that the vaccines, the so-called vaccines, seriously damage our immune systems, making it impossible for them to ever again acquire natural immunity for anything. Right, which you know. Um, is 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 deeply concerning yeah is deeply concerning and you know if the pharmaceutical companies were looking for an an ongoing profit line whereby they would supply us with the boosters that we need in order to be able to fight the diseases that uh, you know naturally occur um it's probably not a, a reasonable option either because they would have to be able to predict the variants and all the mutations that have occurred etc yeah so um, again, maybe it might be beneficial if you had a population control um, line, but in terms of your commitment to the well-being of the international community, which I am committed to, uh, you know, it doesn't seem like a reasonable or, or wise approach. And, and you know, we're very quick to exercise the precautionary principle when it comes to mask wearing, even though yeah. it's traveling by aerosols. We're very quick to... Uh, exercise a precautionary principle when it comes to locking down our societies, which have untoward effects. Um, why aren't we exercising the same precautionary principle when it comes to vaccination? That's very, very strange. Um, I want to ask you, since you're also working in the field of, of cancer um, studies, research, um, this area, you know, we have we are getting um, signals basically from doctors working in, in um, especially in, in the, you know, uh, gynecologists. And they say mm -hmm. that the, the cancer, the cancers that they see now, I mean, at least they're getting, they have the feeling, you know, they're, they're observing it, that it's growing faster, more aggressively. And um, uh, so it's it's maybe also pointing into the direction that the immune system is not coping with the, you know, the uh, cancer cells that are with us anyway all the time, basically, but they, you know, get eaten by our immune system, I mean, most of the time usually unless there's something um, maybe wrong. So do you have, do you also get signals like that in Canada? Um, again, you know, I, we, uh, I, I can't actually speak to this because again, we're not collecting the data, right? Mm -hmm. So you, you can't make claims or careful. I mean, it, it's very fascinating. We have amazing amounts of money, amazing amounts of care and attention and technology organized to um, detect any increase in cases, any decrease in cases, any COVID-19 related hospitalization or any COVID-19 related death. We're yeah. very good at doing that. It's, it's, if I were saying that we had OCD, I would say we, were, we have OCD when it comes to COVID-19 events. Um, but unfortunately, we're completely blind 
to any of the secondary implications of our decision making, whether they're related to um, you know, the vaccines, because we didn't study them appropriately. And there's, uh, you know, because there's been such effective propaganda in Canada, whereby our regulators have said that they're safe and effective, people move forward thinking that they're safe and effective. Um, so for instance, if you had somebody in your family who got cancer or who had heart attack, you know, even when their cancer was controlled um, or their heart attack or they, you know, their, their heart was in fairly good condition and they were, you know, of my age or so, um, it would be very difficult for the family to even make the connection that that was related to the vaccine because it's not in your mindset. You're not being told that that could be a possibility. We haven't studied it. Um, and so it's it's a, a way of making it very, very difficult to make that connection. Now, when we look at something like that, what we want to do is, you know, we're continually looking for um, biological agents that can uh, decelerate or in, interrupt oncogenic pathways. Oncogenic pathways are pathways that lead to the growth of cam cancer. Um, and I've looked at some studies and they're concerning in that uh, the spike protein has been shown, whether it's with COVID-19 or otherwise, free-floating, circulating, um, that, it, that it can accelerate or enhance these oncogenic pathways. So from a, a biological or physiological mode of action, it could be plausible that this is having the effect. Another indicator that we know is that the spike protein can cause inflammation. And we know that inflammation is linked to cancer, right? Mm -hmm. So, uh, so there, there are many agents that are designed to try and lower inflammation or, or even mm -hmm. um, decrease uh, anti-angiogenics, for instance, are about you know, limiting circulation in, in that regard. So again, it is plausible that it could be affecting cancers. Now, we haven't done the oncogenicity tests and we haven't looked at it very carefully. So again, I would say shame on us for not proving the safety in this regard and for not monitoring it carefully before we administer it to the masses. Well, I mean, it's a huge propaganda scheme. I mean, obviously, you know, I came across some uh, some advertisement um, a few days ago and, and it says like booster, get the booster shot. It even works if you, if you don't believe in it. I mean, you know, if you if you see this as like an official yeah, by the government, does. you know, by the government and you see this like um, when you walk, wait for your your subway or so. I mean, how would you ever think that there's something wrong with this? I think it is so mm. criminal. You know. Yeah, the, I, I think that we're, we should be at the very least very concerned that we're practicing medica, medicine via propaganda. Um, you know, in, in uh, you know, I come from the I, I did uh, 10 years serving in industry. Um, and so I'm familiar with all of the regulation that's in place uh, in order to regulate how pharmaceutical companies are allowed to communicate with the, the general public. Uh, and there's lots of regulations. They need to make sure that they have balanced presentations. They're not allowed, you know, it was only very recently that they were even allowed to do advertisements. But what I very find very interesting is that the, the government, which is usually the regulating body, is now practicing and abusing, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. the, they're, they're doing the very thing that they have told the industry that they are not allowed to do. Well, they're, they're, leaving, become, they're leaving all the regulation to the industry. It is all in private hands now. Yeah, well, 
you know, they are perpetrating, you know, if they called it a crime for a pharmaceutical to do it now, you know, they're doing it without any checks and it's not even supported by a data. So for instance, you made a claim about the boosters. There's not even any randomized clinical trials. And now they're not even going to do trials anymore. All that they're going to do is see if the neutralizing antibody titers go up. And then we're all going to say that this is now the new measure of effectiveness. So it is a little bit concerning. And if we let them continue, I tell you uh, that they will do whatever they want to us. Exactly. It is very, very obvious, I think. Uh, There is no innocent explanation for this. No more. There's so much evidence. Well, I don't want to get into this again because um, we're spinning around in circles now, but um, there is no innocent explanation. We have to take this very, very seriously and and we have to ask the question over and over again, why do we want to expose children who are at absolute, statistically at no risk whatsoever? Why do we want to expose them to these risks? What is the real reason? Yeah, especially when the poorly conducted safety trials are already showing more severe and serious events that's Mm -hmm. not statistically significant on the vaccine arm compared to the one that we're we're trying to prevent. So, you know, good Mm -hmm. questions. And unfortunately, um, you know, on our YouTube channel, which is COVID Sense, Mm -hmm. uh, we we did an episode on those oncogenic drivers and how it's potentially, you know, that these vaccines could do, in fact, be promoting cancer and that this is something that should be researched and we should be very careful looking at that uh, before we continue to give ongoing vaccination, um, mass vaccination period to children and boosters. Um, and, uh, you know, I was censored in my YouTube channel, you know, that video was taken down because I was off narrative. Um, so again, you know, very concerning around propaganda, very concerning about, mm-hmm. you know, censorship, um, but uh, thanks to all of you for, uh, you know, giving us this opportunity to share our research with you uh, to kind of allow your audience to get into the nitty gritty details yeah. of these trials. Uh, and I'm just really hoping that, you know, there's, there's such, it's, it's so wonderful to see the goodwill of Canadians. Yeah. And it's so wonderful uh, to see how trusting we've been of our, our health authorities and our government because we want. <laughs> do the right thing. Um, However, at some point, uh, you know, it's important to actually start to think and to look at the data uh, and then to hold those people who may very well have made choices that weren't in the best interest um, for whatever reason of the people to hold them accountable and uh, to take those rights back. But anyways, I just really Mm. appreciate the opportunity to share our, our findings with you. Well, thank you for sharing these findings with us. Um, uh, Just out of curiosity, um, in this cool group of Canadian COVID Care Alliance, are there people like uh, Professor Byron Bridle and uh, Dr. Roger Hodkinson and Charles Hoffey? Are they members of this group, of this team? Yes, yeah, they're my my colleagues, people that I'm privileged to work with on a regular basis. Very good people. And uh, Byron, we're really so thankful for him for for uh, uncovering the fact that the lipid nanoparticle um, actually travel through this system and uh, they can actually lodge in things yeah. like the ovaries, et cetera. And uh, a, big, a big call out to him for alerting us to that, especially if it comes to the vaccination of our kids. Wow. Yeah. 
Thank you very much. This was important, and I know that many people who are watching this are shocked once more. <laughs> there seems to be no end to this, but it is important. This is a kind of a shock therapy, really, which is waking people up all over the world, not just in Canada, mm -hmm. as we've heard from our Australian guests. It's happening in Australia as well, because it's all in our faces, especially when you explained mm -hmm. this to us. Thank you so yeah. much, Deanna. Oh, it, it, it's a pleasure, and I'm I'm confident that uh, you know there's such intelligent people in this world, and good-willed people, and yes. people who are willing to do the right thing. That if if we uh, if we just direct that, you know, and ground it in some evidence that, you know, I don't think uh, anybody who has uh, conflicting interests that might be trying to push another agenda will have a chance when that's activated. So thank you for your role in that. Thank you for the opportunity to, to share this outcome, these outcomes with you. And, uh, you know, please feel free to go to the Canadian COVID Care Alliance website. Um, we were fact-checked and we've got a very scientifically robust response to our fact-checkers just to, to get a little bit of taste of the, the caliber of scientists at the Canadian COVID Care Alliance and a lot of resources for people who are looking for more information. So thank you so much. We're going to publish this on our website as well because we want everybody to know to know this. This is so important. Thank you, Diana. Okay. Thanks so much. Well, thank you very much. Take care now. You too. Have a great weekend. Bye now. Bye-bye. Okay. Our next guest is with us. Um, his name is Aurelian Popa um, from Romania. Uh, Aurelian, please introduce yourself. It's much easier if you do it than when, when we if we do it. Hi, hi there. Do you hear me okay? Yes, we can hear you fine. Okay, I'm driving, but uh, I'm practically traffic jammed, so it's like uh, just uh, sitting on a nice coffee chair, so uh -huh. we can talk. Uh, <laughs> Bucharest is crazy. So my name is Aurelian Popa. I'm an IT guy, you know, mm -hmm. uh, turned into an online marketer after he started to age, basically. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I didn't want it to, to, to be sticked uh, to a monitor, so I switched to online marketing. Starting with 2020, uh, 14th of May, which was the last day of uh, our hard lockdown, Romanian lockdown here, I was out in the streets because I was, uh, I was realizing this is, this is going to a dictatorship. It's not going to end after two months of lockdown. It's not in Romania. I wasn't sure about the world, but uh, life told us it's also the world, not only Romanian. My dictatorship antibodies <laughs> developed during my first two, 12 years of my lifetime. I was 12 in 89, you know, in Romania in 89, we had this revolution. Uh, we're still there, so I knew exactly what's going on. My bullshit detector turned red. I was in the street in 14th of May 2020, and in 15th of May 2021, first day of a first day of so-called uh, uh, freedom, but it wasn't the first day of freedom. Uh, we all, I also was there, and since then I I tried to uh, you know create activism events and uh, awareness uh, flash mobs and uh, all kind of uh, creatives on my fan page Aurelian in in uh, in um, Facebook, my old channel on YouTube was deleted, deleted, uh, and now I have a new one. So I was supporting and I was contributing to all the protests uh, created and organized in Romania since then, and there were a lot of protests. Uh, 
the the highlight was in 21st of December 2021, when basically we got to the doors of the parliament and they put a stop to the voting of the Green Pass on national territory uh, as the condition to go to work, which was uh, basically our red line limit. I mean, it's okay. It's not okay, but it, I, I can do fine without uh, entering the mall or without going to a coffee shop or restaurant, whatever. Nobody's respecting that anyway. Everybody's using fake QR codes. However, it's not okay to create an obligation out of an override, like, uh, you know, the right to public health. You create an obligation and transform it into a condition to exercise the other right, which is the right to go to work and to have an income source. This is not okay, and our constitution is not allowing it. Even if it's going to be voted by a majority, it's not constitutional. So this is basically my activity in a nutshell in the last two years. So what's the corona situation and the vaccination uh, situation in Romania like? So Romanians are not uh, very, uh, we're not able to gather millions of people in street, okay, at once. We are not like Berlin or Paris or we, 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 we couldn't do it. For some reason, Romanians prefer to passively protest by not injecting themselves. So we have a, a 40%, 40% vaccination rate uh, in Romania. Out of uh, 18 million, about 8 million uh, got vaccinated, out of which about 3 million were basically constrained since they put this green pass uh, as a condition to enter the mall, the coffee shop, and the restaurant. So it was out of, uh, you know, constraint. Uh, roughly 5 million did it, uh, let's say, because they wanted to do it. From 5 million to 8 million, we can say it was a sanitary rape. I'm sorry if my language is very strong, but this is the way I see it. Uh, because if you ask them, they say, I did it, but they forced me to do it on my own signature. Uh, this is the way the way they, they did it. Now, uh, the uh, corona uh, cases are slowly, slowly rising up. While the Europe was in red all the winter, we've been in green. We've been in green. So all since 23rd of November until two days ago, we've been totally green. Green, 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 green. Under 1% uh, cumulative uh, rate cumulative rate at 1,000 people uh, for 14 days. This is the way they measure it. It's called it um, uh, rate at 1,000 people cumulative for 14 days, something like that, the translation in, in English. Uh, so it's not a percentage. It's a rate uh, for 1,000 people, mm -hmm. and it's cumulative for 14 days. Mm -hmm. Now, we've been in green. Green means it's one, this, this parameter is under one. Under one under one, this rate is under one. Uh, now, we have around 10,000 cases per day, but uh, in uh, wave number four, we had a, a maximum of uh, 17,000. Uh, during that time, some kind of German press uh, called us the European idiots, if you remember. <laughs> but uh, that's not, that's okay, that's not a problem. Yeah, uh, however, all the... We know the people. We yes. know the idiots who write these stories. 
they're yeah, practically yeah, 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 brain yeah. dead, you know. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. No problem, no problem. Uh, but then we've been in uh, in uh, like in green, and all the Europe was like eighty thousand cases per day, one hundred thousand cases per day. However, we never made them, uh, you know, call them back. You know, we know people were were basically uh, forced to do it to vaccinate, and now they have Omicron. But all the waves, fourth wave and fifth wave. Fourth wave is in the past, fifth wave is on the future, but fourth wave was like higher, higher than uh, all the other waves, despite the 35, 30, 35, maybe 40% of uh, population vaccinated. This is uh, the main uh, takeaway, you know? The more you vaccinate people, the less performance you have in out, uh, counteracting their own parameters, like the cases and the death rate and the hospitalization and ICU admissions and so on. It's basically just using their own parameters, you see it's not working in their own narrative. You know, it's not working because the more you vaccinate, the higher waves you have, more death you generate, more hospitalization you generate, more ICU you generate. It's the same in Romania. Uh, fortunately, we managed to stay unvaccinated in a proportion of 60%. Mm -hmm. Now, today, we have 60% population not vaccinated, and nobody wants to vaccinate. Nobody wants to vaccinate any, uh, anymore. Even the people with two doses, they don't want the third one. They said, enough is enough. This is bullshit. Omicron is, is bypassing, uh, anyway, the vaccine. The vaccine is not working. It doesn't stop the transmission. It doesn't stop the infection. Uh, we got lots of uh, adverse uh, reactions, you know, cardiovascular and so on and so forth. You already know that. Uh, they lie about the mortality in Romania. They try to, to put the blame on the unvaccinated, but nobody trusts them or believes them, the official, uh, the official figures. Uh, they, they claim in Romania that nine out of ten uh, de COVID deaths are unvaccinated, which is simply not, not true. Uh, because we have uh, sources inside of ICUs in hospitals, which basically uh, tell us different figures, you know? So it's not, it's not true what they try to tell us, you know, that people are dying because they are not vaccinated. The death rate was higher than in Western Europe, in Romania, even before the vaccine. Why? Because we have a public health system which is not performing as well as German one, or Austrian one, or French one. So it's not vaccine, it's not rate of vaccination. It's just the performance of our public health uh, and our ICUs in Romania, let's say. So it's, uh, this is my main argument, you know, we had higher death rate even before the, the vaccine was available in 2020. Like, uh, I, I remember we had like around uh, four to 5% death rate, which is huge. If you compare it with Germany, if you compare it with northern countries, with, with uh, France and so on. So the death rate, which is, let's say, officially reported like being higher in Romania, it's higher, not because of the vaccination rate. And also there is this uh, uh, article in European Epidemiology Journal on the 31st of September titled, uh, they, it says like, it goes like, the, the, the title goes like this. It says the number of cases of COVID cases is unrelated to the vaccination rate. This study is uh, performed on 69 countries 
and 2,497 counties in U.S. So it covers a huge population and demonstrates that there is no statistical relationship between how many people you jab and how many cases you have. No relation whatsoever. This is European Journal of Epidemiology, uh, which is basically a piece of paper we are using now in judiciary uh, because um, we want to prove that their proposed measure, basically lots of activists now, they go in, uh, into justice and they fight the government and they fight the shadow government, which is basically the emergency situation uh, organism they created, you know, to, mm -hmm. to create this kind of legal dictatorship, let's say. It's basically a shadow, a second government yeah. with unlimited powers. Uh, we we are going into into justice and we want to fight these people. I managed to defeat them and to eliminate for me, to suspend for me, because I'm the patent, you know, I, I, I was the part of the, of the uh, suing uh, activity there. Uh, the Green Pass uh, to enter, but not only the Green Pass, pass the conditioning of the three states, you know, vaccinated, uh, infected naturally or tested. So this condition was suspended for me, for the citizens of Aurelian. So I was defeating the government of Romania in justice. And has that so it doesn't matter any, how they tried. Yeah, yeah. Has Go that on. had have any effect on other people? Are there? If the uh, sentence stay definitive and irrevocable, then yes. It will be applied to all the people, but uh, because uh, I was the one starting it, I was asking the judge, look, I, I don't want to wait until the whole procedure uh, finalizes. Uh, here are my antibody tests. Here are my uh, studies translated, legally translated. Uh, just read them and see that everything is, is bullshit. And then you read the law and then you decide. And the judge said, okay. Aurelian Popa is right, government of Romania is wrong, therefore Aurelian Popa doesn't have to present any type of conditions to go wherever he wants to go. Because, because the judge decided on the data that you gave him that you have natural immunity, exactly. right? Exactly, exactly. Perfect. Exactly. I was proving my natural immunity and I also was proving that there is no judicial, there is no access to justice for us, the citizens, inside the 30 days of uh, prolonging uh, government, uh, how they call it, the government um, order. Mm -hmm. The way they do it here is like this. Every 30 days, they say, now we have another 30 days of, uh, let's say, alert situation, yeah, yeah. alert state. This is how they do it. Is a, is a government uh, is a government law. Let's say it doesn't go through parliament. Now, inside of those thirty days, we don't have enough time to go to the whole process in uh, injustice. You know, and I said because there's no access to justice, there's no time to judge everything inside of the thirty days. I ask you, the judge, to suspend for me, Aurelian Popa, the citizen, before the trial is finalized to just stop this conditioning because it's discriminating me. It's not okay. The antibodies I have are even more diverse, more durable, and it's, they are working better 
than the antibodies of a vaccine. And it's not okay, you're discriminating me. Me and the vaccine are in the same situation. Yet the vaccine can go everywhere if you want. I cannot go without spending money from my own pocket. That's not fair. That's discrimination. That's a situation of discrimination. And the judge apparently said, yeah, he's right. He's discriminated. Let's stop this, you know. Um, about the, the you uh, you pointed out that your country is not a very big country, um, but and then, and it's probably not possible to have these huge uh, rallies that we have in other parts of the world or in the bigger cities like Berlin uh, or London or uh, Paris. But um, when we first spoke, um, I think one of the most important things that you mentioned is that it is important to organize these rallies very well. And you know yeah. what, I, I, I think I told you that here in Germany for quite a while, these demonstrations, these rallies were not very effective because those, the people who, who were in charge of this made them into more or less meaningless, just feel-good rallies. So what do you mean by saying that we have to organize these rallies very well? Uh, what is the message? Is there a message that you want to convey through these rallies? How did you do it? Okay, uh, so first of all, the rallies we did, it, you know, it, uh, it's a 10, maybe 15 people's work, mm -hmm. you know, like, Kitik, uh, like Pompilio Diplan, like maybe uh, journalists like Josefina, maybe uh, people like Dimitri Balan, maybe, you know, ma many doctors and so on. About 15 people, let's say. But we went the, the route of having in major cities of Romania, about five cities, you know, mm -hmm. Constanza, Iași, Cluj, Timisoara, București, uh, to have a periodic, maybe smaller protest in order to shout in public uh, plazas, you know, to shut out the information. Because not many people have Facebook. Maybe not many people are connected in social media, but lots of people have two ears to hear whatever <laughs> some other person has to say, you know? And uh, to my uh, surprise, because, you know, I'm an IT guy, I'm inside of this technology, but to my surprise, if you go and hand over a flyer or to shout out in a public plaza, you are much more effective than uh, spending all this time in Facebook and posting all kind of information and being accused of fake news and maybe canceled, you know? Um, coming back to your question, I think the main form of protest is to not get vaccinated and to not generate a QR code. This is, this is like the, the foundation of the protest, in my opinion. In my opinion, and forgive me if I am very, you know, uh, let's say aggressive in this opinion. If a person gets the jab and then go to protest, the protest is not going to be, to be as effective as compared to a person that refuses the jab and go to protest. You know what I mean? Because the authorities won already if they, if they manage to trick you into accepting the needle into your shoulder. Mm -hmm. So, 1,000 people in street that are not vaccinated are more powerful, in my opinion, again, it's my opinion, than 1 million in street, out of which maybe 90% are vaccinated fully. 
this is a this is a uh, a social positioning thing you know because uh if you refuse the offer from the government that's already like a protest in itself it's like uh, civil, uh, how you call it, unrest, civil unrest, mm. disobedience, you know? Mm. Oh, you tell me it's so good, this vaccine? Yes, it's so good. And it's safe? Yes, it's safe. Uh, and it's effective? Yes, it's effective. Okay, I'm not going to get it. You know? Yeah. <laughs> I refuse. I refuse to seize my body and the choice over my body to you, the government. Why? Because there was not enough time it's simply the argument of time doesn't matter the data doesn't matter the study it's we didn't have enough time to see if it's safe or not how can you say it's safe if we have only one year baby how can you say it's effective if we didn't study over a number of variants it's, there was not enough time so i refuse your offer yes but i'm going to make some kind of uh, restrictions and constraints on you okay no problem. You do your work. I refuse to give my shoulders to you, to shoulder to you for, for the needle. I don't want to do that. And in my opinion, doing that and conserving the unvaccinated percentage of population does the trick in Romania. Yes, I think it's, it doesn't only do the trick in Romania. I think this is a very, uh, it, this is a generally effective way of fighting this because, you know, it is no coincidence that our first guest today, Professor Desmet from Belgium, said precisely that. He says, if we want to stop this, we must not, we must not slow down, but we must uh, continue to expose the true facts and we must resist. These two things, exposing everything and resisting, in a non-violent way, of course, that's what's going to turn the tide. It's us, the people, we have to take back our sovereignty and explain to the governments that we are not owned by them. It's the other way around. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And it's another thing I want to add here. Our protest in 21st of December 2021 had a huge symbolistic uh, uh, load there, charge, how, how, how can you call it? Mm -hmm. Why? Because the last day of Ceausescu's ruling, of our last dictatorship, communist dictator, dictator <laughs> was 21st of December one, uh, 1989. Mm -hmm. So they wanted to vote this law in the parliament of Romania when exactly on the 21st of December. This is not, this is not by chance. This yeah. is not like something random. It was ritualistic. Yes. They wanted to ritualistically execute Romanian people, yeah, the globalists, the neo-Marxists, whatever, exactly in the day when we managed to get rid of Ceausescu back uh, 32 years uh, uh, back, you know? Mm -hmm. This is very important. Yes. How can you dare, you, the political animal, to propose this voting on this day when people, you know, people died in streets in Romania in 89, 21st of December, to make Romania free, you know? There was like 2,000 people dying on the street 32 years ago. Exactly on the same day, you want to vote this Green Pass at work for us? No, 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 no. This is not going to happen. 
cynical. Yeah, it's very cynical. Yeah. It's it's again, there. It's almost as though they're trying to make fun of us. It's right in our faces. Yeah. We have to yeah. slap them right back. Mm. But you know, they were trying to defy the people. Yes. To defy. To defy. Yeah. But with regard to the, um, you know, the protest of the unvac unvaccinated, unfortunately in Germany we are in the situation that at least officially we don't know like what the real numbers are. Uh, how many millions are vaccinated now? How many percent? I think 60 percent or something like yeah, or the, even the, more. The real numbers could be 60 to 70 percent, but we don't know because there's so many fake um, vaccinations out there. We have the same situation here. We have people that decided to fake vaccinate just to get their QR code or to just declare themselves uh, sick to get their QR code. In my opinion, this is live on crack, you know, yeah. live on cracks. Uh, you, you try to, to go to, to bypass all this. No, no, I don't want to bypass regulation. I want to eliminate the tyrannical regulation. Mm -hmm. It's not a solution to just, uh, you know, find the crack and then live yeah. your life through the crack. Yeah, that's, that's true. not okay. But you know what, like with regards to these protests or like the walks that we now have everywhere in Germany, I think on last last Monday, it was like in 1,586 um, uh, cities and villages, you know, where people walked on the streets and it was like larger, larger and smaller numbers. But, you know, it's now there's vaccinated and unvaccinated, you know, joining together because they don't want to uh, comply anymore. And I think it, this one, I mean, I understand what you say about this, you know, that it's more effective or more stronger, you know, but this also has some sort of like healing um, element, you know, that I quite find yeah, yeah, quite yeah. interesting I, because I, I you have this you. solidarity, you. you know, and say, okay, we, we two joined forces and it's also about like really bridging the gap in this society. So I think have, this um, is this also We have situation here in Romania, like vaccinated people joining the protest and telling us you've been right. All this time, you've been right. Apologies. All what, everything you told us since May 2020 uh, is true now. It's not a conspiracy theory anymore. Uh, you've been right. I don't want to get vaccinated. Third dose, fourth dose, whatever. This is not a. This is not life. This is not life. This, you cannot call this life. This is not freedom. This is not. And we we want to join you. And uh, they come and protest with us, even if they, they are vaccinated. Some of, they are, some of them are still afraid, like wearing a mask and anything. But it's just, you know, small amounts of people coming to the protest wearing a, a mask. But yes, you're right. People that are vaccinated nowadays, they start to wake up. In my circle of friends, I don't know anybody not vaccinated that has severe Omicron infection. Nobody. But I know people that are vaccinated in my own personal circle. They are vaccinated and they have severe Omicron. They are in hospital. So it's the other way around now, you know. They, all, all the Omicron people going into hospital, they meet with each other, you know, being vaccinated there. <laughs> it's, it's kind of ironic, you know. And they said, they called me and they said, well, Aurelian, everybody here in hospital is vaccinated. What's going on? <laughs> you know. What's going on? It's only among us. It's, it's a vaccinated part, vaccinated party here. <laughs> <laughs> So, I mean, also we yeah. hear from, you know, victims of uh, like, you know, people who suffer from uh, vaccine injuries. Like, for instance, one had a, um, you know, what, what heißt eine Netzhautablösung? Oh. Um. Like the, you know, that your uh, retina, is that the, um, you know, uh, I'm going to look it up. That it, 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 you know, it's disconnected, basically. 
You know this, um, so like an eye. Uh, lose of sight, lose of sight, right? Lose of sight. Yes, but it's. Uh, I think it really like flips uh, or like gets disconnected from the back of your eye or something, and then you can't see anymore. Got it. So this got person it, got, got, it, got, got it. into the hospital with this problem, and then was uh, was really surprised to find out that of the twenty people who were with him in that situation, all these people ha got this problem after vaccination. Retinal. Uh, it, it's called retinal detachments. Yeah, retinal detachment. Retinal detachment. So uh -huh. people ultimately yeah. go blind because of this. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, here here in Romania we have lots of uh, of cases, documented cases about post vaccination uh, uh, severe reactions. We have even from military, uh, <laughs> you know, some guys that wanted to step up and say, look, this this vaccine basically ruined our lives, mm -hmm. including the professional life. And they stepped up. I, I presented them live on Aurelian Raw. We have also uh, doctors that were forced to get the vaccine. Now they said it was a bad decision for them because uh, this and this happened. Uh, many of the doctors, uh, some of the doctors died. You know, they died. They, they are dead. They are dead. Uh, for example, is this uh, situation I have in uh, one of the cities in Romania, uh, where basically the the nurses refused the vaccination the vaccination but the doctors 12 doctors said uh, let's go and vaccinate ourselves you know and out of the 12 doctors six six Whoa. six doctors had uh, adverse reaction and two died so out of the six two died now the other one the six that didn't have adverse reactions the doctors that didn't have adverse reaction are fighting with the nurses you know telling them why are you not vaccinated incredible are they incredible blind? situation <laughs> incredible situation yeah. so they have it right in front of their eyes yeah yeah six doctors uh, adverse reactions out of which two died they, they simply died you know they died like two weeks every these two died right after the vaccine you know and they still pushed for the nurses to get vaccinated this to me is completely i i i cannot explain this Humanly, logically, emotionally, I, I can. It's just unexplainable to my mind. I cannot well, explain. It, it, it must be like some sort of hypnosis. Um, yeah, it's the hypnosis. It's some paradox, um, you yeah. know, problem that they have because if they now I have to admit that they did made the mistake you know i think they'd rather want to include the others into their problem i mean like on a psychological level so uh it makes them maybe feel that it was the right thing to do so everyone has to do it i mean it's a very strange i, I cannot i also cannot yep. grasp it even with the price even with the price of risking the, de the risking death it's, i mean this is to me it's, it's yeah, a, no, I, I mean I can't. <laughs> yeah, it's it's insanity. It's the cognitive it's, dissonance. Yeah. It must be some sort cognitive of cognitive dissonance. Yeah, <laughs> cognitive dissonance. It's it's like here is something wrong. Here is something wrong to <laughs> yes. these people. I don't want to use strong words, but if you see that two of your two of twelve die, and you still want the vaccine, and you go into a fight with the nurses, and you want to me, that's like it's insanity. I don't know. It is insanity. There's something definitely yeah. wrong. Um, but it's all coming out into the open and more and more people everywhere are beginning to understand that this is not a winning game, as our previous guest said. It's not a winning game. And once you understand it, you want to get out of the game because you don't want to be in a, in a losing game. Exactly. 
Okay, well, Aurelian, thank you very much. This was uh, another important insight into what's going on in the Eastern European countries because they seem to be far ahead of us. I know when we first spoke, we also mentioned your member of the European Parliament, Christian Teres. Chris you're, you're good friends with him, right? Um, yes, yes. So I think it's important that we hear more from the Eastern European countries because it's very obvious that we should follow your example. It, it seems to lead to results. Remember, 40% vaccination rate. Remember, uh, sorry, I, I don't know if you hear me yeah, anymore. Yeah, I can still hear you. Mm -hmm. You can still hear me? Yes. So it's 30 percent 30 30 percent uh, vaccination rate no green pass at work a little bit of green pass for the restaurants mall and whatever mm -hmm. but that's about it that's about it life is still normal here maybe, maybe a little bit of masks for the kids in school but we are still fighting that no problem <laughs> that's about it maybe that's we should all move to the eastern european countries <laughs> Okay. Well, Aurelian, thank you very much for taking the time and giving us all these all these facts. This is very encouraging. Good news, and it proves that we're on the right track. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for the two of you, and thank you for having me. Have a Thanks have so a great much. weekend, Aurelian. We'll be in great touch. Great weekend. Bye bye. Okay. Bye bye. bye, -bye. God bless you. Bye. bye. See ya. Wolfgang, was sagst du? Hast du noch irgendwelche ganz wichtigen Informationen oder? Sollen wir jetzt doch nach Rumänien Do you have auswandern? Any vital information? Should we emigrate to Romania? Well, I already insinuated that apparently in those countries where they don't really be um, believe in the powers that be, um, traditionally have a distrust of the powers that be, um, apparently people are better off. And unfortunately, these is the corrupt countries. I mean, who would have thought that that institutional corruption, uh, which grew as a fact by the as as a result of the fact that um, you don't only just bribe civil individual civil servants, but the top of the echelons, but as a result of corruption and influence, and um, here the the top echelons in Germany and in Western Europe are now uh, staffed by people who just play ball. So um, I tried to set up a working group at Transparency, which was supposed to look at international organizations, and that was like four years ago. And many people were interested, but Transparency International didn't didn't want to play ball. So apparently the the top echelons, and I now know why, because institutional corruption does not end at the doorstep of this kind of institutions, because you have some people who make sure that the NGOs don't become too dangerous. So many NGOs, where you thought in the olden days, where this is a site for alternative views, for instance, physicians used to have sources independent sources for pharmaceuticals, uh, pharmaceutical telegram, this was published by Schütte. That was wonderful, but they're no, no longer involved. I mean, we don't hear anything about crit anything critical anymore. Evidence-based medicine is another institution we heard about a minute ago. It's so important. It puts lots of good questions, and they still put questions, and we still have critical voices with them. 
But at the very beginning of this whole story, they published something, a critical study, voiced something, but um, uh, they don't really raise their voice. Uh, I don't know what's happening there. Maybe sooner or later things will change. I think in the olden days, we used to have a rather large number of critical organizations, limited but uh, including but not limited to all rights. Um, and they, their voice has um, been dubbed down and uh, silenced down. And um, they were even present at hearings of the European Parliament. So it was even fashionable to include the critical stance viewpoint at EMA, for instance. The Parliament uh, refused to approve the EMA budget because the EMA didn't make sure that all the clinical trials were published. This is where Parliament really put its foot down. And here, this is what I would really welcome. Maybe a group of parliamentarians will make it uh, who now join forces across parliamentary groups and uh, maybe they can move a few things. Mm, I think they can't all be corrupt the representatives of the people, and I would like to encourage them. They should be brazen. They should not be scared of the uh, head of the parliamentary group. They should join forces across parliamentary boundaries. We set up the Alliance for Human Rights, the Enquete Committee against Schröder, Merkel, and these uh, um, people. And, um, you know, what did we achieve? Well, this... Uh, is what can happen if uh, if parliamentarians join forces across parliamentarian groups they don't lose their voting power quite the contrary they become much for uh, much stronger if they're not if they don't have to listen to the party whip and uh, hopefully this is going to increase because they would rescue our democracy and they would create a vociferous democracy if they joined forces and if if only they put big inquiries on cats or big questions this would be a wonderful thing it always gets back to the same thing we have to make sure that we can get this grassroots grassroots thing going because unfortunately we uh, have to see now that nearly all institutions have been corrupted at least at the top that's why we have to work with grassroots at the bottom with the people who aren't corrupt that's where we have to connect and uh, we're not the only ones who try to do that Look, they want to be re-elected sooner or later, many of them, and we won't forget how they behaved now. And they can save their head uh, if, they're, if they play their cards right now. So now they can show their true colors at, as Democrats and that they actually put up a fight for which they were sent into the fight, into the battle. And, uh, you know... Wolfgang, you know, on the other hand, uh, it's important that everybody uh, should come out and help that this thing be overcome and that things don't get worse. And on the other hand, I really have a very bad feeling vis-a-vis -vis people who, uh, well, I um, contacted all the uh, MPs at the very beginning of this crisis when I did my petition and uh, pointed them out to the problems that were um, visible already back then uh, concerning the children, isolation of old people, etc. And I have to say that somebody after two years, if they get their act together finally, it still uh, means that they absolutely must not uh, be entrusted with government anymore. That's my personal opinion. I don't want to discourage anyone, but I think that this is so crass 
you have to um, have seen this over the last two years. It's impossible that you haven't seen it at least on an intuitive basis and otherwise as well. And they had access to all the information. So I just wanted to say that at this uh, point, uh, Wolfgang, I have another um, uh, thing. Um, Italy always used to have the um, reputation of a corrupt country. Uh, and we can see that there is a very uh, tough agenda and that we can slip through uh, so easy um, as we um, hear it. And I don't know about Greece, where um, everybody uh, over 60 is supposed to be uh, forced to vaccinate. Is that true? Do you know anything about well, it? That's been discussed for quite some time, but I don't believe in that. And maybe there's many strategies for avoiding it right now. I can't really imagine that bureaucracy will be able to cope with that. Nah, I don't believe that either. They, they won't be able to anywhere in the world. Of course. Um, they get a letter and uh, they will have to do something, otherwise they will be sanctioned. So this is a huge, I mean, that's even worse than the IRS and the Tax Revenue Authority. And uh, I don't know whether that's sustainable in the long run, this effort. I have the same view. Um, they're using a huge illusion more than ever, and we can see they can't get their act together. Um, all those um, um, uh, people who uh, slip through the cracks that are so big um, um, because you don't have to wear any masks anymore, etc., that wouldn't happen if they were as all-powerful as they try to convince us they are. Now, for 5 million uh, euros, they bought back uh, Romanian uh, garbage in order to, you know, actually give it to uh, the people as uh, uh, vaccination doses. And that's so in your face. Now we know why this is now available for us, because nobody wants to have that stuff. I saw an interesting logistical uh, calculation recently. Um, it takes about uh, 10 seconds to make such a, a vial and um, it has been calculated that uh, a couple of billion have already been used in order to make them that would take several years. Even if you produce it on several lines in parallel, this calculation is interesting. How do you want to make all these effective uh, dosages that are that contain the same thing that are quality controlled how you want to produce them i think it's more plausible to think this um, idea that is um, um, plausible that there are many uh, doses that are nothing but saline solution and if you have such a saline solution and injected uh, for the companies that distribute it it has several positive effects. First of all, they can show us that there aren't so many uh, side effects, um, that it's not so dangerous. So they can basically water down the side effect. Um, then it's cheaper in production, um, but they get the same money for it. And at the same time, they can do research because they have their control groups. They have all sorts of advantages if they do that as the suspicions seem to uh, to imply if you look at the various um, uh, effectiveness in the various batches that we uh, find in the American uh, various database, we have been criticized 
uh, for our suspicion, they said, well, if the different charge batches are different uh, um, sizes, then the larger batches have more side effects than the smaller batches, of course. But um, we have been told that in uh, more than uh, 30 different batches for BioNTech, um, this has been uh, excluded, this possibility that the uh, batch sizes are so uh, similar that the larger uh, batches should have produced so many side effects. Well, the batch distribution and the logistics, that will be difficult to determine because the companies uh, won't give us the data, but that will be something uh, for public prosecutors. We could uh, demand that um, the um, public prosecutor's office in Mainz visits um, BioNTech uh, to look into their books, how things are documented, who's responsible, um, and uh, ask how come you have different effects? Is that does it always contain the same thing? And who's responsible for this? There's a number of questions that need to be asked. Well, I looked it up. That apparently, according to Cominati's product description, 300 to 700,000 uh, doses are included in one of these batches. So we would have to double check that. And somebody told me that there's a person in Denmark who's seriously ill now, and uh, the same dose was also used in Germany, and the same, and the, the person also got seriously ill. And maybe it's also so widely spread that uh, there's just one or two doses which were severely toxic. Well, I got an uh, email by a scientist uh, indicating that they're sifting through the European data because we can uh, discover the batches there. It's very difficult. It's a lot of work um, because it's not well organized. Um, um, you have to handpick it. So, of course, the manufacturers try to hide this, but the people who try to find this um, to determine a uh, connection between batches and side effects, that's really important um, if we have the suspicion that it's not always the same stuff. I doubt it. Uh, well, if so, they will probably only have done so because they weren't capable of producing that much. But I don't think generally they will just have used saline solution nearly willy. You always mention it again and again. They test for lots of different things, and we just don't know. And as long as we just don't know, we need to take seriously what Mike Yeadon and his uh, gang and also Diana McLeod found out today. I mean, there's absolutely zero indication in this uh, stuff you can trust. You can't trust the OEMs, you can't trust the government. Well, the committees that have to um, accept these uh, things. Imagine if we had a vaccination committee that really demands uh, studies that are um, meaningful. Um, and if, if we don't have uh, meaningful studies, and um, the ethics committee um, signs this, um, waves this through. Well, then, what kind of an ethics committee is it? Um, if I see what they do, that's really um, synonymous of corruption. Well, 
For instance, 20 years ago, it uh, seemed to be different. I was at uh, Göttingen University Clinic and also in the Hanover Ethics Commission, and I was standing in for my uh, boss, Pro uh, Professor Deutsch, and it seemed to be clean. So the process you need to go through in order to register new pharmaceuticals or to test new pharmaceuticals or new methods of treatment tended to work, but uh, it was serious. But this does not seem to be the case at all anymore. But the layout, I mean, what they Describe this is slapstick, it's rubbish. Well, we observed that for a, a long period of time in the uh, health committee within transparency, and that was one of the uh, focal uh, areas for the work of the ethics commit, uh, committee. And um, uh, we tried to put it on the agenda a, a few years ago that uh, that would have been an important uh, question. But if you know that research is no longer done by the so-called researching pharmaceutical companies. Uh, they don't do research anymore. They have research institutes or research organizations, CROs. Uh, what they offer, um, if you take a look at what they offer, they say we have we uh, take your products to market. We have good relations to the media, to the um, um, regulators, etc., then their advertising approach is to circumvent all the um, barriers to launching um, pharmaceutical products to market. And um, Professor Windler just uh, um, uh, published a press release on uh, the results of a study uh, dealing with the um, licensing of um, cancer um, medication. Um, there are different types of uh, cancer, of course. The uh, more you break it down into sub um, 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 or um, sub variants of um, cancer, and um, if you break it down ever more, then you get to small uh, groups of people and you can't do a lot of research and you wind up with orphan drugs. And um, so that means they can just try out things and they can uh, deliver the results afterwards. And it was found that more than half of those orphan drugs have no benefit at all, that the benefit, uh, cost-benefit ratio is very negative, more than half. And those are the drugs where the pharmaceutical companies earned most money. They earned huge money over the last 10 years, um, one dose costs more than a thousand euro and these are those orphan drugs and they make huge business with it and this is this mafia who then use this with their clinical research organizations um, twisting things and planning things and uh, massaging the um, um, regulatory authorities um, so you can see uh, the problems that these uh, people at ICWIC uh, run into this professor um, is a very uh, smart uh, man, he wasn't uh, asked about his opinion, not uh, concerning the vaccinations or uh, the masks. Um, the governments and the health insurance companies uh, could have asked these questions. And um, if ICWIC um, is charged with uh, uh, analyzing something, then they have to publish their results. And then they would have had to say with this vaccination, for Christ's sake, not fund it, don't fund it with public um, 
uh, funds. If uh, they had seen the studies that we just saw now, they would have certainly said, for Christ's sake, do not uh, pay for it. So the benefit is not obvious at all, and the damage may be much larger, and it is, as we can see now. And they're still continuing um, vaccinating. They're still sitting there saying, we're the people who will protect you. And they just leave us in the lurch with this. Uh, this is really sad. I'm a um, patient representative, probably not much longer anymore. My um, commission is running out there. It's really horrible what you can see. That's institutional corruption. That is the worst kind of institutional corruption that we can see now. That's crazy. Well, uh, the, the orphan dogs uh, drugs uh, story is vampirism. Uh, that's yeah. really perverse. Uh, well, I think that was a lot of food for thought, and we found out a lot today, and that's insane. So we're now in the middle of uh, contacting a research organization or building a research organization so that we can um, investigate the effects uh, and um, further on a more stable basis. And based on the foregoing, we rely on donations. I would like to point out that we are also funding this project. And of course, uh, we would very much appreciate support for this issue. Okay, on that note, we also get um, technical support from Oval Media, which also relies on uh, donations. They are in the final throes of uh, finishing their Corona film. And of course, they would also very much appreciate um, some support on the final search stretches. Anyway, thank you very much. And Rainer, what else? We have uh, three videos, one of them very impressive, this lady who says just don't go along in a very impressive way, and the other two films are on the one hand uh, the film by Larkin Rose, very impressive for the English-speaking um, uh, viewers, and then there's um, not exactly the German version of this. Um, from Bremerhaven, um, it is in the same vein, it's very encouraging. Okay, I'd say, and, okay, um, say keep um, at it. <laughs> and there's always new uh, songs on this uh, topic, and the musicians, my sister just told me, there's this uh, group um, uh, who are publishing a new video today, and this is really important. Comedians who make fun of the people who um, uh, betray us here, they do so much uh, for overcoming the fear of people uh, wake, uh, to wake up, and I would like to thank them. And we need them, especially because they can't get there, the idiots. Yes, um, in this uh, sense, have a nice evening, a good weekend, and see you next weekend. Okay, see you next weekend. Hi, have you been disobedient today? If you haven't been disobedient today, you should get started right now. So you don't need to go into the resistance. You don't need to oust anyone from the country or, you know, put the coat, the 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 the, the um, knife at somebody else's throat. You just need to be disobedient. That's all. The um, powers that be will stop ruling if uh, the people will stop obeying. And Bertolt Brecht, he was a clever man. So 
also if I um, shout at the top of my lungs for um, for peace and freedom and then I go to work the next morning with a mask and with a test and with a vaccination is nothing to do with vaccination. 82 million people in Germany can take to the street and shout for freedom and democracy but if they go to work the next morning shout uh, with the negative test and vaccinated has nothing to do with resistance. They are laughing their heads off. This will only end if everybody throws away their mask and says, uh, faces their boss and says, stop it, you know, that's it, I've had enough, I will stop working if you force me to wear a mask. And this is how this is going to stop in no time. Of course, you may turn around, she's got an easy job, what's going to happen if I don't work anymore, if I can't earn money anymore, be, can't be a breadwinner anymore, can't pay my mortgage anymore. People are kept in anxiety and of course they play this game top down. People are scared of uh, not being able to pay their mortgage or falling, becoming unemployed. But what they don't understand is that if everybody plays ball, everybody will be destitute. This is what the Agenda 2030 is all about. Nobody will have any house or own anything in that. If you continue to go with a certificate to work with a mask, then you will lose everything, your house, your home. Germans won't have any ownership in 2030. So before the cash system will be toppled, you need to hand everything over to the government. We won't own anything and we will love it. And you will remember Klaus Schwab's word, you will rent the house you work, you live in, you will rent the car. This is the agenda. As long as you're obedient and follow the system, you can earn it. But if you lose credit points, then you are going to be penalized and you will lose everything. They can switch you off. You are out. You are no longer part of the system. This is part of the plan. Everything will be taken away from you. You will be sitting there without a home, without clothes, without food on the road, and of course without cash. And there's no way in which you can get your hands on the cash because the currency system will be done away with the cash system. So you won't be able to afford to live anywhere to um, or to, to dress yourself because you were obedient but and everything will be much worse than what will happen if you put your foot down and say, no, I go into resistance. Okay, who cares? I mean, if they send us home, I mean, what are, going, what are the CEOs going to do if uh, you just say, no, I won't come with my certificate. I won't come with a mask. This is the only way out. You no longer play ball. No longer play ball. This is going to be over. It's a game they play with us. Turn away from that game. So just leave it. The game, uh, Corona, will be over if you stop the game. If you no longer follow the rules, you will decide who you uh, will be free under which circumstances. The people who are taking walks, straws at the Monday walks, are many more people on the road than are sitting in the German parliament. And if those people on the road uh, at the strolls uh, don't go to work the next day, everything will be over. If people go to the roads and if many thousand people understand that they no longer need to play ball, then it's going to be over tomorrow. What will they do? They can't do anything. They can't force you. This is just your future. It's 
that easy. The game is over. So uh, everybody has understood that they are taking the piss. I mean, how many people took the vaccination so they would be able to continue to work? If they stayed at home, everything would be over overnight. The best thing that we can do is ignore the federal parliament. What will they do if nobody listens to them? So start assuming a responsibility for yourself. Start becoming disobedient. No longer play ball. They can't do anything if we don't play ball anymore. So just throw the masks out. Forget about the certificates and, and everything will work out fine. Bye-bye. Cheerio. I don't know if I count as famous, but I'm at least infamous for annoying governments by introducing people to the idea that there cannot be such thing as a legitimate ruling class at all. Most people are so stuck in the paradigm of who should we elect to office, what form should our government take, what should it do, and what should it control, what should it fund. The whole discussion rests on the paradigm that there is such thing as a legitimate government, and then they bicker over the details. There isn't such thing as a legitimate ruling class. It shouldn't be doing anything. It shouldn't even be there. And that's a huge shock to most people's way of thinking, to even begin imagining a world in which there isn't a ruling class, there isn't a government. And people usually react by thinking, oh, it's going to be mayhem and death and destruction and we'll all be like wild animals, which isn't the case. It's like if an animal's been raised its whole life in a cage and you open the cage door, it looks out and says, I don't know what's out there. I'm scared to death of what's out there because I have no idea what it would be like. Humanity wasn't meant to be a domesticated species owned by a ruling class that was actually supposed to be the top, where every human being owns himself, is in charge of his own life. The idea that we need to be managed like cattle by a ruling class, even a tiny ruling class, because over here in the U.S., the whole supposed point of the Constitution was to make the ruling class really nice and really small and really weak and do mm -hmm. hardly anything, which, of course, didn't turn out that way, it turned into this giant war machine with a huge extortion racket and everything else. But even the theory, like a lot of Americans say, we have to get back to the Constitution. And I say, well, why do you think it would be any better the second time around? There's a reason that was doomed to lead to this, because it didn't quite do away with the idea that a ruling class can be legitimate, that somebody can actually have authority over you, meaning you have to throw away your own ability to judge right from wrong and just obey what they say. That's basically the essence of the belief in authority in government, that you have an obligation to bow to somebody else's ideas and opinions over your own. There are lots of good people out there who are condoning what amounts to widespread evil, because it isn't just the person who votes who gets lied to and then duped and then whoops, I, you know, I'm paying the price for being a bonehead. The person who votes puts into power people who rob millions and millions of his neighbors and then go wage war on the other side of the world and are killing people. It's people's good intentions plus their belief in government that leads to these horrendous results. We have a world of people where most of them believe in a superstition called authority that twists their goodness and their virtue and their compassion that takes good people and converts their energy and their production into power for the nastiest people in the world who go around murdering and robbing people by the millions. And if people would just overcome that superstition and recognize it for what it is, the vast majority of injustice would be gone overnight because the vast majority of injustice, it's done by people who think, well, this is authority. 
I have to enforce the law and the other people saying, well, we have to obey the law and we have to just vote for who we want and make them take everybody else's money. They play the game that gets them enslaved and gets everybody else enslaved just because they don't understand the game is a gigantic lie. It's just an illusion and people need to give that up. As far as the myth itself among everybody, all of recorded history shows examples of people who come along and say, I have the right to rule you and lots of other people believe them. They used to call themselves churches. Now they almost always call themselves government. It's the same thing. It's a group that does that. Part of that can be misunderstanding passed on. But what we have today is very intentionally engineered and planned. The current form of authoritarian indoctrination traces back directly to the Prussian indoctrination system, which they openly said, we're trying to come up with a way to train people to not have any will other than what the ruling class wants them to have. In other words, to not have free will, to not have any choice of their own, to just be easily controlled and manipulated tools for the masters, the ruling class. And they openly admitted that was the goal of the Prussian indoctrination system. And that's what modern schooling is modeled after directly. They said, well, what do we have to put kids through so that when we tell them go over there and kill somebody, they do it. Yeah. Literally, that yeah. was one of the main goals of the system upon which the U.S. education system is based. And it still does it. And it still works. The whole approval, disapproval thing, that the one thing you learn in school is if you do as you're told, you get approval and reward. And if you don't do as you're told, you get disdain and condemnation. They might not hit you, but they'll make sure everybody knows you're a bad person because you didn't do as you were told. Because the rulers actually realize we need them to be really stupid at this point, because if they can start to think for themselves, the game is up. I think that the myth of authority in government is completely doomed. The number of people who understand that they own themselves just exponentially exploding just in the last few years. I know thousands of people who have given up the belief in government. Ten years ago, I knew maybe three. So it's definitely speeding up. Humanity as a whole seems to get to a point where it's suddenly ready for a new idea and then the individuals in it suddenly seem able to think about it when before they weren't. Because every once in a while when I watch the news and I watch a political campaign, it stuns me that anybody believes a word that comes out of their mouth. Yeah. I, I don't know if I'm just more in tune with the way they spin things or if it's actually gotten that much stupider. But it really seems to me like their propaganda is just so pathetic. It may be a symptom of they realize, well, the smart people, we're not going to get them anymore. So we have to keep as many people completely incapable of thought. At the same time, there are a lot of people waking up. So it may be that the control freaks are just giving up on a large portion of society and just trying to keep enough other people so incapable of thought that they can still be controlled and enslaved. But even that's going to be temporary. Because when enough people understand it, even those who don't are going to benefit from the ones who do, basically ending the injustice that's done in the name of law. To be the most successful tyranny, a king can't do that because a king is just saying, well, I get to rule you just because. If you want to do a, a higher level of control and monitoring and violence everywhere, democracy and a republic is way better because you go around stomping people and stealing their money and saying, well, we're doing this 
this on behalf of the people. Because if you say I'm doing this on behalf of the king, eventually somebody gets fed up and knocks the king's head off. But if you can tell the people we're stomping on you and robbing you and controlling all your choices for the common good and for you and you voted for it and we're representing you, mm-hmm. all the propaganda that comes along with it makes it so they can get away with a lot more than any king ever could. I mean, what King George III did to the colonists was nothing compared to what every single Congress and president does to the people here. It's not even close. If you look at what they had a revolution over, it was ridiculous. There was no income tax. There was these little few percent taxes on tea and pieces of paper. Whoopie do. They had a revolution <laughs> over that. And yet every July 4th, Americans are out there waving their flags. Yay, we're independent of this tiny little trivial tyrant that we used to have. And now we have this giant monstrosity that people imagine to be working for us and representing us and all the other rhetoric that goes into making it look legitimate when it isn't. And so they put up with a lot worse than I think they would if some king just came along and said, I'm just going to rule you because I can starting at the bottom level, the cops are part of the ruling class because they get to boss people around and hurt people. And the politicians, to me, are just sort of a step up from them. They're still somebody else's puppet. They're still playing a game somebody else built, but they get their own little bunch of power out of it. So they're part of it, but I don't at all think that they're the top. Some people say, oh, you think it's a conspiracy? Of course it's a conspiracy. You go to a supermarket to buy a drink. How much planning and thought people put into even trivial things of, well, we want to sell a candy bar. Well, what do you put on the commercial and what do you make it look like? And how do you, if they work that hard just to sell a candy bar, how hard do you think someone's going to work to enslave the world? And they spent zillions of dollars figuring out what they should put on the label to have people buy it. That's planning and conspiring. To think that for some reason people wouldn't do that when it comes to politics is just insane. Of course, they spent tons of money and tons of thought on how do we control people? How do we get as much power over them as we possibly can without them resisting or running away or shooting at us or something? I think one of the biggest challenges is most good people can't really understand how sociopaths function. So they have a hard time believing that there are some people who really don't care if they kill thousands of people on their way to getting power. And if you can't imagine that there are such people, then you say, well, no, they can't. It must have been by accident or a misunderstanding or something that couldn't have been on purpose because nobody would be that evil because normal people cannot relate to sociopaths. And I think most of the people in office, especially high up, and the people beyond them, the puppet masters or whatever you want to call them, are totally sociopaths. They don't have empathy or sympathy with actual human beings. And they don't mind starting wars and killing millions of people if they think it'll help their investment over here and give them a little more leverage over there. The average good person doesn't even want to aim his thought process in the direction that might tell him, wow, there are some people in the world with that much power who don't care if millions of human beings die. To them, it's like stepping on an anthill. And we better understand that and realize that there is nothing they won't do to empower themselves. And if we aren't willing to see them for what they are, we won't know how to deal with them. We won't know how to to resist and stop it from happening. These are inhuman people. They really don't care. The only reason they wouldn't kill us all is because then they'd have nobody to enslave. Any position in which you're going to have power over other human beings, like the power to boss them around and hurt them if they disobey, is going to attract nastier people 
And however nasty you are going in, it's going to make it worse. For the people at the top, I think that's probably just genuine sociopaths. I think they're people who really are incapable of empathy. And there's even been psychologists writing papers about how politicians totally fit the mold of sociopaths who really have no remorse and they have no empathy for other human beings. To them, the whole life, the whole world is about how do they get what they want and they can pretend to have empathy if it gets them what they want and they can pretend to care about people if it gets what they want and they can sound sincere if it gets them what they want they make much better liars because they feel no guilt about lying most of us if we have to lie it looks like we're lying because we feel bad about it because we don't want to lie to other people sociopaths don't have that problem they don't care they don't feel guilt and i think the people at the very top are probably mostly or entirely those people but in between a lot of people go there because they want to be on a power trip and the people who aren't get made into that. I think the most succinct, accurate definition I've seen, which used to be in a bunch of dictionaries, is government is the exercise of authority over a people or place. And so to me, the crux is really authority. And that is the right to rule. It's not just the ability to control other people, because most people have that in one way or another. It's the right. It's the idea that certain people, it's legitimate for them to forcibly control others, not just because of the situation, not like like saying I have the right to get the little old lady's purse back from the mugger, but because I am something special and you are my subject, so I have the right to rule you. And that ties in with about the cop because the best way to bypass somebody's conscience is to convince them that they're not acting on behalf of themselves. And mm -hmm. cops will say, hey, I don't make the law, I just enforce it. As if I'm not responsible for my actions, I'm just a tool of some weird thing somewhere else called government. And it really does imply you can't blame me for what I am personally doing because I'm not really doing it. Something <laughs> else is making me do it. Again, the belief in authority leads everybody, good people, bad people, everything in between, to advocate and do bad things they wouldn't otherwise do. Just if that was removed, that excuse of authority in government and law and all the other terminology that goes along with it, if that was removed, most cops, however secretly sadistic they might be, wouldn't dare to do this stuff, whether it's from public condemnation or just from being scared of what somebody else might do to them. The only reason most of them do what they do is because they believe in authority and they really believe that legislation gives them an exemption from morality. They really and truly believe that. So that when they do something and someone says, hey, what you're doing is bad. Well, I don't make the law. I just enforce it. I'm just following orders. Belief in government is a purely faith-based, indoctrinated belief. It doesn't actually make any sense in practical terms or in evidence or in logic to the point where, yeah, it's some people, they weren't even, they weren't gods or anything. Some people wrote down a thing on paper and then they called it legislation and they called it law. They did certain rituals to pretend to magically make it something special. Mm -hmm. And then people go around saying, well, this is law. That shows me how important it is for people to get rid of this insane belief in authority because literally it makes two thirds of a Americans into murderers waiting to happen. If authority comes along and says, hey, murder that guy, two thirds of Americans probably will just because they believe in authority. Even if people know they don't have any legal obligation to do so, people have such a hard time disobeying a perceived authority. Oh, well, I guess I have to put up with it. It's just a little aversion of the Milgram experiment. Most people literally feel physical 
natural discomfort and fear at the thought of disobeying anyone in authority. I don't just mean the fear of he might beat me up. Even when you know he isn't going to do anything, most people can't say, no, I'm not going to do that. Even if they manage to say no, they'll be nervous and terrified and feel uncomfortable because it goes against their years and years of programming and indoctrination that trains them to think, if you do as you're told, you're good. If you don't, you're bad. That's the message of school. And that message gets pounded in people's heads. It is the primary problem of human society and has been for thousands of years. The reason they're able to do that is because all of their victims hallucinate a thing called authority and they couldn't get away with it if their victims didn't imagine it to be legitimate. It's a very enlightening glimpse into what government really is beneath the rhetoric and the propaganda we're taught and the fact that they don't care about their laws and they don't care about justice and they don't care about anything. They put on a facade of due process and all these flowery, nice sounding things, but underneath it's just brute force and they will lie, cheat and steal all they have to, to keep their human livestock enslaved. Was ich euch heute zu sagen habe, ist nicht schön. Allen, die es aushalten, bis zum Ende zuzuhören und sich dann zu Frieden zurücklehnen, weil die anderen ihr Fett weggekriegt haben, möchte ich sagen, hört es euch nochmal an und sucht nach Stellen, die auf euch zutreffen. Es gibt bestimmt mindestens eine. Der gesetzestreue fromme Wähler ist eine größere Bedrohung für die Menschlichkeit als der zügelloseste, faulste, grasrauchende Hippie. Warum? Weil der Hippie bereit ist, andere frei sein zu lassen und der brave Bürger nicht. Der Schaden an der Gesellschaft durch schlechtes Benehmen und niedere Moral Einzelner ist nichts gegen den Schaden, den selbstgerechte Gewalt verübt im Namen des Gesetzes anrichtet. Der Unterschied zwischen euch und einem normalen Dieb ist, dass der Dieb selbst stiehlt, während ihr nach der Regierung jammert, damit sie für euch stiehlt. Der Unterschied zwischen euch und einem Straßenschläger ist, dass er Gewalt für seine Zwecke selbst anwendet, während ihr eure Mitbürger durch Zwang vom Staat beherrschen lasst. Die Verbrecher an der Regierung sind eure Repräsentanten, aber ihr übernehmt keine Verantwortung für das Böse, das sie in eurem Namen begehen. Diebstahl, Nötigung, Körperverletzung und sogar Mord. Wie bequem, andere für alle Schlechte verantwortlich machen zu können, nicht? Ihr nennt euch Anhänger einer Religion, aber was ihr Religion nennt, ist nur Blendwerk. Trotz aller Kirchen, Synagogen und Moscheen habt ihr nur einen Gott, vor dem ihr wirklich kniet. Und der wird Regierung genannt. Du sollst nicht stehlen, du sollst nicht töten. Es sei denn, man tut es mit Hilfe des Staates, dann ist das okay. Wenn man es in Steuern und Kriege umbenennt, dann ist es keine Sünde mehr. Es war doch bloß Gott, der sagte, dass du nicht stehlen sollst. Aber der Staat sagt, es ist okay, wenn er es tut. Es ist offensichtlich, wessen Aussage für euch mehr zählt. Ihr seid Mitglieder des bösesten Kults aller Zeiten. Wenn es einen Teufel gibt, ist es der Staatsapparat und ihr betet ihn ergeben an, damit er eure Probleme löse, eure Bedürfnisse erfülle, eure Feinde zerschmettern und sein Füllhorn über euch ausschütten möge. Ihr betet an, was Nietzsche das kälteste aller Monster nannte und ihr hasst alle, die es nicht tun. Für euch ist Ungehorsam gegen den Staat die größte Sünde. Ihr nennt es das Gesetzbrechen. Als ob irgendwer die moralische Pflicht hätte, den Anweisungen und Forderungen von korrupten, verlogenen Größenwahnsinnigen zu gehorchen. Wo immer ihr euch hinwendet, ob Staat, Kirche, Schulen oder Medien, wird euch vor allem eins beigebracht. Es ist tugendhaft, euch Sterblichen zu unterwerfen, die behaupten, euch rechtmäßig zu regieren. Es ist krank, wie verehrungsvoll ihr von den Lügnern und Dieben sprecht, die eure, ihren Fuß auf euren Nacken gesetzt haben. Ihr nehmt diese selbsternannten Säulen der Gesellschaft wichtig und ihr erstarrt vor Ehrfurcht, wenn sie euch begegnen. Die Wahrheit ist, 
dass diese Parasiten keine höheren Wesen sind. Sie sind keine großen Männer und Frauen, sie sind nicht ehrenhaft, sie sind bestenfalls durchschnittlich. Sie mögen besser gekleidet und sein und einen größeren Wortschatz haben als ihr, aber sie sind nicht besser als Diebe und Gewalttäter. Genau genommen sind sie schlimmer, denn jene wollen nur euren Besitz, aber diese wollen euch eure Menschlichkeit berauben und euch euren freien Willen nehmen, indem sie euch eure Denkfähigkeit und euer Urteilsvermögen abgewöhnen. Und ihr beharrt darauf, sie Anführer zu nennen? Wo genau wollt ihr denn hin, dass ihr dafür einen Anführer braucht? Wenn ihr einfach euer Leben lebt, euch um eure eigenen Angelegenheiten kümmert, eure Talente nutzt und danach strebt, das zu sein, was ihr sein wollt, welchen Nutzen hat dann ein Anführer? Warum glaubt ihr auch nur einen Moment, dass diese Gauner, die eure Stadt oder euer Landheim suchen, Leute sind, auf die man hören, die man nachahmen oder denen man irgendwohin folgen sollte? Nur dumme, unfähige Kreaturen brauchen einen Anführer. Ihr wisst genau, dass alle Politiker korrupte Lügner und Diebe, Ausbeuter und Panikmacher sind. Ihr wisst das alles und denkt, dass es diese Gauner sind, die Zivilisation erst möglich machen? Das ist absurd. Wenn sie beraten, wie sie euch diese Woche das Fell über die Ohren ziehen wollen, dann nennt ihr es Gesetz und ihr seht ihre willkürlichen Forderungen als strenge Gebote der Götter an, an deren Missachtung kein anständiger Mensch auch nur denken darf. Der bloße Umstand, dass ein paar Gauner Worte niederschreiben und sie zu Gesetzen erklären, deren Nichtbefolgung, Drohungen und Strafen nach sich ziehen, bedeutet eben nicht, dass jeder die Pflicht hat, ihnen zu gehorchen, vor allem, wenn diese Gesetze sich gegen die Menschlichkeit richten. Jeden Moment und in jeder Situation habt ihr nur die eine Pflicht, das zu tun, was euch richtig erscheint, nicht was aufgeblähte Windbeutel für legal erklären. Doch das würde erfordern, dass ihr nach eurem Gewissen entscheidet, was richtig und falsch ist und auch dazu steht. Eine Verantwortung, vor der ihr gerne davonlauft. Ihr seid so stolz, gesetzestreue Bürger zu sein und verachtet jeden, der eure Gesetze übertritt. Gesetze, die oft nicht mehr sind als die egoistischen Launen von Erpressern und Dieben. Das Wort Verbrechen bedeutete früher, einem anderen Schaden zuzufügen. Neuerdings bedeutet es, einer der vielen willkürlichen Anweisungen nicht zu gehorchen, die von kriminellen Parasiten kommen. Der Begriff Verbrechen bedeutet für euch Sünde. Ihr glaubt, dass keiner schlimmer ist als der Gesetzesbrecher, der es wagt, den Parasiten den Gehorsam zu verweigern. Ihr fragt selbst dann noch um Erlaubnis, wenn ihr tatsächlich gegen einzelne Ungerechtigkeiten der herrschenden Ausbeuter aufbegehren wollt. Und ohne deren Segen und Siegel ist Protest illegal. Das ist doch grotesk. Ihr sprecht mit Ehrerbietung von den Gesetzeshütern, die uns gewaltsam die Launen der Politiker aufzwingen. Wenn der Staat Gewalt gebraucht, denkt ihr, es wäre rechtmäßig und gerecht. Und wenn sich jemand widersetzt, dann ist er für euch ein verachtenswerter, gesetzloser, terroristischer Krimineller. Wie die gesetzlosen, terroristischen Kriminellen die Sklaven zur Flucht verhalfen. Wie die gesetzlosen, terroristischen Kriminellen die Juden vor dem Terror des Dritten Reichs schützten. Wie die gesetzlosen, terroristischen Kriminellen, die von den Panzern der rot-chinesischen Regierung zerquetscht wurden. Wie all die gesetzlosen, terroristischen Kriminellen in der Geschichte, die den Mut hatten, den endlosen Strom von Tyrannen und Unterdrückern, die ihre Gewaltexzesse, Obrigkeit und Gesetz nannten, den Gehorsam zu verweigern. Euer Glaubenssystem ist wirklich verrückt. Einerseits bringt ihr den jungen Sklaven bei, dass Gewalt niemals die Antwort ist. Und auf der anderen Seite gebt ihr der Regierungsgewalt das Recht, jeden jederzeit und überall zu verfolgen, zu besteuern, zu kontrollieren und zu bestrafen. Ihr bringt Kindern bei, dass die Herren Gewalt gebrauchen können, wenn es ihnen gefällt und dass wir, die Sklaven, keinen Widerstand leisten dürfen. 
Ihr dressiert eure Kinder und verdammt sie zu einem stupiden, abhängigen und unterwürfigen Leben. Ihr legt ihnen die Ketten des Gehorsams um ihre kleinen Hälse und das Schlimmste von allem, ihr fühlt euch auch noch gut dabei. Einerseits verdammt ihr das Böse des Faschismus und Sozialismus, klagt über die Ungerechtigkeiten der Regimes von Hitler, Stalin und Mao. Und andererseits macht ihr nichts anderes. Ihr unterstützt die Verehrung des Kollektivs und die Unterdrückung des Individuellen und klebt das trügerische Label Gemeinwohl darauf. Ihr labert endlos über Vielfalt und Aufgeschlossenheit und dann fleht ihr den Staat an, das Leben aller Menschen zu kontrollieren und zu regulieren. Ihr denkt, dass euch verschiedene Kleidung und verschiedene Frisuren zu etwas Besonderem machen, seid aber gleichzeitig willige Sklaven der Obrigkeit. Ihr denkt und tut, was sie euch einflüstern und aufdiktieren und haltet euch für denkende, erleuchtete Wesen. Ihr traut lieber deren Urteil als eurem eigenen und tretet so die natürliche Gabe des freien Denkens mit Füßen. Aus eurer relativ komfortablen Position heraus verdammt ihr das Böse in anderen Ländern oder anderen Zeiten, während ihr für das Böse direkt vor euch blind seid. Ihr sagt euch, wenn ihr in jenen anderen Zeiten oder Zonen gelebt hättet, würdet ihr zu denen gehört haben, die gegen Unterdrückung aufstanden und die Schwachen verteidigten. Ja, ihr wärt bei Gandhi, Wilhelm Tell und bei den Geschwistern Scholl gewesen. Aber das ist eine Lüge. Ihr werdet genau hier, bei dem Rest der gut dressierten Herde, die lauthals verlangte, dass die Sklaven geschlagen, die Hexen verbrannt, die Nonkonformisten, Rebellen und Ungläubigen vernichtet werden. Woher ich das weiß? Weil es genau das ist, was ihr heute tut. Ihr haltet alle, die anders denken, bloß für nörgelnde Außenseiter. Leute, deren Rechte unwichtig sind. Leute, die unter dem Stiefel der Staatsgewalt zertreten werden müssen. Ihr Rückladrad und gedankenlosen Heuchler, guckt in den Spiegel, seht euch genau an, was ihr für Rechtschaffen und Gut haltet. Ihr lasst die heutigen Ungerechtigkeiten und Unterdrückungen geschehen, solange ihr nicht selbst betroffen seid. Denn ihr seid ja gute, gehorsame Bürger. Die Massen, die begeistert Hitlers Reden applaudierten, das wart ihr. Der Mob, der verlangte, dass Jesus ans Kreuz genagelt wurde, das wart ihr. Die weißen Invasoren, die die Vernichtung der gottlosen Rothäute forderten, das wart ihr. Das brüllende Volk im Kolosseum, wo Christen an die Löwen verfüttert wurden, das wart ihr. Die Soldaten, die auf Befehl Zivilisten töteten, das wart ihr. Die Leute, die das alles sahen und schwiegen, auch das wart ihr. Die ganze Geschichte menschlichen Leidens und schreiender Ungerechtigkeit konnte nur wegen Menschen wie euch geschehen. Die gut erzogenen, folgsamen Bürger, die Menschen, die glaubten, was ihnen gesagt wurde und taten, was die Autoritäten ihnen zu tun befahlen, das wart ihr. Ihr seid nicht ignorant, weil euch die Wahrheit nicht zugänglich ist. Es hat seit Jahrtausenden Radikale gegeben, die sie euch gesagt haben. Radikale wie Jesus, Luther, Gandhi oder Kopernikus. Nein, ihr seid ignorant, weil ihr die Realität scheut. Ihr schließt die Augen und rennt weg, wenn auch nur ein Hauch von Erkenntnis in Sicht kommt und euch zum Handeln auffordert. Ihr verdammt jene als Extremisten und Irre, die versuchen, euch die Ketten zu zeigen, die ihr tragt und die euch helfen wollen, sie abzuwerfen. Aber ihr wollt nicht frei sein, denn das hieße verantwortlich sein. Echte Verantwortung für euer Handeln jagt euch eine Höllenangst ein. Also haltet ihr an eurer Sklaverei fest, duckt euch und schlagt nach jedem, der versucht, euch zu befreien. Ihr plappert nach, was eure Herren euch gelehrt haben, dass Freiheit nur zu Chaos und Zerstörung führt, während gehorsame Unterwerfung Frieden und Wachstum bringt. Aber jeder Blick in eine beliebige Nachrichtensendung oder Zeitung beweist, dass sie lügen. 
Niemand ist so blind wie der, der nicht sehen will. Und ihr würdet vermutlich lieber sterben, als die Wahrheit zu sehen. Denn ihr wisst ganz genau, wenn ihr hinseht, fordert eure Menschlichkeit von euch zu handeln und euch zu widersetzen. Und davor habt ihr Angst. Genauer gesagt habt ihr vor der möglichen Strafe der Herren Angst oder vor dem missbeliebenden Blick des Nachbarn. Für einen Menschen mit Herz, gesunden Menschenverstand und Achtung vor der Schöpfung seid ihr blinden, blinden Gehorsamsfanatiker wirklich schwer zu ertragen, weil ihr jeden Versuch boykottiert, eure Fesseln im Kopf zu lösen. Wann fangt ihr endlich an zu begreifen, dass ihr selbst verantwortlich für, ein bessere, für eine bessere Welt seid? Habt ihr euch schon mal gefragt, warum die Schmarotze unseres Systems Gesetze zu eurem Wohl machen sollten? Haben sie was davon, euch die Freiheit zu lassen und auf eure Schutzgelder zu verzichten, die sie für sinnlose Kriege ausgeben oder sonst wie zum Fenster rauswerfen können? Jeder Tyrann hat nur Macht über das Volk, weil das Volk ihm und seinen Gesetzen gehorcht. Aber keine Leistung, kein Lohn. Ist das nicht das, was ihr denkt und praktiziert? Wenn ein Handwerker Pfusch liefert, bekommt er kein Geld, sagt das Gesetz. Also haben wir ein Recht darauf, dass wir für die erpressten Schutzgelder, die wir zahlen, ordentliche Leistungen in Form von menschlicher Behandlung, Frieden und Freiheit bekommen. Wann versteht ihr, dass nur das zählt, was ihr tut und denkt? Solange jeder denkt, was kann ich alleine schon tun, werden die organisierten Gaunerbanden immer machen, was sie wollen und die Oberhand behalten. Fangt besser gar nicht erst damit an, die Schuld an eurem Versagen, eurem Elend, eurer Mutlosigkeit, eurer Gleichgültigkeit und eurem Verrat an der Menschlichkeit auf andere zu schieben, wie es Kinder tun, die beim Plündern des Bonbonglas ertappt wurden. Ihr seid keine Kinder mehr, also benehmt euch endlich wie erwachsene, verantwortliche Menschen. Seid euer eigener Anführer. Solange ihr Kreaturen gehorcht, die gegen eure Interessen handeln, indem sie ihre Bösartigkeiten und die Attacken gegen euch als Gesetze und Verordnungen verkleiden, die sie sich selbst gemacht haben, werdet ihr immer weiter geknechtet, eingeschränkt, beraubt, belogen und verkauft. Und diejenigen, die euch verraten und verkauft haben, das wart ihr. Und warum ich mir erlauben darf, so mit 80 Millionen Menschen zu reden? Ich war wie ihr. Ich danke für eure Aufmerksamkeit. Und ein schönes neues Jahr.